You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. There is nothing new under the sun, but under the small green fourth moon of Yavin, there is quite a different story. <laughs> Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is on a daring mission to rescue a beautiful princess, and all he needs is a little help from his friends. Han Solo, space pirate, and Chewie, his giant Wookiee, C-3PO, human relations cyborg, and his counterpart R2-D2, and the mysterious Jedi Knight. Never before in the history of movies has so much time and technology been spent just for fun. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me on this damn fool idealistic crusade is my co-host, Mr. Rob St. Mary. Luke Skywalker? I loved his work with the two live crew. Also with us this week is a wonderful human being, Chris Bricklemeyer. Oh, great. You give me the introduction from the deleted scene that was terrible. Modi May continues with perhaps what might be our most perplexing choice. When we talk about films that you just can't see anymore, I immediately thought of George Lucas's Star Wars. Released 38 years ago, the film was a groundbreaking science fiction fantasy. After getting off to a slow start, Star Wars became a box office bonanza, leading to the immediate talk of a sequel. With a follow-up set to be released in 1980, the film would be re-released in 1981 as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, one of the first few, though not the first change, that would snowball over the years and ultimately lead to the original film's alleged destruction, if you want to believe some people. Not metaphorically, but literally. You'll hear more about that and the movie as we dig into the tale of Luke Skywalker, a moisture farmer who saves a princess and deals a blow to an evil galactic empire. So Chris, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Star Wars and what did you think? I was five years old and it was May 25th, 1977. And where'd you see it at? A theater that doesn't exist anymore in Philadelphia. So yeah, we moved. So I saw I saw Star Wars probably four times in Philly and three or four more times up here north of Boston because you guys aren't in the room with me. It may have been the f- second movie I saw. I think I saw Peter Pan before this, though I'm not sure. But this is what kind of th- this informed what movies were for me for the rest of my life. Pretty much, not a, not a bad place to start. As for me, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but Star Wars was my first movie experience, although I was too young to remember the visuals. I was born in 78. The film, as you said, was playing basically until the second one came out in 80. And I remember going to see it with my folks when I was two, and I just remembered the sounds. Years later, when we got a VCR, 
my mom bought the uh, the original trilogy pack that came out on VHS, and we used to watch that. Although I have to say, and I think I may have said this before on other episodes when we brought up Star Wars, the first experience for me, and this probably just has to do with the fact that I'm a little bit younger than you guys, was the movie and the series of films that, that really caught my attention was Indiana Jones. And Indiana Jones, if I was going to pick between uh, two George Lucas properties, uh, is where my heart is. So it was Temple of Doom, although I know there's not a lot of fans of Temple of Doom. They find it to be a a lesser film compared to Raiders. Uh, I saw that when I was six, and that blew my mind. So um, if I was a couple years older, I'm sure I would be a crazy Star Wars geek like you guys. Rob, are you like Freddie Mercury? I have no idea what you mean by that. It's not that I don't like it. Um, I find the fandom around it to be – someone kind of summed it up recently on Facebook, a friend of mine who said that basically Star Wars fans have become like the sports geeks of the geek world, that they've become so fanatical and so much about statistics and little tiny nitpicky things that uh, for me it just beats all the joy out of the films for me. I can totally see that, and we'll definitely be talking, I think, about that kind of stuff as the show goes on. But in the meantime, like you, Chris, I saw the film when I was five years old. I saw it over at the Fairlane Theater. I really don't remember actually seeing the film. It just kind of became part of my life immediately. And it was like, you can go back and watch home movies of me when I'm five years old and I'm opening up, you know, all my Christmas presents and people will remember or maybe not remember, but there were no star Wars toys that first Christmas afterwards. They were a little slow on producing stuff. They had the early bird card and all this kind of stuff. I had the oversized star Wars comic book, which I just absolutely fell in love with. And then basically from then on out until 1984, maybe it was like every Christmas and birthday. It was all about the Star Wars figures, all about the fandom. And that was what I would play when I was younger was just Star Wars, playing with the figures, coming up with new storylines, all this kind of stuff, mixing it in with other bits of pop culture, you know, maybe uh, have a, a land speeder kind of flying up and then stop at midair and do a little Waylon Jennings from Dukes of Hazard, that kind of stuff, you know, maybe a little A-team mixed in there. But Star Wars was my jam for a long time. And what prompted this episode... So a few months ago, I'm listening to this book, fantastic book by Michael Kaminsky. It's called The Secret History of Star Wars. And it's basically going through the inception, a lot of George Lucas's early life, how Star Wars kind of came to be, talking about his early influences and really going through a lot of the the minutia of the scripts. I mean, terrific looking at how things progressed as we're going from one draft of the script to the next. One of the things I really appreciated was him kind of debunking the whole idea of the Journal of the Wills. And he really calls out Lucas a lot on some of the stuff as far as like, oh yeah, this was all just one big story and I just chopped it into six and that's how we came up with Star Wars. No, 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 that's not really true. I was really glad for that. But there were times though 
where I was yelling. I'm listening to this in the car and I'm yelling at my radio, just like, you forgot about this and you forgot about this other part. And I, I, I was that Star Wars nerd that I think you're talking about, Rob, where it was just like, you know, why, why aren't you bringing this stuff up? And that's kind of what helped prompt this episode because I was like, if there are things that this really super in-depth book is skipping, maybe there's stuff out there that, I don't know. I don't want to say that I know that other people don't know, but there was definitely stuff where I'm just like, this stuff, we, we really need to talk about this. The whole concept was to put it into the, you know, um, sort of misappropriated films or lost films of the month. It's just the idea that you can't see the version that originally was out in the theaters because Lucas has monkeyed around with it too much. And I think that is definitely worth something discussing. And I think kind of ridiculous and tragic at the same time that this guy keeps fiddling with his original work. I think that the original should be out there and then you should be able to see whatever he wants to do in terms of revisions. But just to keep adding to it is ridiculous. It would be like, you know, Michelangelo's paintings or, you know, the Sistine Chapel or something. And it's like, eh, we're going to, you know, fix a few things here and we're going to add on another section. It's like, why? It's like, just leave it as it was. I mean, it kind of stands as its own thing. And, and, and I like this thing that you were talking about with this um, Kaminsky book. So I'm going to have to take a look at that because I remember reading Easy Riders Raging Bulls. And there's a section in there on Star Wars that's pretty funny in terms of people on the crew who had little to no respect for this film when it was being produced. His, uh, British crew especially, it sounds like that there were some uh, differences there. We'll hear a little bit, though, about that when we talk to Roger Christian later on in the episode, um, because it sounds like some of the folks were kind of on his side, but other people, yeah, didn't necessarily get the the greater vision of what he was doing. I think the best quote in the, in the Peter Biskin book is, I think it was the DP or somebody who was working for the DP talking about uh, Chewbacca and saying, uh, it's time to light the dog, bring in the dog. And just had like little to no respect for the creatures that he was creating in the film. Some of the stuff that was missing for me in the Kaminsky book, he didn't really talk about the editing of the movie that much. There's a great article that came out in the Star Wars Insider back when I still subscribed to the Star Wars Insider. All about a version of Star Wars that exists in the Lucasfilm archives and is basically like an early cut of Star Wars. And this is before... I think it was Marsha Lucas and Richard Chu, and I can't remember if Hirsch was the editor on this one or if it was somebody else, but the pacing wasn't quite the way that it should have been. And just talking about some of these scenes that nobody has really ever seen before. I've seen bits and pieces of some deleted scenes. Like, of course, we know about the whole big scene at the beginning and how they're trying to introduce Luke a little bit earlier and all this kind of stuff. And if they reinstated the big stuff, I don't think that the movie would work. But then there were some other things that I I really have never seen before, just like stills here and there, this kind of stuff where it's like kind of tying Star Wars in a little bit more with like a American graffiti where like Luke is kind of tearing ass around Tatooine on his um, land speeder. And, you know, there's actually a guy who's like, whoa, slow down kind of thing. And it's like, okay, why, why am I not hearing about that? You know, and just that this was a real clunky version before these other folks kind of came in and, and rescued it. And one of the things too, that I really 
was missing from that was this idea of how many people helped out Lucas. I mean, there, he does talk about that quite a bit, like as far as people coming in and kind of giving some advice and stuff. But one of the things that was kind of missing for me was some of the people that gave input on the project, especially Brian De Palma, and just how, for me, crucial De Palma was in the history of Star Wars. And he kind of got short shrift in that. And really, not too many people talk about the role that De Palma has played in the Star Wars, at least the first Star Wars film. So one of the things that De Palma is kind of infamous for was tearing down one of the first screenings of Star Wars and just like, you know, didn't work for him, basically. But before that, before he even got involved with that, you know, before he was there as one of the initial audience members, it was him who really kind of helped out the very socially awkward George Lucas with the auditions. And I don't know if you guys got a chance to watch the Star Wars auditions, but to me, they're just this amazing artifact of when the script was still in this really kind of nebulous form, and then also seeing some of these actors who were there. And especially, it's great to see how many of them ended up being in other Brian De Palma films. Like you see a young Andrew Stevens who's going to go on to The Fury. You see a lot of people who are there for Carrie. So it's really kind of neat to see these actors who some of them would go on to fantastic things. Other people, you're just like, who the hell is that? Wait a second, do I have to sit up to get her in the ring? All the data banks in R2 are still secure. Well, then I think we're due the reward you offered. And I hope it'll be substantial, considering what we've been through already. Well, when, da- when, our- when our two has been safely delivered to my forces, you'll get your reward. You have my guarantee. What's the little droid carrying that's so blasted important? The plans and specifications to a battle station with enough firepower to destroy an entire system. Our only hope in destroying it is to find its weakness, which we shall determine from the data I've stored in our two. We capture the plans on a raid on the Imperial shipyards. But we fell under attack before I could get the data to safety. So I hid it in this... Shit. So I hid it in this R2 unit and sent him off. And where are you taking us now, anyway? The fourth moon of Yavin. I've given the coordinates to Chewbacca. They let us go. They're going to follow us. They want to find your hidden bases. They'll destroy the entire system. I know they'll follow. And they'll bring the Death Star. Our only hope is to destroy it before it destroys us. Hiding is useless now. With the Death Star, they will continue to destroy systems until they have found us. We have no alternative but to process this information and use it while there's still time. It's like the shit in the middle of that one. <laughs> it's always fascinating to watch like what could have been. They put a little bit of, of auditions on... Um, no, I'm trying not to talk about these movies too much. On, uh, on the Phantom Menace discs. And there was this one kid that auditioned for Anakin, young Anakin, that just had this, like, he looked nice and sweet, nice kid, but he had something else going on behind his eyes. And he was so much more believable to me in the audition as somebody that could go bad than, than Jake Lloyd was. But th- that's a whole, that's a horse of another color, I guess, about why that didn't work out. But to see like William Cat and and a whole bunch of people whose names I'm not going to be able to remember reading the lines it's just it's surreal because all the dialogue is just burned into my brain with a certain 
cadence and and you know the it's the particular voice attached to it and then to hear something close to it come out of the greatest american hero it's crazy and it's absolutely fast it's like it's like it's like an alternate reality watching casting tapes if eric stoltz had actually been in all of back to the future yeah yeah. (laughs) which i think was in the fringe universe you can actually (laughs) see that the fringe universe you would have seen kurt russell as Han Solo, Andrew Stevens, or maybe Charles Martin Smith as Luke Skywalker, and then Nancy Allen as uh, Princess Leia? Sure, why not? Yeah, yeah. It's funny that you bring up Nancy Allen because one of the more uh, well-known uh, audition tapes uh, for Indiana Jones is um, Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones and Sean Young originally in the Marion Ravenwood role. So so it's kind of interesting as well to see that kind of stuff. You know, you go and talk about these audition tapes and things like that. A few years ago in Detroit, uh, getting back to the editing for a second, you were talking about how Marsha Lucas and Richard Chu and them uh, worked on the editing and, and put this thing together. And and Chu came to Detroit. He was working uh, at, I think it was with Wayne State and Center for Creative Studies and was doing a like master class over a summer with students on film editing and then was hosting screenings at the Detroit Film Theater where he would talk about some films that he edited and then also like films that were inspiring to him. And I had a chance to talk to him. And it was fascinating to talk to him about his process and working on uh, several films that I was really enjoyed, especially during that period in the 70s, because he had done a masterful job along with Walter Murch on The Conversation a few years before he was hired and brought in to do Star Wars. You can't say enough things about Walter Murch. It's funny because I always think that Murch was more involved with Star Wars than he was. I know he totally was with THX 1138. It was kind of like a collaboration between him and Lucas. But when it comes to the Star Wars, I always think that he's more involved than he was, especially when it comes to the battle at the end. Sorry, spoilers. The battle at the end when the X-Wings are going through the magnetic field of the the Death Star and just the way that the sound sounds, it so reminds me of things like The Conversation or Apocalypse Now where you kind of have that weird noise or, of course, THX 1138 where the voices will cut in and out and just have that kind of, I don't know, magnetic uh, resonance to them. I, I always love the way that that sounds. I mean, the sound design... You know, I just picked up a book on all the sounds of Star Wars, which is, it's this hardcover book, super thick, and you go through these pages and they have, I usually hate these kind of things, they have this like little device over on the right hand side, and like you get, pick up some books and it's like, you know, the cow says, and you hit number one, those kind of things, but with this, it's a library of like hundreds and hundreds of sounds that you can call up while you're reading the book and be able to hear the unedited versions, the edited versions, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, it's a sound designer's dream. And I can't wait to really dive into this thing. Like just flipping through it. I got it earlier today, just flipping through it. And I'm just like, oh, there's Bosch. I remember how Bosch sounds. I remember how all these, you know, characters sound. And I was just like, oh man, I can't wait to hear how did they come up with these things. And even when I'm a little kid watching like a making of Star Wars documentary and seeing the sound designer out there hitting a guide wire with a wrench and making the laser sounds. I'm just like, Oh my God, you know, like I had no idea that that's how things 
work. And Star Wars really was kind of my entree into how movies are made because I was so fascinated by all the nuts and bolts of this kind of stuff. You know, you know. The other thing that's interesting that you sent me to watch, and off the top of my head, I can't remember who put it together, but there's a thing called the Annotated Star Wars. And they took the first film and intercut scenes from other films, uh, subtitle references to other places, other films, where either scenes or design or characters or ideas come from other places. And that was fascinating for me to watch because I have to say it would probably only be in the last couple of years that I've gone back to even watch Star Wars again ever since I was a kid and have been able to pick out certain particulars of, oh, well, this is a reference to that film, and this design is, of course, a reference to this piece of classical art or you know the samurai film or something like that. So it's, it's interesting to have someone kind of guide you through that, and I think that the guy who put that together, much like you were talking about with this uh, Sounds of Star Wars thing and sort of where all the sounds come from, I think is another sort of piece of the puzzle for fans to kind of sit down and figure out where they all come from. Because when I was a kid, when I was interested in, say, a band, and then I would read interviews and they would say, oh, well, we were influenced by this guy or that guy, I'd go back and listen or read up about those people. And sometimes I found those more fascinating than the band that I was into at the time. Yeah, it's like everybody knows, okay, Star Wars, there's a lot of the hidden fortress in there, but really, you see a lot more stuff. Like that annotated Star Wars, they had that great scene from Yojimbo where the guy's trying to kind of threaten Yojimbo, and he's like, you know, okay, it'll hurt when I, you know, cut <laughs> when I kill you, basically. It cuts off the guy's arm, and it's totally the scene from the cantina. And then, you know, the, the reference to Sanjuro with all of the young samurai kind of popping out of the floorboards where they They've hidden, you know, and you can take that and just put it side by side with when they come out from underneath the floorboards in the Millennium Falcon when they're on the Death Star. It's just like, okay, yeah, these are nice visual rhymes that I'm getting here, you know, and I would say even more so than some of the stuff that happens in Hidden Fortress. But there is a lot of Hidden Fortress in that, and especially the Mifune character I can see really informing Obi-Wan Kenobi, who I have to say, Obi-Wan Kenobi, by the way, one of the worst people to pick out a pseudonym uh, an alias because he calls himself Ben Kenobi yeah. and I'm wondering how many Kenobis there are on Tatooine if he's like oh no 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 that's Joe Kenobi <laughs> no that's Shecky Kenobi well, I stumbled across a recording while I was cleaning him he says he belongs to someone called Obi-Wan Kenobi I thought he might have met old Ben do you know what he's talking about mm. Ben Ben Kenobi Boy, am I glad to see you. What brings you out this far? Oh, this little droid. Uh, he claims to be the property of an Obi-Wan Kenobi. Is he a relative of yours? Do you know who he's talking about? Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. It's like, we're looking for a Michael White. Hmm. I wonder if he knows Mike White. I wonder. Hmm. I wonder if that's old Mike. Hmm. <laughs> well, don't forget, Obi-Wan was a terrible Jedi. He was. He was one of the worst Jedi around. He was a liar and a sneak and just a 
jerk. I don't have a lot of respect for Obi-Wan. It's really a certain point of view that you need to worry about there. My favorite part is, oh, your father wanted you to have this lightsaber that I picked up after I cut his arm and arms and legs off and left him for dead on the side of a lava river. Yeah, he specifically told me to give this to you because he didn't know you existed. And he was a good friend. And that's one of the worst things, too. Like, as I was rewatching it, uh, talking about uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi again here, he knows everything, right? Like, yeah. he knows the whole story, and we've now suffered through all these, you know, prequels. And there's that look that he gives him during that scene. And I'm just like, you're an asshole. You could tell him right now who his dad is, but you're not going to do it. You're going to sit here and you're going to play dumb and let the kid like go on with whatever he's going to do. It's like, what a dick. Like, that's what I felt the last time I watched it. But it's not fair. He's retroactively an asshole because he's originally not an asshole. And this whole series has made him into an asshole. He knew who Vader was. You know he knew who Vader was. No, no. Vader wasn't even the guy's father until Lucas starts writing the second movie. And then it's like, oh, ha, a twist. That, okay, that that's fair. Uh, that's fair. His his actions in A New Hope. But, but the rest of it, he's just an ass. I will grant you that he's a terrible terrible adopter of aliases yeah he definitely is he says he belongs to someone called obi-wan kenobi i thought he might have met old ben so the other thing the one that really set me off when it came to kaminsky's book so he like i said he does this fantastic job of debunking the journal of the wills you know you you ask some people tell me about the journal of the wills and those people who happen to know what you're talking about would say oh well that's the greater story that Lucas came up with back in 1975 or whatever. And that had all of the ideas, all of the star Wars films came from that. And basically bullshit, absolute hundred percent bullshit. It was a framing device that was used to make star Wars fit into a bigger universe, mm. bigger galaxy, I guess. And the thing that was driving me crazy when I'm listening, like I said, I don't want Kaminsky to, to think that I'm ragging on him, but there was there was one moment where I'm sitting in this parking lot, like waiting for this movie to start, and I'm yelling at the radio, and I'm just like, you're talking about Dune. You really want to talk more about Dune. Like, he mentions Dune in his book. Obviously, there's a lot of Dune stuff. You know, the whole Messiah idea, or, you know, or like the the character of Luke is very Paul Atreides. The whole idea of the desert planet. There are at least two references to spice yep. in Star Wars. You know, No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. Uh, C-3PO talks about being smashed in the uh, the spice mines of Kessel. And then there's an emperor, and yeah, it's a little too convenient. And I love Star Wars. I, I cannot defend it against Dune. The thing that was killing me, though, is that those who are familiar with Dune, the book, everything has these intros, which are books that were written about Paul Atreides, books that were written about the Emperor, books that were written about this and that, and they're all quoted at the beginnings of different you know parts of the of the books. And so I'm just like, that's what he's doing with the Journal of the Wills. He's giving it this framing device of a larger story, just like these books that Lady Jessica or the princess uh, who would become Atreides' wife, 
she is quoted all over the place and it's just like yeah yeah that's that's what he's doing so that was the thing where i was just screaming like it's dune it is that's what he's doing with this story device it is dune see but do you think that this is also because lucas was writing this and creating this around the same time as we talked about on the jodorowsky's dune episode that was in the zeitgeist because oh, yeah. as we've talked about that book was going around and he was trying to get the funding and it didn't happen and you know some of those folks went over to work on star wars and some of the other things so you think that maybe he saw that and goes huh you know maybe maybe i can borrow a little bit of that let alone maybe he sat down and also read the frank herbert books so those were the things I was really nitpicking about. And then, the, of course, the other thing that wasn't included in that, which to me is part of Star Wars lore, it may not be canon, and we're going to talk about canon later on, may not be canon, but the Star Wars Holiday Special, to me, was such a major part of Star Wars. Folks who, you know, you may not remember, I'm like, I'm talking about earlier that whole dearth of toys that happened that first Christmas and just that idea of trying to get your hands on anything Star Wars, you know, like people may not remember how difficult it was to see these movies a second time or, you know, third or fourth or fifth time or whatever, you know, that they weren't always at the theater or maybe not at a theater near, near you, you know, held over a spectacular 12th week, all this kind of stuff, being able to get your hands on anything Star Wars or even like cheap knockoff Star Wars stuff was amazing you know it's just like oh my god and then to have this star wars holiday special come on 1978 you're a year and a half away from when star wars came out and you're just like jones and for anything star wars man and here it comes and you got fucking it opens up with the crawl and it opens up with Chewbacca and Han Solo and it is just glorious that this thing is happening and then it just takes a dump all over mm-hmm. you but you don't care if you're if you're six years old watching this thing it is amazing especially right around that hour mark when little lumpy goes in and watches the cartoon and it's got the crazy Nelvanimation style of you know Luke and you've got his voice and you can hear the princess and all this and then meeting this Boba Fett character for the first time and just seeing what a badass this guy is. It's just like, oh man. And then getting the offer. Like, I, I don't remember if it was that night or shortly thereafter where it was like, you send in a proofs of purchase and you get to see, you know, you get to have a Boba Fett character. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. I want this so bad. <laughs> so you look at it now and it is garbage absolute garbage but when you're six years old man that was just priceless oh yeah when when you're six you don't care that there's 25 minutes of wookie talk (laughs) and no language you understand which could be considered really avant-garde yeah but it's just not. It, it, it was really annoying to my parents. I know that. Aren't these people ever going to speak English? <laughs> in a way, do you think that the that the special belongs in that same category as um, another episode we had, uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, as one of these weird anachronistic things that don't quite fit? Yeah, I know Gene Simmons doesn't consider that canon either. But at least they put it out on the history, you know? And that's one of the things that George Lucas is like never putting out 
the Star Wars Holiday Special. And it's that, to me, is just one of those amazing things, that something could air in 1978, aired one time. As far as I know, there have never been other airings of this thing, and that it can still exist today. Like, it was in that that dark time before VCRs were ubiquitous. Yeah, that was the land of the $1,000, $1,500 VCR, wasn't it, in the late mid-late 70s? It's not just one version that's out there either. I mean, there are multiple versions of the Star Wars Holiday Special that are out there, multiple versions insofar as being taped off of different channels. You can get versions with the commercials in, versions without. This one had a couple of times where it was like station breaks. Mm-hmm. At the end, you've got the announcer talking about like what's coming up next or you know tomorrow night or whatever. So there are these different versions of these things that are out there. So it's not just one guy who had the foresight and the luck and all this stuff to tape this thing. But many people, of course, you know, again, 1978, nobody has seen Star Wars in a while. And this thing, you know, like people had the foresight to to get this thing on tape if they had the ability. So it's just like, thank you. Thank you to the people who did that, because otherwise this thing would just be lost in the ether. I would expect such a thing today because we have the mass marketing machines of movies as you were talking about, it took a while for the toys to get rolling and all that stuff. It almost seems so bizarre and anachronistic to even consider it at that time because the idea of sequels in the 70s was such a rarity. And especially like even I remember reading stuff about they wanted, you know, when they did the second Godfather film, there were people that were like, eh, I don't know, you know, part two, eh, you know, should we call it that? Uh, should we do that? that? That's not really what filmmakers do. You know, it was there was a lot of like consternation about sequels and spinoffs and marketing and all that stuff. But I guess maybe someone got their hands on a boatload of cocaine in late 1977 or early 1978. Well, luckily, I think some of that had been already paved. I mean, this is 20th Century Fox that's putting out Star Wars, and they already had that idea with the whole Planet of the Apes series. So definitely they were building on that idea. So when they were talking about Star Wars originally, that was one of the things was the sequel rights. So I know they were thinking that, but again, they weren't, they being 20th Century Fox, we're not thinking that this thing was going to be a hit. They, this was this craziness where it was, okay, if you want the big Sydney Lumet film that's coming out this summer, you have to book Star Wars. You know, it's one of these like tit for tat kind of things. Like, you want the big monster hit, you got to book this POS <laughs> sci-fi film that we're putting out yeah. in you know thirty theaters in in uh, late May. You know, this isn't even Memorial Day. This is like before. I don't know what, six, seven years ago when Blockbuster started opening up in May, May was one of these dead periods of time. It's before school lets out. It's before the Memorial Day weekend. You don't have jack shit in May. You know, it's you're, you're lucky if you open Memorial Day, but really you're starting to look around like mid-June into July where your Blockbusters are. So, you know, just looking at the day when this thing was released, it's like they had very little faith in this thing. And then after it became a hit, then they turn it around and it's like, oh, you want Star Wars? You got to think the Sydney Lumet film, too. <laughs> well, well, I mean, when you look at it, 
it really is sort of this place where everything changed. Now, I know folks will go, oh, well, it was Jaws, of course, you know, because Jaws was the big movie, and then that changed everything. I really think it was Star Wars because up until this point, sort of science fiction, broad science fiction like this was it's Children's Fair, or it's the territory of Roger Corman, or it's all of these crappy movies from the 50s and 60s that played on late-night television. No one took this stuff seriously at that time. And this was, of course, in what we just say over and over again, during the greatest period, you know, greatest recent period in American film in the 1970s, when everything, of course, was really serious and everybody was watching a bunch of, you know, foreign art film from, you know, 10 to 15 years before and trying to emulate that in some sort of American style. So this thing is kind of anachronistic when it comes out. I mean, if you look at it, like stack it up against everything. And as we talked about on the Sorcerer episode, Sorcerer came out, what, around the same time? And it got pushed out of the cinemas because of Star Wars. Same weekend, man. Same weekend. And yeah, this was Sorcerer opens at Grauman's Chinese, and it's not doing any business. And then they book Star Wars, and they have lines out the door, you know, around the block kind of stuff, which is just crazy. And I think this is one of those, like, I'm trying to remember what the quote was, but I want to say that Lucas thought when he saw at Grandma's Chinese, the lines, he thought it was for Sorcerer. He did not think there was any way that his movie has these lines around the block. It took him a while before it sank in for him what a phenomenon he had created. I mean, he was expecting a modest, I want to get my money back kind of thing. And let me back up a minute to something I had said earlier where I was like, he keeps fiddling with it. Now, it's my understanding that part of the reason why he kept fiddling with the film was because when 20th Century Fox gave him the money to make it, they didn't give him as much money as he wanted because they didn't believe that, as I said, that's Children's Fair. That's Roger Corman. What are you talking about? Like, nobody makes anything like this. And therefore, when he got some money, he went back in to do it the way he wanted to do it, supposedly. So... I still think that the original and its original release should be available to everyone. At the same time, I guess you can understand why he was like, I never got as much money as I wanted to do it. So therefore, that's why I had to put these scenes back in and fix some of the effects. One of his goals seemed to be bringing fun back to the theater. At least that's what his story is now. And you never know with Lucas. And we'll talk about that more in just a few minutes here. But when it comes to... What George says, you never quite know. But when it comes to what he says now, as far as what his goal was, you know, he had created one of the most heady science fiction films around, THX 1138. And he's putting out films in this era where you've got, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, you've got Silent Running, you've got things that we've talked about on the show before, like Rollerball, Logan's Run, you know, Soylent Green, all these kind of things. Even, you know, if you if you boil it down, Planet of the Apes, not a very fun-filled film. I mean, it's pretty fucking dark, especially the twist and everything. Dark and political. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. Statue of Liberty. That was our planet! So with Star Wars, it really kind of bounced us out of that darker era, even though it is not the fun film that a lot of people, you know, it does. it is not as light and bubbly, obviously, as we're going to see in something like The Phantom Menace. No, no. I mean, Lucas is not a fun filmmaker. I mean, you were talking about THX, and I mean, American Graffiti. And around this time, if you read Raging Bull's Easy Rider 
he was supposedly going to go to Vietnam with a 16-millimeter crew and do Apocalypse Now in Vietnam during the war. This is not a guy who's light and frothy, and even the interviews that you see with him, I've never met the man personally, but in the interviews, he seems kind of, he's not a jokey, funny kind of guy. He's pretty serious, and, you know, he makes a few little cute jokes, but, you know, he's... He, he doesn't seem like a warm personality at times, you know? So the idea that, oh, I was trying to make a fun film, it's like, not really, because if you watch it, it is pretty serious. Like, the the whole film has this real tone of seriousness to it. It's, it's amazing that it stays on the tracks as well as it does without falling off and becoming almost like parody of itself. Yeah, and those jokes, talking about the whole idea of the collaboration. I mean, that was Gloria Katz and William Hayek, I think is how you pronounce his name. I've only seen it, not heard it really. And they're the people that kind of came in and added in some of the laugh lines that are in the movie to keep it a little bit lighter than what it could have been. I mean, Lucas has admitted in the past that he's not a writer and it is pretty obvious from some of the stuff. I mean, hearing some of those lines, especially like trying to repeat some of the things that are said in the film and going back and watching those auditions and hearing some of these kind of clunky lines before they've been polished by other people or the actors, people like Harrison Ford kind of, you know, took some of these things and was able to bring some life to it. But, you know, yeah, it, it would have been, darker just with the original dialogue because it didn't have the jokes and it didn't have the life to it that the actors would actually bring in. And I think, again, that when we talk about the prequels, which hopefully we won't talk a whole lot about them, but that's one of the problems is that I think what was written on the page was what the actors said. And that's, you know, and there was no Hike and Katz. There was no, you know, De Palma and Coppola. There, there was no Marsha Lucas to kind of tone down what was going on there and bring some, you know, humanity to the proceedings. Everything's, you know, shrouded in mystery and everything's in the past. We don't know what the real story is. You know, he wanted to do, he wanted to do a Flash Gordon movie, and when he couldn't, this is what he went with. Going on that, he's trying to make a Flash Gordon movie informed by kurosawa films that's not played against the vietnam war yeah, it's not yeah. a it's not a family-friendly mix you got going on there i watched a new hope with my with my kids and there's like almost a full hour where it's just talking and driving <laughs> yeah there's that thing again where instead of him being informed by the french new wave he's informed by kurosawa so yeah. even though it becomes this big sort of blockbuster film that sort of set the trend going forward into the 80s and, you know, regretfully today with the, the big Marvel movies that have gotten kind of way out of hand, it all comes out of foreign cinema. It all comes out of these movie geeks who are watching stuff from other countries. In the American revival, the whole new cinema, the Hollywood brats, all this kind of whatever you want to call it, I mean, yeah, that was totally informed by the new wave movements of France and Italy and all these things. So, yeah, it definitely has that as this backdrop that he's kind of, you know, utilizing for all this stuff. And Kurosawa, but yeah, some of it moves as fast as Ozu. So there's definitely some pacing where it's just like, oh yeah, you know, but it works for me. And that's the other question is, does it work for me because it works or does it work for me because of nostalgia? And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that too. But, but before we do that, let's break here and play the interview that we did with Michael Kaminsky, the author of The Secret History of Star Wars. 
my name is Michael Kaminsky, and I'm a Star Wars historian, although not by trade, but that's kind of the, <laughs> the way I've sort of done. There's not money involved in it, really, so it's not like you do it because it's a living. You do it because uh, you have passion about it, because if you weren't doing it, then nobody else would be doing it, and so, therefore, you feel almost obligated to do it, I guess. It's kind of weird, but like, yeah, like, for example, my book, it wouldn't exist if I didn't write it. No one else was going to write that book, so, you know, I got to do it. What was the first Star Wars film you saw, and how old were you when you saw it? Uh, I don't remember. It was A New Hope, I know that, but I was like a baby. So I've literally been like watching it since before I can remember. I remember my parents had told me that I found that cantina scene hilarious. I guess they just, you know, you have to entertain the two-year-old, right? So show them a, you know, an interesting movie, and I guess they just kept showing it to me because I liked it. So I kind of have literally grown up watching the film. How did you kind of decide to make this rather voluminous book? You know, I, I, there was never a point where I decided really that I was going to make something like that. It kind of just grew. I knew more than pretty much anyone else on the planet uh, about the sort of screenplay evolution. Like, maybe there is some guy out there that knows more than me about it. But I learned a lot in the course of making the book. I knew that I knew all this stuff that was kind of obscure because the sources um, are like old magazines and old, uh, you know, articles and stuff that are kind of, if you didn't know where to look, you would never just stumble across this stuff. It's, it's kind of, and as time goes on, these old, uh, you know, like Starlog interviews and stuff like that, they become uh, more and more lost just to time. I was kind of intending to make something for the internet, at first, it wasn't supposed to be this, this long. I knew it would be kind of long. Like maybe I could make like a, a website out of it and have you know links to like different chapters. It would be like equivalent of like a hundred pages or something like that. Be sort of like a, just like a mini novel type format. By the time I did the first draft, I could already see it was like two hundred pages typed, and I knew it was the first draft. And that's when I kind of realized like, uh oh, I think I have a book in me here. And then just, you know, in the process of refining it, each draft just got like 100 pages, long, pages longer. By the time I had the third draft done, it was like a 400-page thing. And that's when I knew, like, okay, this is, not, this is no longer a website project. This is now an actual manuscript. And uh, it just kind of grew from there. How did you get your hands on some of these old screenplays? Uh, they're out there. They've been out there for the longest time. There was, uh, there's been various leaks in Lucasfilm, especially see back in the day, back in the 70s, late 70s, and then they cracked down, but then there were still some leaks in the early 80s. Um, we're just, um, people would steal copies of uh, artwork, production artwork, and uh, not originals, but, you know, Xeroxes uh, and stuff, and screenplays. So they've just been trading around the bootleg circuit for, uh, you know, two decades. And then when the internet became a thing, they were uploaded. So they, they've always kind of been out there. So were you subscribing to Bantha Tracks and all these magazines back in the day? Well, that was kind of before my time. So I think Bantha Tracks closed down in like 1985 or something like that. So once it started putting the Star Wars Insider which I think was starting in 1994 or 5 or something like that. I 
brought that religiously, and also um, Tops had a, its own magazine. It's called um, Stories Galaxy Magazine, and I bought that. But it's the sort of uh, the resurgence of Star Wars came back, you know, in the 90s. I, I started buying all that stuff, cause, well, partially because it was so... Um, we were so starved for Star Wars things because for the longest time there wasn't any. My mom always used to say, like, we're like either a decade too early or a decade too late. Because I grew up in the 80s and there was nothing. After 1983, there was like this huge dry spell until about 1993. How did you kind of go about doing your research? I mean, how did you get your hands on some of these older magazines? And I mean, it just, it's such a, a huge project that it just seems so overwhelming to me. Yeah, it, it, it is when you look at it like that. Like I said, if I had known that I was going to, that's what I was setting up to do. And that's sort of, I would be collecting all these sources. And like, if I was to step back and at the beginning and look into the future of what the final product uh, was, it would be so overwhelming. I would not have bothered to attempt it. I'd be like, this, this is huge. This is too much. I can never... It's too intimidating, right? Uh, it just kind of grew sort of just organically. I, You know, just piece by piece over over a number of years, too. So, uh, month by month, it was a very slow process and drawn out, and it didn't really... You know, like... Like, like how people age, like month to month, you don't notice a difference in your age, but then after three years, you look back and you notice, oh, like this has changed quite a bit. It's sort of like, yeah, so um, so how did I go about getting sources and stuff? I've kind of always been, it's kind of been a lifelong project, actually, because growing up, uh, I had all these things, all these magazines and books and stuff, like from when I was a kid, I was interested in the making of the movies, so I had like Dale Pollock's biography, Skywalking, I had that, I have the original edition of it from 1983, that is my copy from when I was a kid, I couldn't even read, but somehow I still had this thing, um, and this stuff like the, the ILM books, um, and all these issues of Star Wars inside her, and then, because of the internet, I would hear about, oh, this source is useful for this type of information. And I would see sort of out of context quotes, but sometimes people would um, say where they came from. This comes from Starlog 81 or something like that. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm like, I wonder if there's more to this interview. And I would go go on eBay, get the actual issue, and I'd discover that, oh, like, there's this whole interview with George Lucas. And just... Uh, out of having just um, a personal interest in it, even without having it be a project for a book, I already was, I already was collecting sources in the in the first place. Um, so I had a pretty good foundation of stuff to work with when I first started. And then, of course, every you know couple weeks or whatever, I would add another source, and I would go to other people that had written books about Star Wars, and I'd go through their bibliography. And I just systematically pick out, oh, this looks like this could be an interesting lead. This looks like it could be an interesting lead. And it even got to the point where I was at my university going through the microfilm <laughs> of all these uh, newspapers, just scanning for articles. I'm like, well, you know what? It's May 1970, or let's say it's May 1980. 
There's probably a lot of articles about Star Wars in the entertainment section of the Toronto Star. So I would just go through the month of May through all these newspapers on microfilm and I'd be like, oh, here's an interesting thing, here's an interesting thing. And then checking out all the reviews and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I had three years to do it, I think. So, and it's very long in process. I'm working on the second edition that I've added. A, I have a whole list of stuff that's going to be added and fiddled around with. So it's just kind of, it's a slow process. On a, on a day-by-day basis, it's not really that hard. It's just only when you step back and look how hard it's come and you realize, you know, holy crap, this is kind of a lot of stuff I have here. The hardest part is keep because it's all in your head, right? You have to sort of know, like, oh, this correlates to this other quote, and that reinforces this other thing. Or, like, when you're standing through an article and that something jumps out at you that could be related to something else in, in your book, uh, you know, and all of that relates to Chapter 3 when George Lucas said this. That's just kind of like elaborating on that. You kind of have to keep everything in your head, and that's uh, the hardest part. But you're so immersed in it that it kind of, you have it memorized. So when you're in when you're in the midst of it, it's not hard. It's only once you take a break, like now, I've kind of stepped back a little bit, and I'm trying to get back into it to do a, a second edition. And it's it's kind of I have to sort of uh, dive into it all over again and have everything in the head. It can't be easy either, having so many contradicting statements from George Lucas. Yeah, well, that's what makes it kind of interesting. But it is um, like sort of cracking a puzzle. In some ways, because you're like, okay, here he says this, here he says this, here someone else said something else, like, what, what's the story? And um, there's a lot of detective work involved, um, because, I mean, just in uh, writing nonfiction in general, you will have people who, who give two different accounts of the same event, and you kind of have to, you know, try to choose uh, what's, what's the best way to uh, present it. And yeah, writing, especially with with George Lucas, uh, there's a lot of reading between the lines. But of course, you have to sort of stay as neutral as you can. But you also have to be uh, honest and have integrity. If you think he's like this is obviously a misleading statement, how do you do you go out and like say that? But like, if you just present it as it is, I think the audience can sort of draw draw their own conclusion be like, oh, I see. So, like, he's, you know, exaggerating this thing here because of, uh, you know, some other evidence. But, um, yeah, it is it is kind of difficult because of that. There's a lot of puzzle solving involved. Yeah, and I'm always curious as far as how much is him actually saying it versus what is publicity material that may or may not be 100% accurate yeah. when it goes out. Yeah, well, I, t- I try to um, address that specific thing either because it's like, okay, if if he is um, giving a misleading statement about this, why is that? And it's kind of like, okay, well, it makes sense from a publicity point of view. That's a way of explaining it. Otherwise, it's like, well, is he just like a like a compulsive liar? Like <laughs> that doesn't really that seems kind of odd. But like, it, there is a sort of uh, method to the madness there, and when you really Examine the, you know, in the context of history and, uh, you know, being a product that's being sold and stuff, it starts to, you know, pieces fall into place and you start going like, oh, okay, I get it. You know, one thing that I was really impressed with was just hearing about how many people actually helped when it came to 
creating Star Wars, just, um, you know, Coppola and De Palma and just all those friends that Lucas had to kind of bounce ideas off of. Yeah, I mean, it's no secret. I mean, like, he's up front about it, right? Like, I have all these uh, uh, interviews with him, you know, talking about it openly. But it's not really all that well-known, especially since, you know, people just watch the film and when it ends, it says, written and directed by George Lucas, they think, oh, George Lucas must have been a really good writer at some point in his life. Um, And he's really not, he never really was a, a good writer, um, and even he says that about himself. He's like, yeah, I'm terrible. Even today he says that. But the difference is that, you know, on the prequels, he didn't really have any help for the most part. He just kind of wanted to do it all on his own. So he ended up with weak screenplays. And on the original trilogy, he started out on his own, like the first drafts and stuff like that. And yeah, they're they're kind of weak. But then through the process of showing it around to everyone, like each draft got stronger and stronger because he started filtering out the bad elements. And then, of course, he had uh, uh, Willard Hike do a, a final pass on the dialogue and stuff like that. And then, of course, the actors could were given a little bit of freedom to sort of make them roll their own. I think that that uh, chemistry helps sell something that even even the final screenplay of uh, Star Wars doesn't have the greatest dialogue, but the actors sort of sell it. It's, it's kind of uh, weird to think about it. Like, if what... Like, there's so many people that were involved in the success of Star Wars, just everyone coming together and just everything clicking. If you didn't have Ralph McQuarrie designing it, the film would not be what it is today. If you didn't have John Williams making the music, the film would not be what it is today. If you didn't have Harrison Ford or Mark Hamill or Terry Fisher in there, it would be so different. And yet the film, it has Ralph McQuarrie, it has Terry Fisher, Mark Hamill, and Harrison Ford, it has John Williams, it has all these elements that are kind of like fluky, just sort of came together, all these talented people. And I, think, I don't think that's coincidence. I think George Lucas is good at recognizing talent because, like you said, he's like, he had a lot of help and he realizes that he's not, or at least back then, he realized that he wasn't this grand genius and that he has to find a team of the best people and sort of give them, guide them in the right direction and give them freedom. And you get all these people together in the same room and something magical happens. And that's the secret of Star Wars success, really. So how has been the reception of your book? It's been uh, amazing, actually. It's been used in, like, university courses and, it's, like, textbooks and stuff like that. I, I didn't think anyone would really read it, to be honest. I thought it was... To uh, first of all, it's not the greatest written book ever made. I'm not it was the first thing I ever wrote really professionally, so it's kind of uh, has that sort of amateur stamp to it. But like, I, I guess you know, it's the book that I, as a fan, wanted to read, but no one was making it, so I had to make it. And I guess other people felt similarly. Like they're like, oh, I wish this type of book would exist, and then. Here it is. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been fantastic. As a result of it, I've been like you know people from like the Hollywood Reporter will like call me up and like the Disney to like get my thoughts. I'm like, oh okay, this is interesting. Uh, so yeah, it's been way more successful than I ever thought it would be. Did you get any shit from some of the hardcore fans on it? A little bit. Like this, this is uh, the perfect example. IGN, right? IGN is huge. They had it on the, a review of it on the front page of IGN. When did you ever see a book on the front page of IGN, right? I'm like, oh, this is really crazy. And they kind of gave me a lousy review, 
because it's like fanboyism and stuff like that. I think they really misinterpreted a few things. Uh, but like, I don't know if it felt like I was being like critical of George Lucas or whatever. So I gave it kind of a lousy rating. It was like 6.1 or something. I think that's the worst review I've ever seen. <laughs> but at the same time, it was IGN. So you know what they say about publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. So I was like, all right, whatever. Probably 30,000 people, you know, bought the book as a result of that. Um, so, yeah, whatever. There's a little bit of that. But I think, I think anyone who is intelligent and is, uh, can have a balanced opinion to not be so biased towards being, like, defensive about something uh, would, uh, you know, appreciate the book and see it for what it is. If, if you're not one of those people, I can't help you. So it just comes up a territory. So what is the second edition going to bring us? Well, at the time I wrote the uh, the first version of it, um, Jonathan Rindler's Making of Empire Strikes Back and Making the Return of the Jedi had not come out yet. Um, and those have quite a few juicy little pieces of information in them, like the first one did. And also, just a couple other things I've stumbled upon, uh, like information about um, specifically what uh, George's plans for the 12 film cycle, because at one point they were supposed to be 12. And so this interview where he was talking about, well, you know, you'd have the ninth film trilogy, and then you'd have the rest would be like sort of uh, standalone things. And he wanted to do one that was just about droids, and there'd be no dialogue, and there'd be one about Wookiees. And that's pretty interesting. Um, and also, you know, just tightening up and re-ending a few things that, you know, could stand to be taken out. Just a little nips and tests, nothing, nothing too drastic. Just kind of polishing it up. Are you going to tackle episode seven in that one? I think I'm going to do an epilogue. I think I'll do it. Because really, now that not only are we doing seven, eight, and nine, there's going to be standalone films. And what Disney's saying is that, like, every three years, even after episode seven, eight, nine ends, Every three years or so, there's going to be another Star Wars film, and this is going to go on how long? They can, they can make another 25 films for all we know. And so really, when you when you step back in history and look at the, the, the process, we basically have the George Lucas phase, and then we have the Disney phase. And I guess what Secret History of Star Wars is about is the, the Lucas phase. So I think I'm going to do a sort of an epilogue, sort of touching upon that and touching upon the, the sale to Disney and the retirement and going in finally completing 7, 8, and 9. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be like some sort of epilogue or something like that, sort of uh, acknowledging that process. It seems like the Lucas phase is still a deep vein to mine. Oh yeah, for sure. Like there's, there's so much to... Uh, yeah, like you said, to mind there. It's just, and also it helps that it's over like a 25 year period, too. I mean, a lot can happen in 25 years. Imagine 25 years from now, what would that be? 2034? <laughs> what's going to be the state of Star Wars then? It'll be very, very, very different from what we're looking at right now. Hopefully, the original trilogy will be out by then. Yeah, well, they're saying uh, the rumor is that Disney's releasing it soon in the next. I'm guessing the next holiday season time it for episode seven. Episode seven comes out in December, so I'll put the Blu-ray out in November or something, Christmas or Thanksgiving. 
And by original trilogy, I mean without even the episode four on the first one. Yeah, well, if you want to advertise it as like the theatrical version, I guess you can't even have uh, episode four. If they could also do like a branching thing, that would be a cool way of going about it, because some people would want to have episode four. If they want to watch like sort of the, the trilogy, I'm excited for that. I think that rumor is true. Like, there's no reason why they should hold back anymore. George Lucas is not involved in any way. So that was the only reason the films were coming out. It's just because one person didn't really care enough to want them. Do you think that Marshall Lucas might be a reason for some of that? No. She had absolutely nothing to do with it. Because they did release it. They released it in 2006. Even without episode four, right? I mean, it was a crappy release, but like... They were technically selling it. There's no reason why uh, Marshall Lucas should have anything to do with it because they were selling films and you know through the 80s and 90s, like long after their divorce. So I, I see no reason why she should be involved. She, I mean, she may get kickbacks from sales of stuff. I don't know if if there's uh, even any plausibility to that, but like, okay, maybe. But um, even the special edition still has the copyright of 1977. It's still the original copyright. It's considered a derivative of it or something like that, even though it should say copyright 1997 or whatever. But like, so I don't know. I don't think there's any real truth to that, really, to be honest. What is your day job? I don't know. My day job right now, I'm just uh, working in retail, just sort of part-time right now. I'm going to be going back to school in uh, January. So I'm just kind of in between things right now. I wish I could get paid to write, but it's really hard to. It's really there. Really is no. You get into copywriting. That's really the only sort of uh, nine to five, you know, job involved with writing. But like, uh, I don't know. That's kind of like you're in advertising and marketing. It's kind of a deadbeat job itself. I listened to the book rather than reading it, and the guy who does the narration is amazing. Yeah, uh, I didn't even realize I'd come out. Someone told me about it. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I should uh, take a look and listen to the clip. I was like, wow, it's pretty, it's pretty pro. Yeah, well, he does so many great imitations of Lucas and Kirshner and everyone. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually don't have the full uh, book. I've just heard that there's like a two-minute sample that you can listen to or whatever it is. Yeah, I was surprisingly entertained. It's like weird to... To think you can be entertained by something that you wrote, but it's like, you know, guy does a good job. I'm pretty proud of that. Sounds pretty good. Yeah, hopefully they'll do a uh, the second edition as well because I'd, I'm very excited to read that or listen to it. Yeah, well, we were originally going to uh, wait until the second edition because I want, I'm sort of in the middle of it, but I've been, you know, quote in the middle of it for like two years now. So I guess at a certain point, they just decided to just go ahead and use the, you know, the edition that's out there. So I guess, yeah, we'll see. The, the second edition, I don't think, will be so drastically different that they will honestly need to do another one, because it would be like 15% different at most, maybe, which maybe is not enough to justify a second audio book. But um, yeah, it'll be out there eventually. Maybe next year. be a good time for episode seven. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you? Facebook or my website, secrethistoryofstarwars.com, and there's a Facebook page as well. I haven't really updated the website in an extremely long time, but like there is, uh, actually, I will be yeah, in the near future getting back to um, updating that and adding some things. Right now, I think Facebook is probably the most immediate 
way. There's a Facebook page for Secret History Star Wars. So. Don't be alarmed. It's only the death breath of the Dark Lord. Don't be scared. It's only an Imperial cruiser making the jump to light speed. Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present... Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. All right, we're back, and we were talking about Star Wars. So one of the things that I mentioned before was this whole idea of what to believe when it comes to George Lucas. And that was one of the things that I really like about Michael Kaminsky and what he did with the secret history of star Wars. He calls shenanigans quite a bit. Young man, you can't just go declaring shenanigans on innocent people. That's how wars get started. This whole idea of what I talked about before, star Wars is one huge story that George Lucas chops into six and ends up shooting episode four. Not true. This idea of there are going to be six movies, there's going to be nine movies, there's going to be 20 movies, there's going to be 12 movies, how those stories change and where those stories change are some of the things that Kaminsky really brings to the fore in his book. I can't recommend his book enough. I mean, it was absolutely fascinating, fascinating book. Yeah, I had a couple things where I'm just like, wait, you forgot about that. But everybody's going to have that kind of stuff if they're as much of a nerd as I am. And I'm sure that if you were going to write sort of the complete history of everything, that it would end up being like, you know, the Oxford English Dictionary. There would be multiple volumes and focus on various little aspects and each volume for everything. So, you know, you can't put everything in there, I guess. And then, uh, therefore, um, you know, other people have to pick up the slack and write some other books, I guess. I don't know. Right. And to that end... The next interview we're going to play here in a few minutes is Chris Taylor's How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise. And a lot of that picks up what Kaminsky did and kind of builds on it. So I think the two books really go hand in hand, and you can definitely read one without the other, but I would really recommend if you're a Star Wars nerd like I am, pick up both of these things because I think they really complement each other. I think that Kaminsky really goes into the nuts and bolts of that creative process of the making of the films, the looking at each draft of the scripts, especially when it comes to the original trilogy, going into all of that kind of stuff, the behind the scenes, all these kind of things. Really, I mean, the guy... I don't know how many episodes of Bantha Tracks this guy tracked down, but I mean, he pours through all of those, all of these interviews. I mean, just the sources that he comes up with are just absolutely astounding with just the, the flood of information that this guy had and being able to pick through all this kind of stuff and be able to put together this really comprehensive look at how these original films were. And he made this, I mean, there was prequel stuff in there but it was definitely pre-disney kind of stuff and the prequel stuff really for me fortunately kind of gets shoved to the side a little bit so it talks about those first three films so much and in so much great detail and yeah like i said he really calls out this whole revisionist history of lucas and that was the thing that always bugs me or bugged me and bugs me and and it's something that i can't stand as far as him constantly re 
working the story. And, you know, even um, Taylor in his book talks about how depending on who Lucas is talking to, it seems like he tells a different story when it comes to the creation of the star of the film, what, where they're going. He has a different story for every audience, which is really tough to pin down. But it's funny because Rob, over the history of the projection booth, we've talked about so many creative folks who are basically bald-faced liars. I mean, when it comes right down to it, you never know what the, the real story is. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about Orson Welles. Welles knew how to tell a story. The truth be damned. You know, you provide the pictures, I'll provide the story. Well, you have to remember that what we're dealing with are people who are professional storytellers. At the end of the day, if if we're talking about them on this show, we're talking about their films. They've obviously gotten to a point where they can spin a good yarn, as uh, you know Robert E. Howard would say in the Conan episode. That's what you end up with. I mean, I I also think that people want to go. Well, of course, I knew this was going to be great. I mean, I figured this out years ago. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to sort of downplay their genius. And I put the genius in quotes uh, by saying, yeah, I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. There's some people who who are that nice and honest with you and say, yeah, you know, I wrote this thing and put this thing together. I didn't expect it to do what it did. But there are those who over the years will, I think, buy into their own myth. And that's what you end up with sometimes. I would like to think the best of him that <laughs> um, he's not just, you know making stuff up as he goes along even though that's what we know happened seeing as how he revises everything so much maybe we're we're just every time he says something it it's changed it's just oh well that's what it was but no i remembered this part and i had this and i don't know maybe maybe his whole thing he's just I don't know. I'm trying to defend him, and it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it could partly be ego. I don't think it's sinister. I don't think it's that. No. The one place where Lucas always gets a great you know, thumbs up from me, uh, being the audiophile and the guy who's worked in radio as long as I have, is that when Star Wars came out, he went to the theaters and had them upgrade their sound systems like he was big on that he's like look i made this movie and the sound's really good and you guys got to do this and and i think it was one of the first films if it wasn't this one then it was definitely apocalypse now that they had the dolby system and all of that stuff and was really big in trying to make the sound presentation at the theater even better than it had been at that point so you know all the stuff that he did in terms of sound and sound design and, and sound presentation in theater he gets mad respect from me, and I know people who have mixed their films up at the Skywalker Ranch where you can you know, do all your post-production for your audio for your film, and he'll always uh, go down in history in my book, at least for that, if not for other things that he's done as well. Yeah, I don't think that is necessarily sinister. It's just one of those things, though, if I get as mad as Josh Hadley when it comes to some of this stuff, though. I feel like when I was a kid... I'm there and I'm so hungry for Star Wars stuff. And I'm, you know, like I, I happen to look at a newspaper and I see this blurb thing where it's just like, George Lucas says there's going to be nine Star Wars movies and the only three characters that will be in all nine films are C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And I'm like, well, of course, Chewbacca, he's, you know, 200 years old and the droids are going to be, they're this old and that stuff, knowing the backs of the uh, the cards and everything, the Star Wars cards. So, you know, I, I'm up on my, my ages for these characters. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. 
a few years later, he's just like, I never said that. I said there would be six films. And then people are like, oh, yeah, of course you said there'd be six films. And I just feel like... Have you all got amnesia? He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car! That's not what was said, you know? Just, why are you doing that to me? I'm, I'm, I'm seven, eight years old. I'm very fragile right now. You can't lie to me. Is Mike White going to have to strap down old George Lucas and get out the sledgehammer? Well, regardless of whatever whatever stories he told in the past, we're getting at least nine. So, so there are the the big changes like that. No, I never said nine. I said six. No, I never said this. I said this, and then you know we'll talk a little bit more about the special editions and some of the things that changed. But then there were the things that you know we've already brought up, talking about poor Ben Kenobi being you know cornered now as this complete asshole because of all the things that happened in the movies around him, you know, especially when it comes to Empire and this whole, well, it's true from a certain point of view kind of thing. But then there's other like weird little things that have changed over the years that people don't necessarily pick up on. Like the whole idea that Darth Vader, his name is Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. His title is the Lord of the Sith. So his first name is Darth. There's a point where Obi-Wan's like, you know, only a master of evil, Darth. So this whole idea of now calling every dark Jedi Darth, Darth Sidious, Darth Maul, Darth whoever, Mm. it's just like, come on. No, that was the dude's first name. You know, (laughs) you can't just like make that into a title. So it's just kind of weird, like these little changes there. Maybe it's like George Foreman naming all of his sons George. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to call you Darth, and you're Darth, and you're Darth. (laughs) Well, this goes back to, I can't remember what episode, but we've often had people on the show who are on TV shows. And we talk about the show Bible. And for those who aren't hip, that when you have a series, you have all the characters, and here's sort of what the character does, and how they act, and certain particulars of how they dress and character, and then like the story arc for each character. So basically what you're saying is someone like didn't follow the show Bible or there was no show Bible when this whole thing started. And uh, therefore there's a lot of contradictions and craziness that happens because as you said, um, Lucas didn't plan this out in advance, even though he at times has claimed that he did. There are other things where it's just like now the, the prequels, you know, the continuity of the prequels and the, you know, the original trilogy, they just don't match up. You know, the whole idea of Leia talking about her mother and how she was sad and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you can go through and you can poke holes in this stuff all day long. But I just wanted to say, though, one of the things that I like about Star Wars, the original Star Wars film, when it came out, when I'm watching it as a kid, is that it allowed you to wonder. And it, and it really gave you this whole sense of this is a huge universe that we're playing with you know and you've got stuff going on all over the place and this whole idea of references to backstory that i don't ever want to see i don't ever want to know it just sounds so cool you know you fought with my father in the clone wars wow clone wars what the hell is that and everybody for years and years was just like wow what were these clone wars and everybody's got their theories and all this kind of stuff and then Lucas takes like three movies to explain what the Clone Wars was and a TV show and a movie and all this other stuff. And you're just like, that that was it? That's not cool at all, man. And it's just like, let me have the backstory. Just make references to things I don't necessarily need to see that explained. You know, it's that whole Patton Oswald thing. I don't give a shit 
where the stuff I love comes from. I just love the stuff I love. Now, a film that I obsessed over in high school. This is like if Tarantino told you what was in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction and showed you what was in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It'd be like, oh, that's it. So no matter how it's explained or what he shows you, it's always going to be a letdown. It's better not to show you things. It's better not to explain everything because then you can fill in the gaps yourself. And it allows the audience to interact with the film, which like is, uh, I guess, like good literature. You know, you have to use your, your mind, your imagination. you got to figure it out. I could pick on the prequels all the day long. I mean, literally, this show, if I started talking about prequels like in-depth, we would be here for 20 hours. We don't need that kind of stuff. But I just want to say, when it comes to Jedi's being dumb, you know, we've talked about Kenobi being an asshole. When it goes back to those prequels, and they're talking about this kid who's going to bring balance to the Force, it's like you're in a council room with all good Jedis. So apparently, if there is a pendulum swing of the force it is on the good side Mm -hmm. so if there's going to be somebody bringing balance to the force the kid's going to be evil you got to swing that pendulum the other way to have the balance because the jedi couldn't they couldn't use their power anymore there were too many of them and mace at one point says that their power with the force is diminished that's why they couldn't see the palpatine was sitting right in front of them because they're (laughs) they're all big dummies um but because palpatine was pulling from the dark side he could he could stand out in the open, basically smacking people in the face with his lightsaber hilt, and they wouldn't even know. I heard, I think it was Pablo Hidalgo talked about what the actual prophecy meant, and I'm going to sound like a real pretentious asshole for a second. He was wrong, I think. The, to bring balance to the Force, if there's two Sith, you bring it down to two Jedi, and Anakin balanced the Force. It was it was Ben and Yoda, and then it was Luke and Yoda, and then it was Luke and Leia. There were two. And then Luke fucked it all up at the end, because now it's just Luke and Leia. But to me, when I look at Luke and this whole you know prophecy stuff, as you were talking about with Dune and all that, mm. it's Jesus. He's, yeah. he's blonde hair, blue-eyed kid, of course, which is all the ridiculous depictions of Jesus. American so therefore... Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Your <laughs> European Jesus, put it yeah, that way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we we'll, we'll forget all about that quote that, of course, is used in uh, the movie Malcolm X about Jesus. You know, having hair like wool and feet the color of bronze. Mm. But um, the the whole thing to me is once again borrowing from those mythologies, borrowing from the cultural reference of what we would know, and the idea of you know the Ben Kenobi character being the guy who's training up the the savior in some way. I don't know, maybe he's Moses or something. I don't know. It just it just all of this borrowing from all of these different places, all these little, you know, stories that that we would be able to relate to in some way even if they don't come out and say, "Yeah, of course it's a Jesus stand-in." I guess maybe it'd be kind of a John the Baptist. Right. So let's go ahead and take another break and we're going to play an interview with Chris Taylor, the author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe the past, present, and future of a multi-billion dollar franchise. My name is Chris Taylor. I'm the deputy editor of the website Mashable, and I'm also the author of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. Now, how did the book come about? What was the inception for that? There were really a number of moments where it started. One was when we discovered that one of our features writers at Mashable 
had never seen Star Wars, and we were so aghast that we immediately had to set up a live blog where she would watch the movie and sort of live tweet her reactions to it. And that was not, that did not go as expected. You know, you sort of might expect someone seeing Star Wars for the first time to be all agog and excited and have a little bit of that 1977 vibe. But of course, you can't go back to 1977 again. And that, that's what we discovered, that so much of it was familiar to her. You know, so many of the character names, the, the fact that droids were also the name of a uh, smartphone. And, you know, Darth Vader looked like the kid in the VW commercials at the Super Bowl. You know, she, she, she recognized it. She saw R2-D2 and thought of a uh, Pepsi cooler uh, in in that exact shape, the you know Nato D two Pepsi cooler that she knew at uh, at high school, um, so you know that sort of started me thinking how how deeply embedded in society is Star Wars in a, in our modern Western culture, and can you find anyone who not only hasn't seen it but doesn't know anything about it? So that was one quest I was on, and that's what the opening chapter of the book is all about. And I end up going to a screening of Star Wars in Navajo in uh, Window Rock, Arizona, where the Navajo Nation is. But then the other tangent, the other thread here was the uh, the fact that there just there had been no complete history of the entire franchise from start to finish that really uh, you know takes it from the first inkling in George Lucas's mind to the the sale to Disney. I was quite amazed that nothing like that had been written, and not only you know nothing like that, but also no sort of definitive book on the fandom of star wars and you know things like the five of first legion the guys who dress up as stormtroopers so i really wanted to, to write a book that brought all of these things together the cultural impact of star wars the nature of star wars fandom and the complete history all in one volume and that sounds like a tall order and it really was but um but i, I think i basically pulled it off how old were you when you first saw star wars it was 1982, so I was actually nine. I was a little younger, uh, or older rather, I should say, than the average first-time Star Wars viewer. But I hadn't, you know, we in my in my mining town in the northeast of England, we didn't have a, uh, a cinema growing up. Um, so there weren't very many opportunities to see these movies. My parents weren't big moviegoers. But I still knew of Star Wars. This sort of, you know, goes back to this notion that... Uh, it's so deeply embedded in our culture that you can know about it without even seeing the films. You know, I first encountered it on the back of a cereal box in 1978 when they were promoting the UK launch of the movie. Going forward from that, I collected the comic books. I, uh, I played with the action figures. And by the time it actually showed on British television in 1982, the first time I saw it, you know, I, I felt so familiar with the story that I kind of wondered why they were leaving out certain lines of dialogue that were in the comic book. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, right from the start, I had this transmedia approach and experience of Star Wars. When did you first start working on this book? Really, I have to say it started the day of the, of the Lucasfilm sale to Disney. And it really started with an opinion piece that I wrote for Mashable. And the name of that opinion piece was Star Wars Just Got a New Lease on Life. And uh, the idea being that, you know, which is what it's quite a common idea these days to say, 
you know, don't worry, guys, Disney's got it. You know, look what they they did with Pixar. Look what they did with Marvel. Both of those brands are stronger than ever. And we, we can see now that that's sort of what they've done with Star Wars as well. I think the the almost universal approval that was given to the uh, the first full trailer that was unveiled the other week at Star Wars Celebration sort of give, gives you a sense that, yeah, that this is in the right hands. And it may actually be better hands than... Uh, than the creator himself, than George Lucas, uh, given given the, the uh, prequels. But but at the time, I think there was so much shock at the notion that Star Wars was being sold to Disney that that was it was an unusual opinion. You know, nobody had written it. Everyone was sort of focusing their their ire at, at Disney for being a large media corporation. So this opinion piece was was kind of the first to say, "No, hang on, guys, think about this. You know, think about Disney. Think about what they've done." Uh, they're good stewards for this brand, better stewards, maybe even than George Lucas. That got picked up in a lot of places. It really uh, uh, took off. It was, it was, uh, I think, you know, posted on the official Star Wars Facebook page and StarWars.com, and so it got the official seal of approval. And that's when I started to think, well, hey, maybe, maybe this is a book idea. Maybe, you know, maybe I take this and the the whole thing about. How can you really watch Star Wars for the first time? And you've got a book here. And, you know, luckily my publishers agreed. And that's that's how it happened. So, yeah, I wrote it. I started writing in October 2012. And um, it, uh, it was a couple of years later that, uh, that the book came out. So it's been a wild ride. Was this your first book that you've done? It is, yes. I've, I've uh, pretty much exclusively been a journalist up until now, I started out at Time Magazine, and uh, yeah, just never really, you know, I, I like doing feature stories and I like doing reviews, and never really thought of writing a book length. But I have to say, now I've done it, I'm I'm absolutely hooked, and I'm looking forward to doing the next one. What was your approach when it came to doing the research for this book? I mean, this is a daunting subject, and not only are you doing, you know, the past, present, and future of Star Wars, but then all of the kind of for lack of a better term, side stories, you know, the, the thing that you had mentioned before with the Navajo and Window Rock, Arizona, but then, you know, also the chapter on the 501st and just kind of these breaks in between to kind of show where we're at today and then going back to, you know, all the way back into the, the 50s and 60s with, you know, George Lucas kind of coming up. Yeah, I really just pursued multiple lines of research at once. I mean, and it helps that it's such a fascinating topic. You know, you see some some nonfiction books that have been written on topics as exciting as the U.S. Postal Service, and you think, well, how how did the author manage to maintain their interest in the subject for that long? You've got to be really into the U.S. Postal Service if you're writing about it. It is not hard to be really into Star Wars, and I, d- I did take a lot of time off work. Mashable is very generous about letting me do that, so that helped. But I just I just immersed myself in it. I mean, I, I sort of set out with I think an overly strong work ethic, which was, I, you know, I'm going to read every Star Wars novel there is. Wow. Which was a really unrealistic goal. And, you know, then when I discovered that even some of the top brains at Lucasfilm have not read every single Star Wars novel there is, there, there are just way too many of them. You know, then, then I was like, okay, I'm <laughs> give myself dispensation to just read the summaries just so I have you know, a basic idea of what's going on, and then read a few of the fan-favorite novels. 
But yeah, I just immerse myself in it. I talked to some of the most plugged in people. You know, one of the first things I did was I went and did a Mashable story on uh, Steve Sansweet, the the owner of Rancho Obi-Wan, which for those of you who don't know, Rancho Obi-Wan is the world's largest Star Wars collection. It's been officially certified as such in the Guinness Book of Records. And uh, Steve is is the owner. He's you know, officially the world's biggest Star Wars collector, used to work at Lucasfilm, is still on contract with Lucasfilm. And, you know, he's just a great resource. And you just start to to put it out there. And it was it was really through doing Mashable stories on folks like that that, you know, you start to get plugged into that world and you meet people who suggest other people and you just read voraciously. You read everything that's ever been written about it. Yeah, it really didn't take long before I realized there were a lot of things that just hadn't been talked about. They hadn't been noticed, like the fact that George Lucas keeps changing his story on the the subject of how Star Wars was written, depending on when he's telling it and to whom. I actually talked to J.W. Rinslow, author of Making of Star Wars, the official Lucasfilm book, recently, and he said, you know, that was his experience as well. It's like when, when you talk to George, it depends on what day you're talking to him on, what mood he's in. And he might give you a different take on something, you know, if not an entirely different story. So, you know, I just, I just followed my curiosity. It was, yeah, it was, it was quite an immersive, intense experience. And uh, I do have to thank my wife for sticking with me throughout it, uh, even though she's not a huge Star Wars fan herself. What were some of the biggest surprises that you encountered as you're doing your research? Oh, so many things popped out at me that I was like, you know, I could probably write a whole chapter on that. I mean, to take one example was this whole question of how did David Prowse, Darth Vader, know ahead of time and tell several publications ahead of the release of Empire Strikes Back, ahead even of the writing of Empire Strikes Back, that Darth Vader was Luke's father. That is a mystery that has... I mean, it's even been written about on StarWars.com, but nobody solved it. Nobody tracked it down. So I, you know, was just so fascinated, bordering on obsessed with that question that I had to track uh, David Prowse down to a a fan convention in, in Salt Lake. You know, after numerous requests for an official interview with him were denied, I just stood in his autograph line and presented him with this article which he claimed to have no knowledge of, but sort of later admitted that part of the reason that he got in trouble with Lucasfilm was that he had done too much speculating. So he basically just guessed the big plot reveal. So that was probably the biggest surprise in, in all my research, but there are many, many more that are all contained in the book. It's got to be so difficult to do research on this subject when, A, you've got Lucas telling different stories, mm. and then, B, there's so many different sources as far as you know, magazine articles, mm. radio, all these different things, and you're trying to parse through all of them and come up with as close as you possibly can to the truth. Yes, and there were definitely, I mean, early on in the process, I'd say about the first six months, my writing output was very low. And it was really just about absorbing the information and trying to get my head around everything, trying to read everything that's been written, trying to sort of give different weight to different sources, figure out who knew what, who was likely to know what, who was more trustworthy than others. I have to say that the the official Lucasfilm books, you know, for all the fact that they do things like 
write Marsha Lucas out of the official history. Uh, you know, George's ex-wife, um, who he did not have a, a pleasant divorce with. There's still a treasure trove of information. Um, and they, they lay out, if, if anything, too much, you know, and, and there, are, there are some areas of the book where I'm simply summarizing in a few paragraphs what the making of Star Wars says in, you know, 10 pages. So there's, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of synthesizing information. There's a lot of finding obscure interviews with George Lucas that nobody knows about these days. You know, I definitely bought a ton of old magazines on eBay in, in which he'd uh, had interviews and they'd, they'd been lost. And, you know, that's how I found, for example, the whole story about why he once said that there were going to be 12 Star Wars movies, which you sort of get different stories on that. But according to this to, to this little-known interview, that, that's the one in which George said, oh, there's only ever going to be nine, but you know, then I thought we could do spin-off movies with a, a movie about Wookiees or a movie about droids. So you know, that, that wasn't reflected in the official history. So there's a lot of that and you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of talking to fans. And I, I, I would say that there were, there, were, there were so many days when I just felt this, this is overwhelming. You know, I, I, cannot, I cannot do this. I cannot continue to write this because I'm just, you know, I'm obviously going to be shown up, you know, by some fan or other. Someone's going to point out some nerdy piece of information that, uh, that I missed or I got wrong. But, but I'd say at about the six-month stage, after completely immersing myself in it for so long, I just, I just sort of started to feel like I had a handle on it all. I had it all in my head. You know, I had all the important quotes in front of me. I, did, I distilled it all. And that's a, that's a great position to start writing a book in. What were some of the misconceptions that you had going into this? And maybe some of the things that everyday Star Wars fans or maybe even hardcore Star Wars fans have kind of gotten wrong over the years that you managed to find out what the real story is gosh well yeah so again so many things (laughs) you know and i i feel like it was sort of almost a cliche in the book where i I use the trope of fans thought that it happened this way but what actually happened was this you know you know uncovering the whole story of how the wookiee got his name there have been numerous different versions of that but it actually goes back to a guy named uh, bill wookiee uh, who was a friend of a voice actor that, that George used a lot. And, uh, and George never met this guy, Bill Wookie, but I just happened to, to know his son who plays in a band and introduced me to his dad. And yeah, he was, he was the guy who Wookie is named after. Long story, all contained in the book. Probably the biggest misconception on the fans' part, I would say, is this notion that, uh, that George Lucas often presents, that the original movie was you know, one third of a script that he'd written, right? That, that's how he has presented it for about the last 20 years is that he wrote, you know, Star, the Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy sprang from his head entire and he'd made an, a few notes and the few notes became the prequel trilogy. But, but yeah, Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi just, just sprang from his head and he decided to make the first third and he was like, no matter what, and, you know, he likes to tell that heroic tale of no matter what, I'm going to finish this movie, even if it has to be three movies. Totally not true. Could not be further from the truth. You know, when you look at the original drafts, um, you can see that that's the case. He's, he's constantly changing stuff. He's iterating. And also when you consider the evidence of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, the book by Alan Dean Foster, which was intended to be 
a, a uh, the basis for a low budget sequel of uh, of the original Star Wars. That's and and I think you know there there are many hardcore fans who realize that, that, that George doesn't always you know tell the whole truth or he likes he likes to put a nice storytelling spin on his own story. But at the same time, everything you read about this, it's it's like you know we'll we'll, we'll suggest that this is the basis for what he did, uh, and it's entirely untrue. It seems like George Lucas had a really good base of support when he was going into Star Wars. A lot of really good friends that kind of helped him when it came to this film. Marsha Lucas, of course, William Hayek, Gloria Katz, Francis Ford Coppola. What kind of role do you feel that these folks played when it came to actually helping to craft what we finally came up with in 77? Well, uh, William Hayek and Gloria Katz, you mentioned those guys. They are, I, I would say the unsung heroes of the original Star Wars because they rewrote roughly 30% of the movie. Practically every humorous line of dialogue in the original film, such as let the Wookiee win or, you know, someone get this walking carpet out of my way, you know, that, that came from their typewriter, not, not from George's. So yeah, you know, he was very smart in turning the script over to them. He recognizes that he doesn't write very good dialogue uh, and the fact that they did was was uh, was very helpful. I mean, yeah, he he had this whole brain's trust of people that he'd known from both from USC uh, and from uh, American Zoetrope, his his Coppola connections. To pluck an example out of thin air, Fred Roos, the guy who's now more famous as the producer on Godfather Part Two and uh, the Conversation and many other Coppola films. Was uh, began as a casting director, and even though he wasn't officially the casting director on Star Wars, he made a number of uh, he 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 was just sort of a he was working pro bono, basically, and, and he suggested Carrie Fisher. He he really lobbied hard for her as Princess Leia, even though she missed her first audition uh, because she was in London at the time. You know, he he brought Harrison Ford into George Lucas's orbit again after American Graffiti, um, almost accidentally by having him do this door in the American Zoetrope offices, uh, because, of course, Harrison Ford was a, a carpenter at the time. People have said that that's actually, hey, uh, that was very clever on Fred Roos's part, but he told me something he hadn't told anyone else, um, which is that, yeah, he didn't actually mean to do that. He just needed a door. Uh, and Ford was a good carpenter. So, you know, uh, but a lucky, lucky accident, like a lot of Star Wars things. And, of course, Fred Roos was the one who also lobbied hard for James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader over Luke's objections that it might look a, a, a racial, it might be a racial problem to use the only black guy in the film as the voice of the villain. But Roos was like, no, forget about it, James Earl Jones. He's just the best voice actor that there is for this role. So, you know, forget about race. So, you know, that that's just one small example of how it was really the people around Lucas advising him, pushing him in one direction or another. And the fact that he was able to take this advice, which he wasn't necessarily able to do later in his career, uh, was a big part of the success of the original film. You talked about those ad- auditions. I don't know if this is one of my own misconceptions, but I've always kind of thought that with the audition process that Brian De Palma's really involved with that. Yes, that is true. He and George basically teamed up and uh, cast the movie Carrie, 
which was, of course, the, the big breakout movie for Brian De Palma and Star Wars at the same time. They basically did casting sessions for both. So Brian De Palma was much more of a uh, talkative, involved, you know, tells you exactly what he thinks kind of director. And George Lucas, who was extremely reticent, just sat there and saw actor after actor. So he was very involved. And then, of course, the other contribution of Brian De Palma was to rewrite the, the opening crawl, um, the words that, that, the, uh, that roll up the screen at the start of the film, uh, which were much more kind of, you know, wordy and, and hard to read sentences before De Palma got his hands on them. He's, he's, he's a big figure in the history of Star Wars, even though he really didn't like the movie when he first saw it. One of the other really surprising things for me, well, I knew that it was there, but it always hits home when I read about it, is the support or lack of support from 20th Century Fox when it came to the film itself. Just that it was such an afterthought, one of a slate of 26 films. Mm. We're going to dump this in theaters. It's going to be so unsupported by the theater owners. Just such an amazing tale that... Everything just turns around so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Alan Ladd Jr. was was always the champion of it. I mean, you know, a champion up to a certain point. It wasn't like he, he could get it any more budget than the eight million or eight point five million. I think was what it was assigned, which was lower than the average studio comedy at the time, but still a fairly substantial chunk of money. You know, he just he believed in George and. There is, there is a misconception that Lucas keeps pushing that Laddie, as he's known, did not understand the script of Star Wars when, when Lucas gave it to him. But what Laddie told me was that he, no, he understood it perfectly because George very cleverly described it to him in terms of old Hollywood movies. He would say, okay, and then this scene, it's a bit like Captain Blood, or this scene is like the Three Musketeers. You know, so he was he was very clever using this guy who was basically Hollywood royalty and and talking to him in, in terms of Hollywood and not really using the word Splash Gordon, which is what Star Wars was really based on. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about the support group that Lucas had going into Star Wars. Did he have that same support when it came to the prequels? Uh, he didn't, and that's sort of it's it's a very interesting situation that you find people in quite often that, you know, if they're told for 20 years that they're geniuses and the people who say no to you sort of drop away by attrition uh, over time, then all you're left with is, is yes, man. And, and maybe that's not necessarily what you wanted. Maybe you're still, you still think that you're just hiring competent artists and producers and so on. But, you know, Rick McCallum, who was the producer for the prequels set, has said it quite explicitly time and again that his role was to was to make everything that George wanted happen and you know whereas Gary Kurtz who was the producer on Star Wars was very much a man who would push back and offer advice and say well maybe we should do this instead and have you thought about this and maybe we should reduce the amount of terminology that we use around the force because you know it just needs to be this basic religion but yeah, but McCallum was 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 not um, of that mindset, and he would just he was just the guy who moved heaven and earth to make uh, George's wishes happen. I have to say that after the prequels, McCallum was certainly a little more wary of doing whatever George wanted and pushed hard to keep Jar Jar Binks out of the 
Star Wars TV show that never happened. So he did, maybe he did learn his lesson there. But yeah, you know, this is the problem when, um, you know, Mark Hamill said of, of Lucas in about 2005, he said now he's so exalted that no one tells him everything. And he's surrounded by, I mean, uh, Georgia said that, you know, my kids call me garbage, my employees call me God. You know, at Lucasfilm, he was surrounded by people who were brought up on the original trilogy. And I mean, my God, can you imagine going to work for your childhood icon? How could you, how could you possibly talk back to her? We talked a little bit about Marsha Lucas. What do you think that she kind of brought to the party? Well, Marsha was, was revered and renowned as, as one of the best editors in Hollywood. And uh, she was, even though Lucas described himself as super editor, that was one of his uh, personal nicknames, uh, she was probably the better editor right from the beginning of their relationship. And she was certainly the one who stuck with it as a career. So she edited many, many things in the, in the original movie, was the on, became the only Lucas to have won an Academy Award for, for an actual movie in the process, since George never won one, uh, except a sort of a lifetime honorary uh, Academy Award. But, but yeah, she, she got her Oscar, and it was really well-deserved. She probably edited uh, nearly all of the, the Death Star uh, trench sequences, the attack on the Death Star, which is such a difficult needle to thread. You need that tension to be constantly ramped up. And that's what she was very good at, ramping up tension. <clears throat> we also know that she was responsible for keeping a number of things in the movie that Lucas wanted to cut. He, he wanted to cut out the, um, the little kiss for luck, the Princess Leia kissing Luke for luck before they swing across that bridge. And the, the, the little mouse droid, you remember that creature who, who gets growled at by Chewbacca? You know, Lucas didn't like either of those scenes because audiences were laughing at them, and he was a little sensitive about that. But Marsha had to explain to him, "No, look, this this is why you should keep them in." But yeah, she stuck with him throughout the original trilogy, even though they were divorcing as uh, Return of the Jedi was in production, and uh, entered the the scene where Yoda dies in Return of the Jedi, which is just this this beautiful, slow, emotionally moving uh, sequence. But she, she would do that. She would come in and say, you know, look, you don't have enough emotion in the scene or you've, you've forgotten about this character. I mean, it's not Star Wars, but the, uh, you know, the, the scene at the very end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where, you know, Indiana Jones comes out of the warehouse that the, that the Ark has been stored in and there's Marion waiting on the steps for him. That was because Marsha Lucas had pointed out, hey, where did Marion go? The romantic lead of the movie just seems to have vanished, and, and neither Lucas or Spielberg had noticed that. So she was great at, at zeroing in on these things and uh, was, was definitely a real loss to Lucasfilm when they divorced. I swear, listening to some of these things, like the way that Lucas is handling the or not handling the auditions mm. and uh, missing the emotional core of some of these things, it almost feels like he's you know somewhere on the Asperger's <laughs> um, timeline or whatever. Well, it's interesting because he does, you know, I, I sort of, I spent a lot of the book trying to pick apart the mystery of, of who is he and what is his personality. And he's definitely a uh, more of an introvert. And yet he spent the vast majority of his career talking to people, which is really odd. So he's, a, he's an extroverted introvert, but he, but he likes to be alone, but he also likes to be running the show. I, I sort of think his ideal situation is when he's got a writer's room 
as he did for uh, the, the Clone Wars, the Star Wars show on the Cartoon Network, you know, where he'd come in a couple of weeks and sort of shoot the breeze with, with the writers and throw out ideas. He, he was always the ideas guy. He's great at generating ideas on the fly. Um, you know, real back of the napkin stuff, uh, as Dave Filoni, the producer of the Clone Wars says. Um, so he's, yeah, you know, he, he's got that spark of creativity and he, he does like to see stuff through, you know, and he's, he can be fairly funny, but you know, I, I always go back to the, uh, the two word description that a, a former Lucasfilm employee gave me on him. She was like, if, if you want to understand George, here are two words, geek dad, basically what he is. Are you a fan of the prequels? More so than when I started this book. Uh, <laughs> I can appreciate them more. I mean, I, I have this whole chapter called How I Stop Worrying and Learn to Love the Prequels. And that sort of takes you through the five stages of prequel grief. And, uh, you know, how, how do you deal with these movies that on a certain level are just really bad? You know, the dialogue is really bad. But, you know, if you look at what Lucas said about that, he knows that the dialogue is bad, bad and he's, he's compared it to a jazz symphony or a silent movie. So he doesn't think you should even be listening to the dialogue. He just wants you to watch the pretty visuals. Um, so that's one way to approach it. I mean, there, there are all these strategies for how you can incorporate the prequels in your life. I have to say that the one thing I've watched recently that just had me in tears and kind of redeemed the prequels in a lot of ways. Uh, if you search on YouTube for Jedi Party, uh, there, there are three Jedi Party uh, videos, and uh, each one relates to one of the prequels. And it's just sort of this hilarious comedic retelling, uh, a re-editing of, of each of those original movies, in which 3PO turns out to be the villain. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderful use of uh, editing and overdubbing. So I definitely recommend checking that out. But yeah, you know, I, I would would I watch Attack of the Clones again if if I didn't have to for for a Star Wars related story? Probably not. Uh, that, is, that is definitely the weakest one. And, but you know, I, I I remain in touch with them. You know, I definitely respect people who like them. I've discovered in the course of writing this book that there are way more prequel fans than we know about because they they're just sort of very quiet about the fact that they enjoy it. But yeah, I think the more that you know about it, the more you read the uh, the other media that goes along in it. Like, you know, Revenge of the Sith was totally redeemed for me by reading the novelization, which is widely regarded as one of the best Star Wars books ever written by uh, an author named Matthew Stover. And uh, he's, you know, he's a great writer. And because he's he goes inside the heads of the characters you know, suddenly you understand Anakin's motivation a lot more, and that really enhances the film. So I cannot now watch Revenge of the Sith without thinking of this book. There are, there are definitely ways to do it, but I think fundamentally people just need to understand that this is what George Lucas's original vision for Star Wars was, was much more like the prequels. You know, he wanted this the original movie to be just so stuffed with aliens and spaceships that you're almost you know you've almost got add when you walk out of the theater but he couldn't do it because he didn't have the budget but you know the prequels was what he was aiming at all along yeah it, it reminds me of when i wrote about um the kingdom of, of the crystal skull and i'd read all the screenplays that were kind of going up into 
King of the Crystal Skull. And when I came out of the theater, I was like, well, that was better than it could have been because I had (laughs) seen all the bad versions, not saying that Kingdom was great, but it was definitely better than, you know, the magical peaches that bring you back to life with the monkey gods and all this kind of stuff. So there, there it is, George with his ideas. Sometimes they're good, and then sometimes they're nuking the fridge. But yeah, no, it's it's interesting. With Phantom Menace, I had the opposite experience. So when you look at the first draft of that film, you see what could have been a really good movie, you know, in which Jar Jar Binks is this kind of wise old alien uh, who speaks in proper English sentences. And Anakin is this really scary, spooky little kid who is who really is the best pilot in the galaxy because he's somehow able to get the ship past the blockade and when when no other pilot can do it you know so it's really it's much more about showing not telling but yeah it's a great shame that that original script was was rewritten in in the more goofy way that it ended up so the book's been out for about what eight months now. Came out September last year. What's been the reaction? Very positive. It's it's doing very well. It's you know it's got tons of great reviews. Uh, it is actually about to be published in the UK on May the fourth, of course. You know this is a special UK edition that I, I wrote an extra epilogue for because of course now we have much more information on on episode seven, Force Awakens. And yeah, it's also going to be published in in uh, Japan and Taiwan and Brazil and Germany, Italy, I think. And, you know, stay tuned for, for other countries, but those are the ones we have so far. So it's a pretty good reception. So do you think that maybe in 10, 15 years, you'll kind of go back in and change some things, take any kind of like stuff that people really liked and just kind of like cut those out, maybe add in some <laughs> other stuff? Do a special edition of the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I thought I thought of that because, you know, I do want to revise and update the book for its paperback edition, uh, which will be coming out at the end of this year. And you know, I thought I maybe I'll tease the fans by calling this the special edition of How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. But you know, I, I wouldn't do that to people. There's there's way too much, way too many people for whom that's that's still too real. There will definitely be more information. This is a book that will grow over time. I'm sure there'll be an update after we've seen The Force Awakens. The, you know, I can write a new chapter about that after we've seen Rogue One, which is the 2016 Star Wars movie. You know, maybe another chapter about that. So I'd, I definitely see it as something I'll, I'll constantly keep updating. It's, it's something I, I think that uh, readers should, you know, if, if you want to read both the uh, print edition and the Kindle edition, you know, the Kindle edition will, of course, push these updates out to you, so you'll get the always have the latest version. Chris, you could live off the residuals of this for years. <laughs> you know, publishing doesn't pay what it used. <laughs> always good. You know, even even Walter Isaacson has a day job. It, he was he was very kind to give me advice on that. He was like, always have a day job. Don't you know? Don't even think that you can ever make money just out of out of the books. It's not going to happen. Yeah, especially nonfiction books about, albeit one of the most popular movies ever made, yeah. but still. <laughs> yeah, even that is, uh, yeah, does not pay what it used to. So is it too early to ask what you're thinking about working on next? I, you know, the, there are a number of things that, that, I, uh, that I think you're doing next. that They all revolve around the future and, and concepts of utopia and dystopia. 
and rather recently I've I've looked into been looking into something that could be a good hook for this. Do you remember the song in the year twenty five twenty five? Oh yeah. So I was I was listening to that recently. I I didn't appreciate a number of things about that song. One is it was the biggest hit of nineteen sixty nine. It was the number one song when we were on the moon, when man went to the moon for the first time. It was this sort of really kind of dystopian, anxious song about the next 10,000 years. Uh, it's not, not the sort of, you know, happy, sunny uh, optimism that we kind of remember from the Apollo missions. But the other thing I realized about that song is that it never actually tells you what happens in the year 2525. It tells you about every other year. <laughs> but it doesn't tell you what, what man and woman may find in the year 2525. So I think that might be an interesting hook to get into what I really want to discuss, which is the way that the future has been represented in popular media over the last century or so, and, and how that has sort of shifted over time to be much more dystopian, much more Hunger Gamers-esque, and that's something that really happened after Star Wars is suddenly suddenly movies got a lot more dystopian, which is odd, really, given that George Lucas started his film career with a dystopian movie, THX 1138. And then he, he does this sort of great, you know, what you might term a utopian work or at least a sort of fantasy escapist work. And suddenly everyone else is start, starts copying the dystopian work that didn't actually do that well at the box office. It's really weird. You know, suddenly you have the Blade Runners and the Mad Maxes and the Robocops. And suddenly the future has gone to hell. That's my next topic. I love THX 1138. I just, so, it's just so bizarre to me. It's, it just works so well. It's an underrated movie, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's possibly because it's such a huge bummer. I mean, for George, it was a very positive movie because THX escapes at the end although we don't know what he escapes into. Um, but the fact that he gets out of his cage is, you know, was in Lucas's mind a very positive development. Um, I guess he missed the fact that, you know, THX loses the love of his life along the way, that she's just sort of killed off screen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, her name reassigned to a test tube baby. Uh, you know, stuff like that is really depressing, but, you know, he, he looks at it differently. The shot of him coming up with the sun and everything... Mm. When I just re- recently went back and rewatched Logan's Run, I'm just like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yep. This is when they come out of the dome and they have that sun scene. I was like, well, this seems kind of familiar to me. I mean, it also reminded me a lot of of Ken Russell's Tommy. Yes, with, you know, but uh, there were definitely some similarities to me between all of them. Yeah, interesting. And, and every time THX one one three eight has been described in a book, they say that that's a sunrise at the end of the film, that he emerges into this glorious sunrise. No, that sun is setting. <laughs> that sun is going down. So, you know, even though the music is positive at that point, he's actually emerging into a sunset. So, yeah. But yeah, there are definitely echoes from that film and, and Logan's run. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that was one of the last science fiction films to come out before Star Wars. And, um, and you know, the last one in which you could feasibly have people dressed in silver jumpsuits and, and it not look ridiculous. And I love that merch had so much to do with THX. And then oh, yeah. just, again, it feels like his stamp is so much on Star Wars. What, what was his, his apprentice who had worked on Star Wars? Uh, ben Burt, yeah. I, I don't think he was merch's apprentice directly, but I 
believe that he recommended him or he recommended the USC teacher who recommended him. There, there is a connecting thread there. Just the the way that the sound is when they're passing through the magnetic field into the um, the Death Star. Yes. It's just like, wow, this so reminds me of THX and what we're going to hear with you know uh, Apocalypse Now and just that kind of Murchian soundscape. Yeah, THX is... is it's hard to watch, but it's even harder to listen to. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a brilliant soundscape that Merch creates, but my goodness, is it alienating? You know, which is kind of the idea. Well, Chris, I could talk to you for hours about Star Wars. This has been terrific. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome, and uh, it was it was great to talk to you, Mike. And I look forward to hearing the show. Yeah, I will send you a link when it goes live. We're trying to do it right around uh, the 22nd for the big anniversary. So, uh, Indeed, yes. The, the real Star Wars Day, May 25th. I'm not a big fan of May the 4th, just because it sounds like you have a speech impediment. And it actually all goes back to Margaret Thatcher. You know, something else that people don't really know. Yeah, yeah. The, the first use of May the 4th Be With You was actually just after Thatcher uh, won the election in 1979. Uh, while they were filming uh, Empire Strikes Back. And and someone took out a full-page ad in a London paper and just said, congratulations, Maggie, may the fourth be with you. Ah. That's that's the date it was when she won. So, you know, so I'm sort of, you know, hesitant to uh, to uh, celebrate it because of that connection as well. <laughs> I was so reviled when I was growing up that uh, yeah, got bad memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like Thatcher was to you as Reagan was to me. Pretty much. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, if woman can survive, they may fall. All right, we're back. Thanks to Chris Taylor. You know, I could talk Star Wars with that guy all freaking day, and he brought up so many good points. Um, I was really glad, again, that he kind of even gave more clarification as to the role that some of the folks that were around Lucas played with the making of the original film. And some of the things that he touches on in his book are the Star Wars ripoffs, the ripoff films that would come out afterwards. And, you know, he talks a lot about Battlestar Galactica and some of the lawsuits that were surrounding that and all this stuff. But I always found those Star Wars ripoff films to be fascinating things stuff like Humanoid with Richard Keel. And some people count Star Crash. I don't necessarily count Star Crash. I probably should, but there are more blatant ones out there. Joe Spinell definitely is doing a Darth Vader kind of thing and all that. But yeah, there's worse ones out there. The things like Sex Wars and uh, gosh, just so many. And I, I wrote an article once about the the films that came out after Star Wars, and I'm sure that I missed a ton. But even like God, like there was a Brazilian comedy group that made a Star Wars ripoff film where they it was like all taking place in a disco and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was just amazing, amazing stuff. And again, it's that, that void I was talking about where you had Star Wars, everybody wants to cash in on it, and then as a kid, you're just like, oh my god, I want to have this stuff. I want to see anything that looks like Star Wars. So there I am, maybe eight, nine years old, and my grandmother from Ohio 
knows I'm this big Star Wars fan, right? So I get this, uh, it was either birthday or, or Christmas package from her. And he, yeah, kid's really into Star Wars. So here you go. Here's a space 1999 blanket <laughs> and black hole sheets. I wish that I had both of those today. Yeah. But man, when I was a kid, boy, was I disappointed. Well, here's two that I was thinking about. One I remember watching as a kid and the other vaguely remember. But um, when I was a kid, I used to watch uh, Buck Rogers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The, the TV show. And mm-hmm. the other was the original incarnation of Battlestar Galactica with Ernest yep. Borgnine. And to me, when I look at that, just even the stills and what I remember of it, that incarnation of Battlestar Galactica was a total Star Wars ripoff. Borgnine was in that? I think he was, from what I remember. See, and maybe it's false memory syndrome or something. I don't know. But I just remember that version of Battlestar Galactica that was on TV in the early 80s. It looked like Star Wars at times. Now, I know Borgnine was in Black Hole. And I know Lauren Green was in Battlestar Galactica. That's who I'm getting confused with. Lauren Green, okay. Yeah. No worries. It wouldn't surprise me if Borg 9 showed up. In a- he was everywhere in yeah. the 1970s. Yeah. And beyond. The reason why Battlestar looks so much like Star Wars is Ron Cobb doing yeah. the, the ship design work, who worked on Star Wars for people unlike me who know the guy by name. And I was like five years old when that was on TV. And even I knew that it was a star Wars ripoff by looking oh, at it. Right. So, and I'm, I'm watching episodes since, and it's been like 30 something years. Well, then you get that other tie in between star Wars and Battlestar Galactica. You got that kid who shoots one of the rockets from one of the Battlestar Galactica ships into his mouth, chokes on the thing and dies, or maybe doesn't die, but that's the, you know, the pop rocks and Coke kind of story of it. And then immediately they stop production on the Boba Fett missile launchers. And it's just like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, I had one of those, like, yes, I sent away Mm -hmm. for the, for the, Boba Fett via the mail. The one that I got did not have that rocket launcher in operation. And I still, every week I would go over to Kmart and have my, I think it was like a dollar eighty-eight or something. I knew to the penny with tax and everything how much a Star Wars figure was. And I I bought another Boba Fett and they had the sticker on the back of like to cover up where the instructions were to shoot that missile launcher. Yeah. And I'm just as a what nine ten year old kid i'm just like that stupid fucking kid i can't believe (laughs) for everyone well the only thing that i remember i mean i had a couple of star wars toys when i was a kid but i do remember the three cpo cereal i think my mom bought that for me once now it's here the excitement the adventure of a new force at breakfast we'll call them c3po's new c3po cereal from kellogg's twin rings hangs together for two crunches and every double o a delicious part of this nutritious breakfast now you can experience the taste of kellogg's c3po a crunchy new force at breakfast may the force be with you When I was a kid, this is one of those, like, 
really, you know, using this show as a soapbox, and I apologize to everyone, especially you two guys. But when I'm a kid, do you guys remember when you would see those commercials on TV and it would be like Spider-Man appearing at the Toys R Us on this time and this date kind of thing? And it was just like, oh, my God, I got to go over and I got to meet Spider-Man kind of thing. Well, for me, it was Darth Vader. Darth Vader is coming to Hudson's or JCPenney. And I was just like, oh, my God, I we have to go meet Darth Vader. This is going to be amazing. I remember going over and this talk about false memory kind of thing. This might be a completely false memory going over to Hudson's or JC Penny. I think it was JC Penny, huge line of kids going up and down like the main aisle and Darth Vader basically just walks through the store. And that was about it. Like it wasn't like get your picture taken with Darth oh. or anything. He walks through, and he's shaking hands and all this kind of stuff. And I swear to Christ, you know, as he's shaking hands, he comes over and he says to me, the force is strong with this one. I swear I passed out. (laughs) I think that's the one time that I fainted. It's it's the Mike White version of Beatlemania. We just oh had my it god, right yes, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I was like Nancy Allen having an orgasm right there watching the Beatles. Yeah, it was just amazing. <laughs> the only thing that comes close to it for me was this one video store had RoboCop. Oh wow! And wow. this I think was when uh, RoboCop two came out on VHS and it was a guy in a really shitty RoboCop outfit and they were taking Polaroids and I had that Polaroid for a while. I was impressed when I was 12 or 10. (laughs) I think I was 10. I looked at it later. I go, this is, this is like the worst RoboCop outfit I've ever seen. I had, uh, I got the 501st, uh, at the theater. I was at to do some fundraising. uh, Oh, nice. Clones came out and I'm like, 36 38 so i don't i don't remember how in my 30s and i knock on the door to the staff room with where they're all getting dressed and full armor helmet everything boba fett opens the door and he's like yeah i'm like (gasps) (laughs) i froze i'm an adult and i'm like i'm still i I know because i met the guy before but he's wearing the suit and it's it's you know screen accurate and it's and i'm just like ah Oh, we're almost ready. <laughs> and I walked away and everybody laughed at me. I'm like, you guys were intimidated too. He was like, a, he was like eight inches shorter than me. Well, short for a Mandalorian. Well, I'm tall for a Wookiee, but it was just it, to see it right there in front of you is just, it doesn't matter what age you are. If that's your favorite thing, it it just oh, <laughs> gave me chills. <laughs> So I'm so into Star Wars as a kid, right? I mean, just like anything Star Wars, I got to know about this. Oh, gosh, 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 right? I'm out and I'm playing. I got these neighbors that the the couple of houses down the Pengali family, and we would play Star Wars all the time, you know, and we've got all the figures and all this kind of stuff. And one day, like a Saturday, they come up and they're like, oh, yeah, we saw the new Star Wars film. And I'm just like, what? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. You know, they've got this little green guy named Yoda and all this kind of stuff. Somehow, I guess because I was playing outside all the time as a kid, which is crazy. (laughs) How dare you? I had no idea that there was another Star Wars film. Me, as a seven-year-old, I didn't know. I had no idea. I ran into the house, and I'm just like, Mom and Dad, the Pengali say there's another Star Wars film. We have to go. We have to go see it now. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea that Empire came out. 
Uh, and since then, Mike has never left the house, so he's no. never gone outside again because he missed that information. He was like like the kids who missed the assassination of Oswald on TV, and they never turned off the TV again from our parents' generation. So that's that's why the old folks constantly have TV on. They're like, hey, somebody might get killed live on TV, and I don't want to miss it. I got a little bit more media savvy as the years went on. Did you guys remember on TV – I do because I was only a little kid, and I remember Channel 20 in Detroit uh, would get all scrambled and weird, kind of like if you were trying to steal cable and we couldn't afford the box or whatever you had to do in order to unscramble it. So I just remember like looking at this thing and going, what happened to Channel 20? It's all messed up. Chris, do you remember on TV? No, but if you talk about it, I may. Welcome, Chicagoland, to the premiere night of On TV. This revolution in Chicago broadcasting is bringing subscribing Chicagoans the very best in first-run movies, top-flight entertainment specials, and premiere sporting events. Tonight's star-studded lineup includes Bo Derek, Dudley Moore, and Julie Andrews in 10. Sally Field in her Academy Award-winning performance as Norma Ray, And Paul Newman in Slapshot. This is just a sample of the entertainment on TV we'll be bringing you night after night throughout the year. So settle back, Chicago, and get ready to enjoy your opening night, where the best in entertainment is on TV. So on TV, for you and for any of our listeners that may not know, it was like an early version of cable, and it, but it was broadcast. So you would have like your regular antenna and then you would have this special little golden antenna that you could put up there. And that was specifically there to get on TV. And yeah, I think there was like a discrambler box somehow with this whole thing. So I don't think it was every night, but I know it was definitely a night or maybe a few nights a week, different channels, depending on what market you were in, they would dedicate uh, a few hours of programming to on TV. And it was basically like, Hey, you're watching WXON channel 20 and now it's on TV. And then they would, yeah, it looked like when you're trying to watch the, the playboy channel when you're a kid and it's all squiggly and all this kind of stuff. And it's not first run movies, but it's, you know, movies that are, are ready to be out there now. And 1982, 83, something like that. I get the on TV guide because they would send out this little flimsy guide every month. And it was like, you know, kind of like that HBO guide that you find when you're in hotel rooms now. Little guide. And it's just like, we are playing Star Wars on this particular date. And it's going to be an extra 50 bucks to be able to see Star Wars. And you better believe I flipped the fuck out, man. I'm just like, oh my God, because I hadn't seen it in years, you know, like you could see it at the theater and that's it. The whole idea of being able to sit in your house and watch a movie and watch Star Wars, you got to be kidding me. So I went out, man, and I'm like door to door to all my friends. I'm just like, you got to cough up 10 bucks. My folks are not going to pay for this. And they told me they weren't going to pay for it. And now when I think back, I'm just like... 50 bucks, that's so paltry. 50 bucks in 1982, 83, probably a lot more. It was about $20,000, actually. $20,000? So, yeah, so it was they expensive. They couldn't mortgage the house. Yeah. 
But instead, I'm going door to door, you know, hey, Keith Brown, hey, Steve Pengali, you know, everybody cough up 10 bucks, and we get together the $50 and pay for Star Wars. And then, you know, again, before we had a VCR, so it's just like you get that one night and that's it. And talk about a special night. I was just like, oh, my God, and being able to see Star Wars on TV. Years later, we get cable and Star Wars starts making the rounds. And I think I watched it every time that it was on cable yeah i remember when it hit hbo i had everybody over and i (laughs) watched it every single time yeah i was getting up into the triple digits with this stuff and (laughs) like after about the 300th time i'm just like i gotta quit counting because this is just too crazy that i'm counting you guys might know this i mean that was 82 83 when did star wars come out of vhs because i would want to believe that you know that like we talked about on one of the previous episodes during this month, um, Nothing Lasts Forever episode, that came out and, you know, they put that together in 84. And I was kind of shocked that they hadn't figured out, yeah, VHS is the big thing. I mean, tapes are $100 a piece and we need rental products. So, I mean, I'm amazed that by 82, 83, Lucas and them hadn't figured out or 20th Century Fox hadn't figured out, which is funny because they were the first ones to license film to magnetic video. Which was the first, you know, the first what, what ten or twenty titles out of their library to go out for, you know, sale for VHS in the late seventies that they hadn't figured out to put out Star Wars yet by that time. Well, I remember going to Brothers Jewelry on Fourth Street, and when we got our first VCR, and they had Star Wars. I don't think it was Laserdisc, but it was like Laserdisc. It was like that same uh, size. Yeah, it was that. Um, it was the the precursor of Laserdisc. It's actually an LP record that uh, comes in that plastic sleeve. I, I know what you're talking about. I've seen them before because we used to see them at Thomas Video from time to time. Yeah, that thing that thing didn't work. It was uh, terrible. It used to skip and uh, do all kinds of different things. But yeah, I, I, I think I think you're right. I think Fox had an exclusive with that video disc or whatever precursor to Laser. So according to episode nothing.blogspot.com. Star Wars was out on VHS, Beta, and Laserdisc, though Laserdisc is in question whether that that's the true format or the thing that you and I were just talking about, in 1982. I don't have a date, but in 1982 it says that it was there. I don't know whether to believe these guys or not. DiscoVision. So. Now, are you talking about the Miko Star Wars and other Galactic Funk version? <laughs> Select Division. Uh, that's right. Select Division. Select Division. That's- totally familiar select division yes this was the precursor to the the laser and all of that stuff Uh, it was called the ced analog video disc playback system created by rca yeah it had a high density groove similar to a phonograph record and it came in a plastic slip case that uh, when you put it into the player it would come out and it was actually i believe read by a needle yes it actually was read by a stylus instead of a laser like uh laser discs and dvds so that's why it was a pain in the ass because if it got out of the groove it would skip or you know it would wear out because it was actually physical objects rubbing up against each other like videotape as well I got to the point when it came to Star Wars being on cable and stuff. Star Wars is, what, two hours and one minute, something like that. I got to the point where it was just like when I'm sitting in school as a, I don't know, sixth grader or something, I'm just like, I could be watching Star Wars three times today. 
<laughs> oh, I would measure my life in two-hour increments. <laughs> How many times could I watch Star Wars in this? This whole idea of the eight-hour workday, I could watch Star Wars four times today. You know, I have to say that if you're doing that, then there, you really need to go into recovery. Like, to me, that sounds like someone who's got a drug problem or a drinking problem. Like, hi, my name's Mike, and I'm a Star Wars fan. That sounds like that it has taken over your life at a certain point. It did. It did. It literally took over my life when I was a kid. Now it hasn't, but there was a while there where it was touch and go. And we'll talk about when that uh, moment of recovery came as we go along here. But first, let's take another break and play an interview with Roger Christian, Academy Award-winning set designer of Star Wars Episode Four: New Hope. I like how you rushed through Episode Four: New Hope. I don't call it Episode Four: New Hope. (laughs) Get Star Wars posters at Burger Chef. That's right. Four posters featuring the stars of Star Wars are at Burger Chef. We'd like a Star Wars poster, please. It's our lucky day. It's us. Just buy a large serving of Coca-Cola for 49 cents at participating Burger Chefs, and a Star Wars poster is yours to control. There are four spectacular full-color Star Wars posters in all. So start your collection today. Artu, I think we'd better leave. Star Wars posters, only at Burger Chef, while supplies last. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download A Scanner Darkly by Philip K. Dick or another book of your choice for free by trying audible.com and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10... Free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. 
If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday. Where were you in your career about the time you got the call to be on Star Wars? I was really a set decorator. Been doing quite a few films. I I designed a film called Aikenfield, which was Peter Hall. So Peter Hall did in Suffolk, and I'd done other bits and pieces. I was directing theatre as well. Any time I could make money off a film, I use the money and go and commission a play and we put it on. Kind of looking for really interesting things to do. <laughs> so Destiny struck with Star Wars. That path leading to that was, I'd worked a lot, Les Dilly was an art director and he and I worked in tandem a lot. We'd done some really interesting films with a designer called Philip Harrison and I always did the visual side as did the construction side. We made a um, quite crazy film called The Final Conflict with Bob Fust. And Philip was one of the younger designers who'd come out of the BBC, so he didn't slog through the whole route like as normal in the industry. He'd come out being a designer very young. Les was out in Mexico with John Barry doing Lucky Lady and Norman Reynolds. And this film had 52 bites boats fighting at sea. It was rum running in the 20s and Stanley Donan was directing it. It just was getting bigger and bigger, this film, huge. So there were only three of them in the art department, so they needed an extra person and to look at a lot of the dressing and stuff. So Les suggested me and um, that was the call that sent me to Mexico and that's where we met George. What was he doing down in Mexico? Uh, He'd written Star Wars. 20th Century Fox had told him they estimated the film would make $12 million. So they divided the amount of their sales estimates by three. So they told him, and this was Alan Ladd supporting him, if he could make the film for $4 million, then uh, they could uh, let him make it. And Gloria Mullard Hike wrote Lucky Lady, and they were friends of George's. They were in the same area, and they'd done some of the dialogue work and bits of character stuff for George on Star Wars. They'd helped out. And we were doing very dusty, amazing sets, kind of dusty and used-looking. You know, it was rum-running in the 20s, and we were in Mexico. And they'd heard, George, that it was half the cost in Britain to make films at that point because the dollar exchange and all these things and it was cheaper there so the budget had come in at eight so Fox in London said no we can make the film for four and basically because of that Gloria Willard says you've got to come down and meet this designer John Barry and the set decorator Roger because they're doing what you want what you keep talking about new sets and um, kind of a western like approach so George and Gary flew down I was dressing a salt factory, an old ancient building we constructed and made to look very old, paint peeling and I was spreading salt with my crew and 
George arrives in a like students really as well with plaid shirt and tennis shoes and Gary Kurtz and a cowboy hat. George was fascinated by the age look of what I was doing and my conversation with him when he said he wanted to do a science fiction film was all about it being used, a proper universe and uh, old oily spaceships. And that of course was music to his ears, that's what he needed. And so we had dinner that night with John Barry, me, um, Les was down on location so he couldn't go. Jeffrey Unsworth, the wonderful DP who was doing Lucky Lady, he was contracted to do it. And we heard when I left Mexico and went back to Los Angeles, we had a, a auspicious lunch with John Barry in Alice's restaurant and he said, They've offered you the film, so you just have to be back in April, in August in London. We don't have a lot of money, but we're going to make it work. You worked both in London and a lot in Tunisia, correct? Yeah, Tunisia, and most of the filming was in Leeds, sorry, in uh, EMI Studios. They were then ABP Studios, but they became EMI Studios. Tunisia was chosen because... It was politically much more stable than Morocco at the time in the south. There were sand dunes in the south that were usable with no scrub on them. They had a basic film crews down there because a lot of French films shot there. Zeffirelli had shot there. I mean, different people. So Tunisia was chosen because it had the exact locations. that, And it was chosen. John Barry had designed Little Prince there. So he knew a lot of the strange, beautiful locations that... When he showed George, realized his vision could work there. What kind of stuff did you shoot on location versus shooting back in England? Well, the first day of shooting, we, we built the sand crawler, full-size, whole-size, that amazing set. In fact, it's in, the, in my book. It's coming out now very soon. That was built pretty huge. Obviously, truck moving shots were a model shot. ILM did as models, but that was built. And in fact, the uh, we're right near the Algerian border down in the desert. They thought we were building a war machine to attack them. So they all the generals had to come across and inspect. And, and also, this title Star Wars was in there. So they thought, wars, this is... And it was because of oil. There's a lot of oil that runs under the borders. So they thought Tunisia was planning to attack to get the oil. So the sand crawler, all of Luke's exterior of his, it's Aunt Beru and um, Uncle Owen's homes, they were shot in two very different locations. One, Matmata, which have huge holes in the ground with caves where they've lived for centuries. And they live like that because it's cooler in summer because it's fierce, the heat there, and it's warm in winter. And we use that for the actual, the meal setting and all the courtyard, that was done in Matmata. And then the exterior where you see the garage exterior where the, they die and where the sand crawler gets attacked, that's down in the shots in the deserts near a place called Tozer. The canyon, of course, where Obi-Wan meets Luke for the first time, which is a very famous canyon now. Since then, raiders were shot there. English patient, that's the valley in the English patient. It's a very special valley. So I think we were the first to shoot there. Gerba, all of the exteriors of Tatooine and the guard posts, all of that, they were shot in Gerba. 
And also, uh, there were scenes cut out. There was a mosque scene. We we converted an old little tiny ancient mosque into a, a Star Wars set look. Um, that's one of the scenes cut out with Briggs, you know, the, uh, his friend, the Piper, and Kustar was playing Cammy. That was shot there. It was about two weeks of shooting all in all. A lot of based around oh the Ewok Canyon, of course, and the uh, the uh, sorry, not the Ewoks, the um, Tuscan Raiders and the Jawas. There's a canyon where they zap R2D2. That was shot there as well. So any of those kind of locations were done like that. Down, I think with, within two weeks, everything was shot. Market scenes, things like that. Now, when you got there, was this all a foreign crew that was coming in, or did you use some of the locals? Uh, we used quite a few of the locals. We had a, a local producer down there who joined us, and um, we brought in the basic slightly more than one would have to do now, but we brought in construction crews to build. And like my assistant directly to me was um, Hassan Sufi. He was a famous Tunisian painter, so he came and was my translator and he understood at the art world, so he was able to communicate to the locals. So we had quite a few locals as well working with us. But the core of the crew, and it was very low budget, so it wasn't that big a crew, all in all, but the core crew was all from Britain and the UK. What was the atmosphere like? I loved I mean, I love Morocco. I'd, I'd been going to Morocco since I first started working when I was young. I used to go down there and stay for a week or two. I mean, I like those worlds. So for me, I'm always happy in those kind of desert and um, foreign locales. It was pretty primitive down. Jerva was okay. The island where we shot a lot of the bigger town scenes. But... Tozer itself and Nefta, they're the two places. Like there was one hotel, pretty crummy, tiny little dusty place then that a few odd tourists came in to look at the deserts. We either had to stay in a really rough local hotel or we drove half an hour to Nefta. Still pretty rough, you know, in those countries then there weren't a lot of the refrigeration systems operating, so you have to be very careful with what you ate. A lot of people could get sick very quickly. Uh, Robert Watts wisely brought in caterers for everybody so that they would avoid that. It's like there was nothing really. Was, uh, I mean, we, we, we rented four by four vehicles and it's a 45, 50 minute drive out to the sets out on the chops. They're called the, the, the salt flats. So it's fairly rough. And I mean, the heat, but the reason there was so much pressure to start so early, and it was too little time to prep this film, that there should have been more, but the heat starts to ramp up in April. So it wasn't bad when we were there. The problem is rains. It could come, and we got hit by two. One storm completely blew the roof of Uncle Owen and um, Luke's home, blew three miles away. That went, disappeared. We, we had to order another one from London, and Fortunately, it turned up. The camel train came out of the distance, out of the desert, like a mirage, dragging it behind them. They found it three miles away. But this storm wrecked everything. And I mean, for me, 
there's no street lighting, nothing. I, I had a 10, minimum 10-hour drive between the Tozer location and the island of Gerba, and the phones went down. There was one line between the two, and that went down as soon as bad weather. And it's like, you know, I got a call from London because they managed to call London to tell me to drive from the desert up to Gerba because the whole set was flooded. So I had to drive through the night with teeming rain, dark, but you can see nothing. At odd times, I had narrow escapes because you get wild camels on the whole train crossing the road in the dark. You don't see them to the last minute. It's fairly kind of primitive. Pioneering, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Pioneering, but it worked, you know, and other films had shot there, and um, just the look was so good. And then, then on the fourth day of the shoot, another storm came out of nowhere, and just the, the problem is that the shots, which are salt flats, normally a baked dry you can drive on them the moment the rain hits them they turn into a soggy quagmire so we couldn't work for a day and, and they had to delay the shooting by a day or two to let the sun dry it out again because you just can't be on it those things happen but uh you know i think the crews are just very stoic you just you have a problem you just got to repair it and get on with it so as a set decorator, what are some of the things that you're doing to either prepare or while the shooting's going on? There's a lot about this in my book because there's nothing there. Right? I, I, I invented this whole technique of breaking down scrap airplanes to um, encrust all of the interior of the sets and both locations and the, and the Millennium Falcon, and all of these things and the weapons, everything. So... Frank Bruton was a very famous property master in charge, and he had to transport about, I, I think there were about 14 truckloads of equipment down to Tunisia. Now, this meant crossing the English Channel, going through France, down through Italy, across on a ferry from Genoa to Tunis, and then drive to the locations. And with the customs... We were, we were under huge pressure to get everything down there. I mean, my biggest problem was the crash spaceship, which you see outside of the cantina, which we did in Gerber. That thing as big as a Boeing 707. So I had to take down jet engines, scrap, because I, I looked, there was no scrap in Tunisia. I mean, everything's used. So, um, And I had to take, I had to imagine everything that we might need, a good... Um, month in front of me dressing and then shooting because it had to go down in these road trains and the same with the sets I mean everything was transported everything we we built the vaporizers they were transported down everything all of the plaster work that went into the sets was all taken down so I had to take a ton of scrap I had to take all the robots for the first day of shooting which is when they sell the robots to Luke and Uncle Owen, so R2-D2, that was the first thing we ever shot. I had to build about six, eight, ten robots for that lineup. They all had to be taken down. I was under huge pressure. I had to, Luke's binoculars had to be seen there. I had to make those up out of scrap. And these things could were causing me a lot of angst to get right. And the laser sword, that suddenly was needed to be not to be used but to hang on Luke's belt and that's one of the last things that I found I was happy with that 
I knew would be fitting for the iconic symbol of Star Wars, which is Luke's laser. The binoculars I made up, they were last minute held together with super glue, and I, I had to really look after those down there. I couldn't let the actors be rough with them because they were only one. That's all I had time to make and the parts for it. All of those things, I took every bit of spare vehicles that we'd been trying to build mock-ups of the land speeder with anything because uh, they wanted the outside of the cantina, George did, like a kind of old western bar with horses tied outside. So we got the um, nodding animal, which we used in the desert, and then that got transported up, and I tied that up like a, to a hitching post. <laughs> I mean, things like that. It was anything that also the continuity that was used inside and outside. So it, it was a huge procedure to get everything down there. And to build the fan crawler, you can imagine, I mean, this was this was a big job. And even things like, I knew it should have track marks in the desert where it had come in, so we had to build a wooden contraption that had exactly the same size track pieces, and we went behind it and dug those into the desert, getting less and less into the distance. And the other thing was they... John Barry had drawn in talking with George, these huge bones in the desert on the background, and that's where you see C-3PO the first time down there. So <laughs> I couldn't afford to make those. I mean, the, half this stuff, I had no budget. So I dug around in EMI up in an old loft. They had a ton of stuff in the dark, and I found these dinosaur bones. So I took those down there. They had to be shipped, and then we had to go and dress that. They got left there. The... the Robert West said, we don't have the transport to bring these back and we can't afford it, so we just leave them there. I think fans still are digging those up and finding them. Now, did you say you shot just for two weeks down there? Yeah, it was about two weeks, the actual um, two and a half weeks, something like that. It might have been three weeks. I have to look in the the book. It wasn't that long, and that was the first thing we did. It always amazes me when I go back and I rewatch, and I'm like, wow, half the movie takes place, well, between the Death Star with Princess Leia and then on Tatooine. There's just so much Tatooine there. There is a lot there. You know, we had a small crew and it was very well organized as best as we could, except for the robots, which they really had no time to build. We built our mock-up R2-D2s and um, they just kept going wrong, these things, because it was such an... At the time from when the film was greenlit, which was right after New Year's Day in January, everything was being transported to Tunisia by the end of February. So it was less than two months. Wow. Yeah, it was it was pretty rough. And a lot of... We had a lightweight R2-D2 we'd made in fiberglass, a mock-up, which we could pull on a fishing line. I tell you, a lot of the scenes in Tunisia were done with that lightweight one being pulled up by a fishing line. I've seen a lot of shots of uh, a guy down on his hands and knees, like moving the, the wheels, the legs. So I'm like, oh, wow, that must have been so difficult. And then it couldn't run on the desert either, so we'd bury planks, like, you know, that, that board, special shooting boards. We'd bury those into the desert so he can run, and then if you shoot low enough and put a little sandwich along, you can't notice it. And, of course, Luke's speeder. All of those scenes with the speeder were shot. 
Now, when you get back to England, are you doing all the Death Star and the um, Millennium Falcon, those kind of interiors? Yes. Pretty soon when we came back, we were in the, the Death Star, we were in uh, the Cantina, and a, a lot of the shooting in the Death Star, obviously. And I think very early on, we shot uh, the Millennium Falcon, the exterior. We built that in the stage, built half of it. Here's a dumb question about the Millennium Falcon I've always wondered. Are those little dice hanging from what would be like the rear view mirror kind of position? They are. Okay. Oh, you've seen those. So I've written a great deal about this in the book. When we finished the set dressing it and I put everything in and they built it, it was all ready. I thought we should personalize it. And I watched American Graffiti again, and George had dice hanging in Ron Howard's car, and Harrison had a skull and crossbones in his car. And I thought, you know what? This is the kind of thing Han Solo would do. So I took George down to look at the set, and we were going through for him to sign off on it. And then I said, listen, I have an idea that I think we should personalize it. And I said, I've got some dice. I had about six different little cloth ones and chrome ones and different ones. And I said, I think for good luck, because you have the dice in American Graffiti, we should hang them in here. And he said, that's a really good idea. So he chose the chrome ones. I hung them in there. And for some reason, I think Gil Taylor, who was a miserable old sod on the whole shoot, I think he took them out for some reason. Uh, Gary Kurtz thinks either they got a shadow in one of the shots or got in the way of the sound boom, and they didn't put them back. So they are there, and they should be there. They got removed. And I was away dressing other sets. Well, they, you know, once they start shooting, I'm usually off on trying to get other sets ready. We, we were running day and night, seven days a week, trying to keep up. Yeah, I'm putting those in the book, and I'm going to do a blow-up to show, because I've got one of the stills where they're there, definitely. It took me a lot of years to see those, and then when I did, I can't take my eyes off of them. Yeah, now they're there. I guess the good luck worked. <laughs> so what are you actually constructing the Death Star out of? What saved our bacon there was very early days of backforming, and John Barry worried about it. There was a huge machine, and it was 10,000 pounds, which out of our budget was a huge percentage. But in the end, they bought it, and that machine, they, they could make a clay mold of a sheet for the walls. And on some of them, the art department draftsmen would go down and plunder my huge stock of scrap from airplanes and anything, and they'd stick those in. They would be cast, and then they could reproduce those in back-form sheets, like by as many as we needed. They could then be stapled onto the set, and this saved us because the Death Star was huge and it had quite a few interiors and part of the problem, paying one the lack of time and taking down a set and building another one, John could revamp very easily, re-stick up different panels. And in fact, I plundered those and took them down for the crash spaceship because I realized that was a solution that I could do on that scale. And I took sheets of the Death Star we stapled them up on this huge structure and then I burnt them with a blowtorch and we aged them down and they looked like distressed metal, like a ship had crashed. I used them for that. And that machine also could print out the stormtroopers and C-3PO, all of those things 
were molded and you could press them out. So it actually saved the day. As you can imagine, the sets were pretty big, and a lot of them. I've always been very impressed by the way that the lights are kind of coming through the different areas of the wall with the Death Star, just the way that everything is lit looks so good. Yeah, that was good. It was a big fight for John Barry with Gil Taylor. He, he just kept saying he couldn't light it, couldn't light it, and John kept insisting, you can light it, we can do it like this, we do it like that. I think it looks really good, and I think the way they did it looks very effective. He found a way with putting what then were called photo floods, and he put a lot of them behind the set so they could come through in areas. And John would put transparent paper in so that it looked like a, just a glowing um, light source. So it, I think it was very effective. Yeah, a lot of discussions over how dark the walls should be. John wanted them really black, but uh, the lighting camera couldn't cope with it being so dark. So they got stage by stage, they got lighter and lighter until it reached a compromise in effect. When you get back to London, we talked a little bit about how long the shoot was in Tunisia. How long was it when you're back in England? Um, That was about eight or ten weeks. Yeah, it was 14 days shooting in the desert. It's here. I've got the book in front of me. Sorry, I was just looking it up. What's 14 days shooting? So, with weekends and stuff, we shot six days. That was uh, about that long. And it was about 10 weeks in the studio. I had heard that there was some, I don't know, confusion around some of the sets looking so used and, for lack of a better term, dirty, and that some people would try to clean them up. Is that true? Uh, No, nobody had done that. There was, no, we were always aging them down more (laughs) to keep them down and dusting them down, all of those ones. Obviously, the Death Star was was clean. Gil Taylor issued an interview saying the sets were too clean and he had to get them aged down, which is absolute rubbish. They were all aged before George ever shot. It's possible that the robot, R2-D2, and the other robots coming out of the special effects truck on the shoot day would have been clean because you can't have dust around. It was so delicate, all the controls for them that they had to be dusted a bit to make them look used. That's all that would have been done. Otherwise, all the sets were... You know, and even Alec Guinness, the first time he came on camera, he was did his rehearsal, and then he got down on the ground and rolled in the dust in Tunisia so that his costume got more kind of used-looking. All encouraged by George. So, no, the look of it was... It's exactly Tunisia. It's that dusty, ancient world... And, like a Western, like like George showed everybody um, once upon a time in the West, the um, Sergio Leone's great Western, to show how he wanted that look. Which is something I really appreciate, that both the people and the sets kind of have that lived-in look and that used universe feel. Yeah, that was very important to George and to me. I mean, that was the look I always felt was missing from science fiction before Star Wars, and uh, I felt that's why audiences never really connected to the film. So uh, George didn't want anything pointed out, anything. Just it should all be a natural part of a used universe. 
comparing something like Star Wars to something like 2001 A Space Odyssey, I mean, it's night and day as far as yeah. the how clean everything is and how sterile. And of course I know that Kubrick was much more into the sterility, but I really appreciate that about star Wars is just that this looks like a real place. Yeah, that's true. And, and especially, you know, we looked at things like forbidden planet and flash Gordon. They really are. They look designed. They don't look real worlds. And George was always pointing that out to everybody. <laughs> Now, what was kind of the atmosphere like on set? Did you guys know that you were doing something special at the time, or was this kind of another job? The art department did. I think we were unique. <laughs> we relished every minute of it. You know, and we're working like 16, 18 hours a day, seven days a week for, what, for nine months a year without a day off ever. I never had a day off. Not one. Not even public holidays. Our advantage was that... Uh, George came to London in August and the film was not greenlit by Fox until January the 2nd or 3rd when the cruise came on. So John Barry, myself, Les Dilly and Robert Watts uniquely had four months with George and Gary just alone in a tiny studio in London and we were just working out how the hell to make the film. We were all very close friends by the time shooting started, and we were, you know, we were part of the whole vision. I'd gone in and adapted real guns and shown George that was how my vision was, and he loved it. And all of that was pretty alien to the rest of the crew, who were mostly in it for jobs. They didn't understand what this was. Their perception, and you have to think of the time. At that time, American culture was held in pretty low esteem in Britain. It was a time of the upper class were very prevalent, and films like Drossen's Contract were the be-all and end-all of British cinema. David Lean was out making huge masterpieces. Apart from that, science fiction was at its lowest ebb it had ever been, and science fiction literature in Britain was always regarded as not really literature. That's not really writing. It has nothing to do with, you know, there was a whole Shakespeare with a pinnacle, and below that you have all these wonderful old famous writers. So a young American director coming in with a science fiction film that looked like a children's story didn't connect to virtually anyone, I think, in truth. A lot of them, you know, it was a job. They'd come in and they had jobs and they went out. You know, I spent time in the book. I was very unlike, I think, because I came to art school, I would every week be in cinemas watching Bergman, Zeffirelli, Fellini, Kurosawa, who I worshipped. And when I joined in the art departments, they would frown at me mentioning these names. It was nothing to do with what they did. So I think we had a natural affinity and, you know, and I, I really liked THX. I mean, he was an experimental filmmaker doing really interesting things with very little money. And I particularly, I like science fiction and here we were. I was, I was fulfilling a dream and I'd always wanted this dusty ancient world to be on screen. And, uh, so John Barry, John Barry's, predilection he always said was for he loved films like Barbarella <laughs> things like that but he was a highly intelligent 
man himself and designer and a huge asset to George and he immediately understood what George was after and took him out to Tunisia and I was directing Second Unit on Phantom Menace and I was walking across the set one day with George. We were looking at something we had to do together and he stopped in the middle and he said, you know, Roger, I really miss John Barry. And I said, I know, so I do too. And that statement shows how much John meant to George in the making of this film and getting it made. George, Les and I, Norman, Robert Watts stood by George's side through thick and thin, no matter what happened. So it was an unusual atmosphere, to be sure. Tell me about winning the Oscar. What was that like to first find out you're nominated, and then what was the actual ceremony type stuff? We we were doing Alien at the time, and Les and I had to fly out. And we went out. We had a breakfast. All of us caught up, and um, we all said, "Well, we're not going to win because you know, to, to this day, you know, a science fiction film has not won an Oscar." People can argue Lord of the Rings, but it's it's fantasy. It's more fantasy cinema. It's not science fiction. Not one. Even Avatar got knocked out by a tiny little documentary film. So we we thought, well, we haven't got a chance. So we we weren't really concerned about it. We had a very nice time. George got a little tiny restaurant we went to, and we all caught up and talked, and then. It, it's true that the, the sound disappears when your name gets called and everything kind of stops dead. It goes into a kind of weird dream. You don't really remember what happened, but we had seen all the special effects boys and there were loads of them on stage dancing and thanking everybody and doing all of this. And so <laughs> right before sitting in the audience, we, we all agree. We said, you know what? If it happened that we got this, John, would you just speak for us? Because John was very erudite. And so John got up, and I'm paraphrasing it, but basically held up the Oscar, and he said, you know, every frame of this film belongs to this man down there, George Lucas. I think my most treasured moment, Hey Fonzie gave us the Oscar, which Oscars at that time were not, especially in Britain, they were regarded as a kind of negative if you got an American Oscar in Britain. Not like it is now. And... The fact the Fonz gave it to me was far more important <laughs> to everybody. And Greer Garson, this great film star. So on stage, he gave everybody a hug, and my name was called separately after a set decorator gets his own. The art directors get theirs, and then set decorator. And John did his speech, so I didn't get my hug. And we got into this freight elevator that takes you down for the press. And Greg Arthur looked at me and she said, I never gave you a hug, dear. And so here I am being hugged by this great film star, thinking, wow, this boy from Reading in London, near London, had nothing to do with cinema. I thought, this is a moment I have to treasure forever. I'm just so glad that you guys were actually at the ceremony because now it seems like the people who do pardon me for saying this, but the people who do the important things, the editing, the special effects, the set decoration, they just get shuttled off into the other room and they give them a, a pretty girl to look at to give them the award and they, they aren't That's part it. of the ceremony. Yeah. I agree. I think it's wrong. It's, you know, films are made by teams of people and uh, especially the visual side, the photography, the the design, 
costumes, they're very important. And the editing, you know, they're, they're all of equal importance when it comes to it, because everything is the director's vision, but not like a painter. We can't do it alone. There's a whole team of people with you. This film was so groundbreaking in terms of effects, but also definitely in terms of the art direction and the set decoration. To see people running around in the you know silver suits that we were going to see you know in the fifties and sixties for science fiction films, you'd get laughed at at the theater after something like Star Wars. Absolutely, we had band. There's a funny story when we were making the wood mock-up R two D two. It was the first thing we ever made. I had a carpenter, I employed Bill Harmon, who used to make all of the um, props and construction for the Monty Python. So. Bill knew how to do things for nothing, and he was always happy. He was great. We got a wooden mock-up, first one we made, and I found a lamp top for the head, and we were doing it. Really, no money. This was in these studios before the film started. And then I heard Bill was finding silver paint to spray it. So John Barry and I had a pact. Silver paint was banned. And I ran down to the stage and uh, said, Bill, don't stop! <laughs> And he, he said after all, I went and threw them all away after that. I got told off. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's true, you know, before that, it was silver paint and silver costumes. Very unscience fiction <laughs> to me. How is it for you seeing, uh, albeit briefly, but seeing now the interior of the Millennium Falcon again in the new Star Wars trailer? It's amazing how this world has gone around. But the thing that most impressed me was in the trailer was my laser sword was handed over. So it's Luke's original, though they got it slightly wrong. That's actually one from Empire Strikes Back. I noticed the details. I think JJ's been really clever to bring back the world that everybody loves and to kick it off like that because um, there's a kind of universal love of this first film. I think it's roughness and it's it's the emotions very strong in it and the characters everything and they mean so much to everybody that here it is coming back again, you know, in the Millennium Falcon. It's pretty much similar to what we were doing. They've tried to recreate what we were doing out of necessity. Now they can do it out of choice. We were doing it because we literally had no money. I just the the budgets that I was given to do this huge film if I hadn't have invented these techniques of buying scrap airplanes because at that time no one wanted it I could buy a, you know half an airplane for 50 pounds uh, and using weapons that were already existing I could rent cheaply and converting them into science fiction guns I got away with it and John Barry did by being really clever in the way that things were designed and made, it was pretty tight with everything. So ours was necessity. And in some ways, it kind of shows on screen. It kind of gave it an authenticity, I think. So I think it's really good that that side of it has come round again. I mean, for me, anyway, I think it's great. So tell me more about your book. Tell me about Galaxy Builder. It's going to be called Cinema Alchemist. We called it that because alchemy is when you buy scrap metal and you turn it into gold. So <laughs> that's what I did. 
I was hounded by Wes Reynolds to do this book. He kept saying, you're the last one. You're the one with all the true stories. You were there from the beginning. John Barry died very young, so you've got to tell these stories. And uh, I did sit down about four or five years ago, and it took a couple of years of writing. So I decided not just that. It wasn't just Star Wars and Alien, because not that much has been written about Alien, really, in truth, about the day-to-day grind of it. And the making of Black Angel, which was my short film, first film as a director that George commissioned to go out with Empire Strikes Back. And that film, the negative got lost and it got found two years ago. And because of articles in Wired magazine who raised it up, its profile, saying that this film had influenced cinema in its day and a lot of films and it had a huge impact. And that became an internet sensation last year. I think we had nearly 30 million hits. And that was from one showing in Mill Valley. It closed the Mill Valley Film Festival. And then four screenings in Scotland where I made it. And that was like, I was the first person to put Scotland, really, these images up on the screen ever, like it was. So I was like a homecoming hero. And the book is the making of that. So it's the entire world that existed then, how we developed this whole film with George Lucas, how then it was day-to-day blows of the filmmaking, how it really happened. Same with Alien and the making of this Black Angel. Again, I had £25,000 and they gave me the short ends of unused film from Empire Strikes Back. That's all I had. I I had to make a, a medieval epic on location with a crew of nine people. So John Rinsler, who writes all the making of Star Wars books, he edited it for me masterfully. He turned my rambling 600 pages into a book. It's with Titan Publishing, who publish Doctor Who. I mean, loads of graphic novels. That they do all the making of Alien books. They do a lot of amazing kick-ass, the graphic novels. They do a huge amount. They're the marvel of the UK, Titan. So I'm in the final... It's been edited. They're just, they did their final edit. I'm just going through that. And then that comes out this year. Yeah, and it's good timing because because of Black Angel causing such a stir. And it was a, not medieval, but it was a kind of sword and sorcery fantasy. And I could barely do the story that I had written. So I had to choose little bits of it. <laughs> That's got picked up by a London film company, Carnaby Films, and my Nostradamus producer. We're now making Black Angel. I'll be shooting in September. And basically because of Game of Thrones, it's ignited the world. Lord of the Rings did it and ignited the world to this kind of sword and sorcery and fantasy cinema. And Game of Thrones has really, really widened the audience. So here I was with this huge epic story so that's being made now as a as a feature film. So it's amazing for me. The, the full circle is coming round on Star Wars itself coming round, and now the film I made that went out with Empire Strikes Back is now being made as a huge feature. Fairly different to the short, because I couldn't do much in the short, but um, it's the same characters, the Black Angel, evil, evil versus good. Well, yeah, it's got to be kind of an interesting time for you, but with that, with the next Star Wars, and then I don't know if Blomkamp's Alien is still under the green light or not, but I mean, these films that you worked on in your youth, you know, still coming back, still given the gift that keeps on giving. It's true, and I think 
for me, you know, it, it was interesting. In Scotland, I was at the Glasgow Film Festival and the little short film went into the 400-seater that got so many people came and there was Q&As there in Edinburgh and Inverness. And every Q&A, I got asked the same question. Well, look, you made this film with nine people in Scotland and at the time it was absolutely groundbreaking and now you could go out and get the money and do all the CGI in the world and all of this. What do you choose now to make the film? And I said, down and dirty. I'm, I love the way that Star Wars was made. I like the way Jurassic Park was made. I like the way Alien was made. I'm going back to that. We're shooting in Hungary and Belgium and Scotland and Morocco, and I'm doing it the same way, down and dirty. I have CGI because I have flying demons and um, some pretty intense battles, kind of gladiator-style battles, but it's really the main knight and the black angel, which is the evil one. It's really one-on-one fights, terrible battles between them. So I've kept that spirit alive of what I loved. And I think, you know, I look at it, I mean, I I think the audience are getting a little bit tired of 500,000 CGI warriors all battling it out. Even though they look amazing and they look real, you're still not connecting emotionally. So I've gone back to what that was in those days. Um, I think for me, as an audience member, that's what I want to see. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. It's all stuff that, you know, it's part of the world now for me, and uh, I I do like it. And, you know, you've probably seen these, the online things from um, the release of the digital films, because they, they took me up to the ranch and filmed me. And I never met Joe Johnson. Ever. I mean, we worked on the same thing and know each other, but we never actually met. So they filmed us on camera meeting for the first time. And it was really enjoyable. And and by chance, George was there. So I caught up with him and had a long discussion about Black Angel. And he was reiterating the same. He said, I think sometimes, you know, he said, even I made a mistake. I got too far away from, you know, with CGI and the big armies and everything. I got away from the core of it, which are those wonderful characters you identify with. So I thought with George about it because he used Kurosawa as his mentor for Star Wars and um, he took the characters of R2-D2 and C-3PO from uh, Hidden Fortress. George hadn't realized it but I said, you know, I hero worship Kurosawa and basically Black Angel that I made for George was taken from the samurai movies and the lone samurai fighting evil and that's what I did I translated it into a kind of pre-medieval world and I'm deeply inspired now by Kurosawa the way he did things some of his action scenes in mud and rain and the samurais they're still groundbreaking to me today Ms. Carson I would just like to say that it is an honor to stand here tonight with a star of your magnitude Why, that's very gracious of you. Uh, We could call it a nice encounter of the academy kind, couldn't we? What would you say if I told you that I was really delighted to be up here with the Fonz? (laughs) I'd say you show good taste. (laughs) I think the academy showed good taste in giving you the award, Mrs. Minifer. 
Why, thank you, Henry. And now, let us name the talented and gifted people who have been nominated for their great achievements in art direction. The nominees are... George C. Webb for Airport 77, set direction by Mickey S. Michaels. Joe Alves and Don Domino for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, set decoration by Phil Abramson. Ken Adam and Peter Lamont for Spy Who Loved Me. Set, or, set, set decoration by you, Scape. <laughs> John Barry, Norman Reynolds, and Leslie Dilley for Star Wars. Set decoration by Roger Christian. Albert Brenner for The Turning Point. Set decoration by Marvin March. And the winner is our John Barry, Norman Reynolds, and Leslie Dilly for Star Wars. Set decoration, Roger Christian. Uh, we're very pleased to accept this beautiful award on behalf of all our friends and patriots who worked so hard to make the sets of Star Wars a success. And there's one man whose name should be engraved on this above everybody else and whose name should be on every frame of Star Wars, and that's George Lucas. Thank you, George. Thanks to Roger Christian for coming back on the show. Roger's actually been on two times before. He was on our Life of Brian episode, talking about set design for that film. And then he was on Battlefield Earth episode, talking about directing the seminal sci-fi classic with Jean Travolta. So, Jean Travolta. Jean, that's, that's French. Yes, that was when he was very French. So, we've talked a little bit about this and the real reason why we're talking about Star Wars on this thing called Modi May, you know, these kind of lost films, is this whole idea of not being able to see the original version. And it, it kills me that I can't see the original Star Wars. You know, it's just like now if I go out to the store, if I run, <laughs> even saying that kind of makes me laugh. If I went over to Best Buy and picked up a copy of the Blu ray. <laughs> 
<laughs> which who does that anymore? Anyway, when I go out there and I do that, the thing that I'm going to get home is something that is going to really disappoint me. You know, I'm looking right now at the Blade Runner case, you know, the one that came out a few years ago, the plastic case with the Voigtkampf kind of, you know, the, the, the thing that Decker pulls up. And that's got so many versions of Blade Runner inside of it. Yes. I'm only going to watch one of them, but I'm glad that I can. When it comes to Star Wars, I can't do it. I can't watch the original. And I'm talking about the original original. I'm not even talking about the th- stuff that came out on DVD where they're trying to placate the fans like, oh, this is the original. It's like, no. If it says episode four, it's not the original, motherfucker. It's not the original. I want to see the one that I saw in the theaters. Show me that one. Take me back to 1977. Show me that version. I don't need all this other gobbledygook. And the thing that kills me is that we're not allowed to see that. You know what this kind of reminds me of? And I'm going to break it down to music terms because I can think that most people can kind of wrap their heads around the music concept easier than film. Because film, obviously, has got a lot of moving parts. But when you look at like remixes of albums – where they're like, hey, we took it and we remixed it or we cleaned it up. Or, you know, a few years ago, someone sat down with the old Robert Johnson blues recordings and said, you know, all of these Robert Johnson recordings are all pitched up about 20% higher and faster rate than they should be. You know, so someone went and they speed corrected them. And then uh, they uh, put out this box set of all the outtakes of all the takes of the Funhouse, the Stooges Funhouse album. It's like over like 10 CDs. It's everything that they recorded. Like for me, the idea of remixing and going in and cleaning up an album, great. I don't have a problem with anyone doing that. That's fine. But at the same time, don't throw away the original mix. Like if you're going to do, for example, when I bought Pet Sounds, on that album there was the mono mix and there was the stereo mix. So if you want to listen to the mono mix, you can, and you can listen to the stereo mix if you want to as well. Why don't they give us that option. Like you were talking about with that Blade Runner box set. I love that Blade Runner box set. I have that. I know which version I'm going to watch. And if you want to know which one that is, you can listen to our Blade Runner episode where Mike and I get into it over that. But the thing is, is that we deserve the right to have that option. Now, people would say, well, Lucas is an artist. And as an artist, an artist has the right to do whatever he wants with his art and present it to you in the way that he sees fit. And that's what he's done. He went in because they didn't give him the money when he originally made it in 1977, 76, and he's cleaned it up and he's fixed it. And now here's the presentation he wants to give you. So live with it. I don't agree with that. But I think we should have options. I'm reminded of that story. Did you guys see John Dies at the End, the Coscarelli film? Yeah. There's that story that they start off the movie with where it's... Solving the following riddle will reveal the awful secret behind the universe. Assuming you do not go utterly mad in the attempt, say you have an axe, just a cheap one from Home Depot. On one bitter winter day, you use said axe to behead a man. Don't worry, the man's already dead. Or maybe you should worry, because you're the one who shot him. He'd been a big, twitchy guy with veiny skin stretched over swollen biceps, tattoo of a swastika on his tongue. And you're chopping off his head because even with eight bullet holes in him, you're pretty sure he's about to spring back to his feet. Eat the look of terror right off your face. You now have a broken axe. So, you go to the hardware store. Explaining away the dark reddish stains on the handle is barbecue sauce. The repaired axe sits undisturbed in your house until the next spring when one rainy morning 
So grab your trusty axe and chop the thing into several pieces. On the last blow, however, of course a chipped head means yet another trip to the hardware store. As soon as you get home with your newly headed axe, though, you meet the reanimated body of the guy you beheaded last year. Only he's got a new head, stitched on with what looks like plastic weed trimmer line, and wears that unique expression of you're the man who killed me last winter resentment that one so rarely encounters in everyday life. So you brandish your axe. Axe the axe that slayed me. Is he right? Is that really a true statement? And I feel like we don't have the same axe now, that they've made so many changes that it's just not the same film to me that they've made too many changes to this thing i can understand some of the ideas of like cleaning up matte lines Mm -hmm. or enhancing a stereo mix or doing that kind of stuff i mean there were mono and stereo mixes of star wars back in the original day but the whole idea of adding shots and destroying shots for me you know it's just like why why are you doing that i mean you know especially you know we just got done hearing from roger christian and this guy goes out and he does all this work doing set design, gets an Academy Award for a set design. We've talked about the editing of the film. These people got an Academy Award for doing the editing of the film. They knew what they were doing. They created this thing back then. Now you look at stuff, a lot of Roger Christian's set design, gone. You know, he's talking about the stuff that happens outside the door of the cantina. Mm. That shit's changed now. You know, his work is gone. A lot of the stuff that the editors worked on is gone. There's now extra shots. Things have been lengthened, all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, okay, you know, like at least for them, at least for their work, you know, the special effects works were groundbreaking in 77. I mean, you did, they did so many things that had never been done before. The whole like Dykstra cam and the motion control of the, the ships and all this kind of stuff, the go motion stuff that was done for even just the, the chess game, the layering of all these different things. I mean, it's just amazing groundbreaking stuff. And now when we see it, you know, for me anyway, I'm distracted by the new shit that's in there. And it's just like, it's not the true vision of, wow, look at how groundbreaking this thing was for 1977. Now it's like, look at all this shit they threw in there in 1997. It's like, why can't I see that original to appreciate it? I'll give you a similar, and then I'll talk about one of the scenes. When I worked in Saginaw, the art museum there decided that they were going to expand. Well, the problem was is that the art museum is in this historic house. It's in this historic mansion that was built in the late 1800s. So when they decided to build on to the house, there were people that said, well, why don't you build it in the same style of that house? Instead of putting these glass wings on the side, to which the woman who was running the museum at the time said, well, you don't go to the Mona Lisa and paint on to the Mona Lisa. If you're going to put something next to it, you want to keep the integrity of the original and then add on. And I think that's the problem here is that they're missing the integrity of the original. And when they add on, it looks odd. For example, you were talking about that stuff outside the cantina. There's a couple of shots in there that have been digitally composed, and you can tell they've been digitally composed because they look really bad, where you have – the uh, the speeder, you know, the car that they're in, and they're driving by, and this guy kind of walks. It almost like he seems like he walks through the car or something. It just looked odd. And then there's that whole scene between uh, Harrison Ford, Han Solo, and Jabba 
that he doesn't know where to look. That's part of the problem is <laughs> I feel bad for Harrison Ford that they put this in there because they're probably like holding a stick off to the side of the camera and say, talk to the stick. And the sight line isn't quite right. And he looks kind of cross-eyed or he doesn't quite know where he's looking. And while that scene is interesting and it does play in, as you were saying, into the, the later films that will follow, it just seems like it was ill-conceived to try to recreate that in some manner and then shove that back into the film. For that scene, someone should have said, hey, George, the stuff Jabba is saying is the exact same stuff that Greedo just said 10 minutes ago. So right. we don't need that. Oh, you want to put Boba Fett in here? No, just no. There are a lot of special edition changes that I, I see and I'm like, oh, OK, good. Like, I don't like all the X-Wings lined up one behind the other flying at the Death Star. It's it, it looks weird. Because no no jet flies right behind the other jet like that, mm. I, so I like I like adding ships to it. I like I like the movement of the wings and stuff. It's a, it'd be a small change, that's fine. But big stuff, the first Jabba that you saw on screen when they when they showed it in the theater for that for that scene, oh, I I can defend these movies all day long, but there's certain things and that lumpy mass of protoplasm was just terrible they did fix him up a little bit better so he did look better in subsequent versions but still you hear it it's like oh yeah uh he owes you money we get it yeah i mean he purposefully redid the greedo scene to include a lot of that stuff just to make sure it was clear you know without the java scene originally so it's just like oh why you're you're undoing yourself it's like if you're going to put stuff back in, you're already r- ruining the pacing by putting Jabba in. So why don't you just go whole hog and put all the big shit back in? Because Biggs is one of these weird characters where it's just like, you know, oh, hey, Biggs, this is great. And it's like, you know, they've talked about it, They mention him like two or three times. And it's just like, well, who is this guy? And yeah. and then they kind of added a couple things back in with Biggs, but not the beginning stuff. So it's just like, oh, wow, I have no idea who this guy is. Why is it now even a bigger reunion? Yeah. Now, this is, this is an impossible parlor game for the three of us because we're never going to be able to watch this without our, <laughs> our foreknowledge. But what you were talking about before with the whole bringing up the Clone Wars and all of this discussion about this thing, you know, this bigger universe of stuff that's out there, the fact that Jabba shows up in this film at that scene that he put in kind of negates that whole thing again, where it's sell us that Jabba's this big fucking horrible dude, and then when we finally meet him, then it's a big reveal. It's like seeing the shark, you know? It's like he's teasing us with it, or he's telling us about this guy, and ooh, you know, who would that guy be? If this, if this guy's the fucking underling of the boss, who's the fucking boss? Like, I want to meet that guy. But don't show him to us, like, three minutes later. And I think, really, the only thing that it does, that scene, if, if you were going in cold... Absolutely cold. Never seen anything. Don't know anything about Star Wars. And you see that scene. I think it'd be kind of a letdown because yeah. when you meet him in the second film, it's much more like grandiose from what I remember. It's like he's there and he's got the fucking pit and he's got the chained up Leah and all that. And it's like, holy shit, this fucking guy, you know, it's it's much more menacing. It's much more, you know. It's a greater reveal of that character than to put him in here, and it just seems like such a waste. 
Yeah, if Jabba is supposed to be the head of the of the of the crime family in that arm of the galaxy, and he's showing up in person to collect right. twenty thousand credits or, or or whatever small amount, like if you had a problem with Harrison Ford walking behind Jabba, then it should have been a hologram. Then yeah. you could have you could have kept it shrouded. You could have still had the dialogue. He could have walked around. The eye line would have been fine. But no, we gotta we gotta do a whole full full size one. Let, let, let's go to the annotated for a second. Let's go to that annotated film which I was talking about. That whole scene, the whole Greedo and and Han Solo scene, it's in the annotated version. They bring up all of these spaghetti westerns, mm. and there's right. similar scenes and like a fistful of dollars and the good, bad, and the ugly and and all of that stuff. Which at, up until I watched the annotated one, I go, oh, yeah, like I didn't I didn't quite realize that that may be a Leone reference. That may be a Western reference. And to have the boss show up right after the henchman in a Western is ridiculous. I mean, to me, it's like bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, right? He's on this thing. He's going there. He meets the boss at the end. He meets right. him at the end after he's dealt with all the henchmen. You don't deal with the henchmen and then two minutes later meet the boss. That – is completely horrible, especially if you're going to rip off the Western and borrow that concept of sending the henchman out to get your money, and then he kills the henchman. Of course, you know, there should be like another henchman that comes after him and goes, Hey, by the way, uh, he didn't like the way you dealt with the last guy. And then we meet the big boss. Yeah. And if you're going to watch these movies in numerical order, not chronological, then you got Jabba running a pod race who's he's sitting above everybody else. It looks like he owns the entire arena and he's got Bib, his uh, his major domo with him, who wasn't in the a new hope in the in the in the special edition there. Right. Um and he looks like he has a, a greater status thirty years before he's chasing after quarters from Han. So it's a good thing it's cut. The way they shot that originally, uh, Rob, was an actor standing there and you know interacting with Harrison Ford and all this stuff. And it was supposed to be – the original version, I think, was he was supposed to be a very tall alien. And so there wasn't this whole idea of the slug and all this stuff. So, yeah, the thing that you were talking about, Chris, the whole him walking around Jabba and then them – Adding that weird thing where they like lift him up while he's standing on Jabba's tail or steps on his tail and Jabba freaks out. And Jabba wouldn't kill him instantly? Oh, yeah. That's one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I mean, that is just like, I, I could do better with a video toaster than some of that <laughs> shit. Yeah, that's like, painful to watch. Just because you have the technology doesn't mean you have to use it. It just seems like they bring down the respect for the bad guy. Like, if you're going to be the boss and you're going to be the bad guy and you want to make this guy the bad guy, there's a certain level of respect that you have to build into the character and how the character shows up. You know, it's, right. you know, to, to me, Jabba in the first film, when he's brought up, is, you know, it's the Harry Lime character. You know, they talk, what Orson Welles has talked about playing that where everybody talks about him and then he shows up you know it's like that's that's the character you want where you just show up at the end because everybody's talked about you for the last hour and a half yeah the name's exotic when we were kids we didn't know what the hell a hut was except that it sold pizza it you know we had you make all this stuff up and then you see him on screen and he's got the deep voice with a little bit of reverb and echo in it and he's just eating frogs by the handful it, he was terrifying here he's like a joke 
And it kind of brings Boba Fett down a little bit, too, because it totally negates his whole uh, badass appearance in Empire. If we're going to talk Boba Fett, I'll say one thing about him. Boba Fett, once he drops off Han Solo, you know, in that period between Empire and Jedi, Mm. once he drops him off, I don't see the guy sticking around, hanging out at Jabba's place. I see him getting his money and going. This guy's a working bounty hunter. I don't see him just kind of hanging around, not collecting any money. Yeah. Yeah. The books go, you know, the the non-canonical books now will say that he was on, he was, Jabba paid him a retainer. Hmm. But whatever. Yeah. He definitely would take off and he right. would work for the Empire more, you would think. Yeah. And talk about like no respect for a bad guy. I mean, the death of Boba Fett is one of those things that is just like, that's one of many nails in a coffin as far as what I think of Return of the Jedi. That's where that whole addiction, and it was a very painful process. I mean, I saw dead babies on the ceiling, this kind of stuff, trying to detox from my Star Wars addiction, Mm -hmm. but seeing like Ewoks on the ceiling, that definitely helped me out quite a bit. And seeing the death of, of Boba Fett and just being like, you gotta be kidding me. What the hell just happened? This yeah. this is a joke. This is a joke how you kill this guy? One of the most badass characters mm. ever. What broke my heart was watching um from Star Wars to Jedi and they show how they were doing their um their moving uh the the animatics for uh the storyboards and they have the the Kenner Boba Fett 18 inch and um and and 3 and 3 quarter inch figures in the speeder bike chase. Oh. And they could have used stormtroopers, but Fett was supposed to make it all the way through in one draft and still be chasing them on Endor. Oh, wow. I will say the prequels did one thing for for Fett's dumbass mistake. He saw a lightsaber and all the hate for Mace Windu must have welled up and he must have figured, oh, you're eight foot tall Wookiee and a blind smuggler. That's fine. I'm going to kill that jackass with the lightsaber. <laughs> So I can I can retroactively I think they actually made his distraction a little more believable. I got to say Django Fett talk about asshole characters. <laughs> Django Fett, one of the worst bounty hunters who's ever existed in the history of bounty hunters. Yeah. The guy outsources his bounty to that shapeshifter chick. Yeah. Who tries to kill them with, like, giant worms and stuff. It's like, what the hell is good? You don't outsource your bounty. No. You go, you kill, you see them die, you kill them with your own two hands. Yeah. He yeah. could he could hit Zam with a with a dart from, like, six miles away. Yeah. He but can't, you can't do that. Yeah. 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 Doesn't work. You're going to go in, you're going to, you're going to quote unquote, fix all this stuff with Star Wars, right? That, that That's your, you raise on detra now, George Lucas. You don't fix the shot of the sand people when the film goes back and forth in reverse. Even as a five-year-old, when I'm watching the movie, I'm just like, that shot looks really weird. Why is that? And then finally, you know, over the years, I'm just like, they reverse the film so that, the Tuscan Raider, like, does a burp, 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 you know, a couple more times. And I'm like, you couldn't fix that one, though. That's you know, you know what thing has bothered me the most that hasn't been fixed? And it's such a stupid, small little thing. In the cantina, there's um, Cabe, the little short bat-faced one that's, like, doing the give-me-the-drink-now thing. Oh, yeah. The mousy guy? Yeah. Yeah. 
and you can see through one of the the little dome black eyes on the side of the head all the way through to the other one. <laughs> like, just straight through its face. Like, okay, black, just put black there. And it's never been done. But we can put more rocks in front of R2-D2 for the Blu-ray releases, which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, so that poor R2 can't even get in there or out. <laughs> hey, now, don't you know what the great Ed Wood taught us in the Tim Burton film? The movies are not about the small things. They're about the big ideas. I'm so shocked that we have gone for almost two hours talking, and we haven't even talked about the Greedo shooting first thing. Because uh, it's such a, who cares? It's played out. I'm going to say my one thing. Everybody says Han shot first, but in order for Han to shoot first, Greedo would have had to fire. Han shot Greedo. It, that's it. No one else fired. Period. That's what it See, was. I th- See, I thought you were talking about mob movies, and of course Guido shot first. <laughs> I liked that Han would just defend himself like that, but, I mean, if you look at it, then he's just a murdering drug smuggler, because Han was a drug smuggler. Who also thought that a parsec was a measure of length in that time. Yeah, can I tell you the best the best um like retcon kind of explanation for that? Someone suggested that he thought that Ben and Luke were such rubes that they would just fall for anything he said and he said it on purpose. I like I like that better than what the expanded universe did where the Kessel run involves the maw cluster of black holes and the closer you skirt to it the less mileage you shave off your run. I, 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 I really appreciate that people tried to make that work. I thought a Kessel run was, uh, isn't there a chain of grocery stores called Kessel? And that's, you gotta <laughs> go pick up, you know, the bread and stuff for the, you know, for the I family. I think Harold and Kumar did a Kessel oh, run and he twice. Say parsnips three times. Yeah. That's right. Parsnips from the Kessel yeah. run. That's right. <laughs> so there's, definitely been a backlash against george lucas and i i would frankly be in that camp and i've kind of been in that camp since 1983 when jedi came out now have you guys both seen the people versus george lucas i didn't watch it because i i don't have the vitriol that some other people not you guys but some other people have for the prequels they're movies that's okay fine um, I, I watched them. I watched them again recently. I, I could say a lot of negative things about it. <laughs> it's not just about the prequels. As a matter of fact, the, the documentary, which features, uh, the lovely Mike White on this episode and also our good friend, uh, Mr. Chris Gore, um, goes into a lot of the things that we've discussed about him changing the film and not releasing the original version and certain particular things. And I think, you know, what's, what's funny, Chris, is that you're like, they're just movies. You know, it's almost like that William Shatner bit from you know, yeah. Saturday Night Live. People get a life. It was a TV yeah. show. I only meant that in respect to the prequels. <laughs> ah, okay. But it's, you know, Star Wars, it, you know, is such a cultural uh, touchstone. It's such a big cultural thing that it is, I guess, maybe the equivalent of, you know, I'm going to bring up Renaissance painting again or something. Back then, it was all religious painting. So, of course, it would be like, someone doing a big 
dive on the Sistine Chapel or something, you know, oh, this thing, it's so beautiful and it's so important to us. And, you know, how dare he go in and change all of that? And how dare he fix this and fix that? It's the Sistine Chapel, for Christ's sake. So I, I think it almost has the same kind of import in our, our modern film and uh, pop culture lexicon in some way. I guess I was under the false impression that it was more negative, like just angry, just from the title. Yeah, there are some folks in there that are pretty angry, and then there are some folks in there who are laughing and having a good time. But I think okay. overall, it's a, it, it's a good watch. Because I've, I've tried to get away from being mad at the internet, and that came out in a time where I made a conscious decision to try to not be um, a negative, nihilistic asshole like I used to be. Um, and I saw that, and I'm like, you know what? I can't watch people just trashing stuff for whatever so i'll give it a shot now definitely so let's go ahead and take a break play back an interview with the director of the people versus george lucas alexander philippe i'm alexander philippe and i am a documentary director i I focus on uh on pop culture topics alexander you have such a strong denver accent did you grow up there (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I grew up in uh, Switzerland, in uh, Geneva. How did you come to start making films in the U.S.? Oh, it's, it's been a really long, uh, you know, very convoluted road. Uh, you know, initially I actually came to the U.S. to be a golf professional. That was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, went back to college and, and uh, you know, took some theater classes. Did, you know, thought I was going to be a playwright and pursued that for a while. Went to dramatic writing school at NYU and, you know, essentially had to write screenplays as well. So I, I essentially, from being a playwright, became a screenwriter, and then screenwriting led me to directing my own films, moved to Denver on a whim and uh, created my own company here and uh, I've been making films for the past 12 years now. How did you come to decide to make The People versus George Lucas? Well, you know, that's an idea I had for many, many years, it, really in the form of a, of a title, you know, and I think that it's just one of those things that that I kept thinking about, you know, it seemed like a perfect title. I think every Star Wars fan, certainly from the original generation, when you say those words, they know exactly what you mean. And in fact, this is exactly what happened back in 2007. I was on a, you know, film shoot in Texas uh, with my crew. And my cinematographer, Robert Miratori, who's also a huge, you know, Star Wars fan, uh, you know, we were talking about Star Wars and George, you know, just every day. And, uh, and then one day I said, you know, I have this idea for a doc. It's, it's called The People vs. George Lucas. And that's all I needed to say. <laughs> he just, he basically jumped on it. He said, you know, oh my God, we have to do this. And, you know, he said, I'll, I'll help you produce it. We'll, we'll figure out a way to do this. And uh, that was pretty much all the incentive that I needed to, to actually, you know, take that first step of uh, uh, really starting pre-production. And, and that, that started, uh, you know, a four-year journey of making this film. It was, uh, it was quite, a, quite an experience. When was the first time you saw Star Wars? So, actually, my very first experience watching Star Wars was... Uh, Empire Strikes Back. I was eight years old. Uh, but, you know, interestingly enough, I had, you know, all the toys prior to that, and I knew, you know, the basic story of Star Wars, even though I had not seen the original one. So, so really, my first experience was Empire, which completely blew me away. 
of course, that, that extraordinary moment, uh, Luke, I'm your father. I, I remember very distinctly, you know, standing up in, in, in the theater, you know, with, with my mom next to me. And I was kind of, you know, looking at her for like answers. I'm like, what's going on, mom? You know, what's, what's happening? Can this be true? And it's, it was, you know, I think the single most transformative, you know, cinematic experience of my, of my childhood and probably of my life. You know, yeah, I've never, I've certainly never felt that, that same way again uh, in the theater. You come up with the title. It sounds like it's a court case. How did you decide what kind of form to make this documentary? Well, you know, really very, very early on, I decided that it had to be a participatory documentary because when you're dealing with a subject of that magnitude, you know, with, with millions of fans around the world, uh, I thought it was really crucial to, to make sure that we, you know, we would give fans around the world the opportunity to participate if they wanted to. And, you know, so, so of course, stylistically, this meant having to let go of a lot of things, you know, because if you open it up to fans, you know, you're not going to get HD across the board, 24 frames per second across the board, <laughs> great cinematography across the board. It's just not possible. So, so we embraced that you know, the fact that there was going to be a lot of different types of footage. And, and I think that's wonderful. I mean, that's, that's actually really what, what got me excited. You know, it was also a huge challenge in post-production, uh, you know, having so many different formats and frame rates. Uh, I can't tell you how many times, you know, Final Cut Pro just crashed. You know, just couldn't handle all these different formats. Uh, you know, and, and you're talking about, you know, we had a total of, I think 634 hours of footage. And, and so it's not so much the amount of footage, but it's the variety of formats and frame rates. There was, uh, it was uh, an absolute nightmare <laughs> for, uh, for my editors, but it was a lot of fun to, to go through all that. And when it comes to the final film, how much of it do you think is that kind of crowdsourced sourcing versus what you guys went out and shot? You know, I would say probably about a third is crowdsourced. I, you know, it's uh, it's really tough to say. I mean, off the top of my head, that's probably what I would what I would uh, what I would say. I mean, there's there's a fair amount of of crowdsourcing footage in there. So you didn't just kind of kick back and say, "I'll let the people make this for me." Oh God, no, no, and you know. <laughs> No, I mean, and that's, you know, that's the thing is, is, you know, at the end of the day, I, I had to tell the story that I felt needed to be told, you know, and, you know, the same footage in the hands of, you know, 10 different directors would be 10 different movies. I, I think, you know, I, I very strongly feel that it's a, it's a very objective look. You know, I, I, I think it's a very loving, uh, look, even though there's a few things, obviously, that, you know, I'll have to, you know, I side with the fans, you know, but overall, I think it's a, it's a loving look. And I think, you know, I think people have, have agreed with that. I mean, if you look at the reviews, you know, for the past, you know, four years and, and, and how the fans have reacted, I mean, across the board, I think for the most part, people, people feel that it's a very fair uh, film. Maybe George doesn't feel that way, but you know, that's, that's George. You landed some amazing interviews here. I mean, I had read some of the stuff that Gary Kurtz had said in the past, but I had never really seen him go on the record in front of a camera for it. And I had never heard Francis Ford Coppola talk about this stuff. How did you land some of these guys? Well, uh, yeah, Gary Kurtz was uh, through um, 
one of our co-producers, co-producers in the UK, uh, Anna Higgs. And uh, that was very, very fortunate um, because that's pretty much as close as we could get, uh, you know, to George. Francis Ford Coppola, actually, that was not an interview that we did. That was um, from another documentary, which uh, the name escapes me now. Uh, there were, I'm sorry, there were just, there was just, you know, so many sources that we've used, but uh, it was that was an existing uh, interview. How on earth did you get rights for some of this stuff? Because you were using footage, not just that people sent you, but then just so many media sources throughout the years. Well, we, we did not get rights very specifically for People vs. George because there's this thing in documentary filmmaking called fair use. So it's a very complicated process. Uh, you have to work very closely with a fair use expert, a fair use lawyer. Um, I mean, the, the way that I describe it, it's it's very similar to... You know, if, if you read a book, a scholarly book that has, you know, footnotes and endnotes, if, if you think about it, if you're making a documentary, you need to be able to reference certain works in order to make a very specific point. So, you know, clearly for, for a film like this, you know, we, <laughs> there's no way that Lucasfilm was going to, you know, give us permission to license their footage. It's just, just not going to happen. So in order to make the film, we had to resort to, you know, to fair use. That that in itself was was a little bit of a <laughs> of a nightmare. It's a very very painstaking process. Uh, you have to be very very precise. You go through endless legal reviews, and then essentially what happens is you get you get a fair use certificate from that you know fair use expert. With that certificate, you can go and get your E and O insurance, errors and emissions insurance, without which you cannot get distribution. So that's that's essentially the you know the process that that we had to go through, and you know uh, of course once we got the annual insurance then then distributors would were okay talking to us because at the end of the day every single clip in the film is insured up to fifteen million dollars, and quite frankly we were very very fortunate to work with Chris Ritter who's one of the top fair use experts in uh, you know in, in the world he took on the project just you know because he's a huge. Star Wars fan, and he's he's never you know he's never lost a single you know fair use case. So we felt we felt really good about you know about uh, <laughs> releasing the film then. So apart from Kurtz, who were some of the people that you tried to go after and were able to land versus some of the ones that you wanted to get but necessarily weren't able to? Well, you know, we tried to go after everybody, of course, and and in fact, our, our very first email was to you know, to Lucasfilm and to George. And, you know, we said, look, we were making this film. It's, uh, it's about the phenomenon of the, you know, this very strange relationship between George and his fans, but it's not a film against George. You know, this, you know, we, we, we made that very clear and we said, you know, we'd love to have your perspective. We'd love to, to invite you for an interview. And so of course, you know, well, that didn't happen. Um, and there were a lot of people, um, I think who were, be probably afraid, you know, to, to talk to us. I mean, you, you'd think it's, uh, you know, we, we, it really felt like we were dealing with a topic like, you know, national security or the NSA or something of that nature because people were just so freaked out, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, well, wait a second, you know, we're, we're talking about a piece of entertainment here. I think we, you know, we should be perhaps a little more relaxed about having that, that sort of open discussion, you know? But I think that, you know, to me, what, what was very telling was trying to talk to 
you know, film preservation specialists. And, you know, we, we contacted all the big organizations. And, you know, I've talked to several film preservation experts on the phone. And, you know, unanimously, when you talk to them on the phone, you know, and, and you know, you mentioned Star Wars and the special edition, you know, the, the first thing that comes out is, oh, God, what a tragedy. You know, we'd love to talk to you about this. And, uh, you know, and then they said, well, you know, uh, you have to, you know, email so-and-so to set up the interview. <laughs> and then, you know, you email so, you know, email so-and-so, and, and two days later you get an email and says, sorry, but we're going to have to turn you down. Uh, you know, and the reason for this is because George Lucas, with you know, which of course is a wonderful thing, you know, funds a lot of these organizations. So, of course, they can't talk to you, you know. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a very, very strange, it was a very strange dog <laughs> to make, but we were very lucky, uh, you know, that said to get Anthony Slide, you know, who's one of the foremost experts, uh, on the topic and, you know, his interview, which obviously is, is, you know, prominently featured in the film, I think was just phenomenal. Well, who were some of your biggest disappointments? I mean, other than Lucas, of course. I, I know, I know we tried Kevin Smith, you know, that didn't work out. Although, you know, he did screen the film in his, in his theater, and we had a... It was a really cool little evening. The, the you know, Hot Waffles guys came and sang, you know, George Lucas raped my childhood on stage, and Kevin was holding the mics and singing along. <laughs> it was uh, it was pretty funky stuff. You know, I, I walked up to, to Mark Hamill at uh, San Diego Comic-Con, uh, and, you know, he was very nice. He was, uh, he, you know, he seemed willing to do it, but... I think it was his wife was next to next to us. You know, I, I gave her my card, and she saw the people over says George Lucas, and she sort of took him away right away. It was, you know, it's it's, you know, I I can tell you so many stories about you know Lucasfilm people. Just um, I don't know, you know, I it's it's interesting to me when you're just when you're making a documentary um, um, about entertainment at the end of the day. Um, that you know, it's 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 terrifying to me that 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 you you know so many people uh, protect that franchise to the point where you can't have a discussion anymore, you know. And what what really um, what really angered me, I think, is this this notion that you know George Lucas, who um, you know has been such a supporter of film preservation. You know, we even went to testify, right, against the colorization of black and white films, and who, who turns around and who doesn't apply the same principles to his own movies that, that you know, in their original form meant so much. You know, to me, you can absolutely make the argument that Star Wars is just far, it's far more than just a movie, and of course it needs to be preserved. In, in you know every form that it has existed needs to be preserved, including the special, the numerous special editions that he's made. You know, um, and I think that's that's why you know you don't um, nobody is complaining about Ridley Scott, you know, releasing five different versions of Blade Runner. <laughs> you know, nobody will ever complain about that. You know, because at the end of the day, they can find a version that they like the best or the one that they remember from you know, from the early days. But this this idea that the original versions have to be destroyed so that the special edition is the only thing that will be left, it's it's a crazy, crazy, crazy notion, and it's a dangerous notion 
if you care about film, you know, and, and if nobody can talk to you about this, you know, people who are, whose job is to preserve our cultural heritage, you know, if they're so afraid to talk to you about this, you're like, well, what kind of a, you know, what kind of a world are we living in here? What's go- what's going on? So that really that really got me going, and I and I feel like that's probably you, you can probably see that I think in the people versus George Lucas. I mean, I think that's the segment where I really really wanted to to make a point. You know, uh, uh, not against George, but against um, against the idea of, you know, what it would mean to, to have this original film disappear forever. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of this kind of, um, I don't know, double talk and just kind of, you know, even to the point of him saying, oh, well, the original has been destroyed now, that we can't have it, you know, that the, the, the elements aren't there. It's like you can make do-backs out of nothing, but mm-hmm. that there's you can't reclaim the original footage just seems a little strange to me. Well, I mean, and look, I mean, and I think Anthony Slide, you know, made the point, you know, I mean, it's, again, it's in the film. I mean, that's, I'm sorry, but that's an outward, it's a lie. You know, you you can't, this idea that the original negatives were permanently altered is a lie. (laughs) So, and, you know, we're going to have proof of that because I'm sure eventually Disney one day is going to say, oh, yeah, here's the, you know, here's the, uh, original, original trilogy for you guys, so all restored in 4K, and have at it. I mean, nobody would do that. I mean, that would be just a, it would be a crazy thing to do, you know? Um, and I think, <laughs> you know, I think George Lucas, there's no way George Lucas would have even considered doing that, you know? So, uh, so you know, why would you, why would you lie to the fans? You know, that's that's the other thing, is, you know, why would you go to that extent of lying to the fans about it. I've I've heard, you know, there's several people who actually worked, you know, with Lucasfilm uh, who told me of the record a different story of why, you know, of of why (laughs) this is happening. Um, And it has actually nothing to do with the fans. I can't can't tell you what this is. But it, 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 it did make sense to me, you know. Oh, now I'm dying to know. <laughs> well, I, I can't tell you on the record. I can't tell you on the record. What's interesting to me is that I've heard that from some, you know, from three different sources of the record. None of these people wanted to say that, uh, you know, which I I understand, you know, uh, why they wouldn't want to say it. But so, so I, I you know, it's, it's it's very sad, but that's what it is. I mean, probably. I'm sure you tried to get Marsha Lucas for this film. Did you hear back from her at all? We we tried to track her down and we really really didn't go anywhere with that. Uh, I, you know she's um, she's a very very difficult woman to find. Um, and I'm you know I I have a hunch that she probably wouldn't have agreed to talk to us. Seems like there's probably a lot of animosity still there. It's interesting how Kurtz kind of lays it out as far as the whole you know their divorce basically being the reason why Return of the Jedi just sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting definitely to talk to Gary about his, you know, their, their creative differences on Jedi. And, and, you know, I think he, it was really, yeah. I mean, great to hear him talk about, you know, his desire to, 
to move to something, you know, different, like obviously Dark Crystal, which is what he did. He just didn't believe in it anymore, you know? Uh, he felt that it was, uh, it was becoming this kind of fun, you know, Disney roller coaster that, you know, this is what George was getting more interested in as opposed to, you know, to storytelling. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, this idea of Disneyfication, you know, and, and the fact that now, of course, Lucasfilm belongs to Disney, you know, did, did in, in fact, the Disneyfication start <laughs> around the time of a return of the Jedi and that it continue, obviously, in a big way with episode one and George R. Binks, you know, could, could, could we really trace it back to, to those, those days? I think it's a, it's a different George Lucas probably around then. And that's, you know, that's what Gary, you know, told us that he felt it was a very different, you know, George became interested in different things, you know, which is not a, a value judgment. I mean, he's obviously been very, very successful doing what he's done. He just became interested in different things. What were some of the most surprising things you found out while making the documentary? Well, you know, I mean, I think, I think again, it's I, to me the most surprising thing was was uh, just how difficult it was to to get really anybody to talk to to, to us, you know, and also, you know, getting a lot of. Um, I think people were assuming a lot of things. Um, you know, many many people just didn't read past the title and so assumed that. It was going to be a nasty, you know, sensational film against George, and uh, you know, I got a I got a handful of death threats and you know, really nasty, you know, emails, which is fine, you know, it's, it's it just comes with uh, with making a film like this, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a very very you know, I don't think people realize how difficult it was, you know, to make to make that film. Um, on, on a lot of levels, you know, legally and, and, uh, you know, there was always the, the possibility that, you know, what if Lucasfilm decided to, you know, attack us? Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, we felt very strongly that, you know, even if that were the case, you know, it probably wasn't a whole lot they could do, but, you know, I mean, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar, uh, enterprise and, and us, you know, they're completely independent filmmakers, you know, so it's, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of, there were a lot of obstacles and a lot of, a lot of white knights and, uh, you know, technically it was very difficult and legally it was very difficult and trying to get the people that we wanted was very difficult. So, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly at the end of the day that it was the, you know, it was the, really the best film we could make, we could make based on, uh, on the circumstances and what we had, you know. You mentioned under your audio commentary that you were still getting footage submitted. Did that finally kind of peter out, or do you still get the occasional um, tape or file submitted to you? <laughs> well, it, it, it eventually stopped, but, uh, you know, of course, now that uh, we've announced episode two, um, it's, it's starting to come in again. <laughs> so it's probably going to keep happening for a little while here. So what's episode two going to bring us? Well, you know, I, I really felt that there was a, a chapter, if you will, and kind of a final chapter that, that really hasn't been told. And, um, you know, so I, I, think, I think right now that episode two is actually going to be probably a 30-minute film. Uh, it's not going to be feature length. 
I, I just don't think there's enough story there. But this this idea of George finally letting go of Star Wars, handing it over to Disney, is an important thing. But there's also this real sort of hero move. I mean, you know, he sold it for $4 billion, but, but reportedly that $4 billion is going to education. And that's a pretty extraordinary thing. I mean, I, I got a call, you know, that day, um, I think it was 5.30 in the morning, from uh, Todd Hansen, who's prominently featured in People vs. George Lucas, who at the time was the uh, head writer for The Onion. And, uh, you know, he called me really, really excited. And, you know, sort of went on an hour-long rant about, you know, George, essentially, you know, he was, he was comparing George's move to, you know, <laughs> Darth Vader at, at the, you know, the climax of Return of the Jedi, just, just you know, throwing the Emperor down the chute, you know. And, and he said, well, that's, you know, that's the most extraordinary thing that, that he could have done. You know, and and we were all wrong, you know, about him. Um, so I, I that that to me is a very interesting story to tell, you know. And I I really want to sort of explain. It's not about you know George quote unquote redeeming redeeming himself. I mean that's a that would be a preposterous thing to do. I mean redeeming himself for what, you know, uh, or, or sorry, preposterous thing to say. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but but there is. I think something really fascinating about this idea that he not only let go of it, uh, but that he, he made something, uh, you know, substantial with with that money, you know, and which is a very very selfless thing to do. Anyway, you know, long story short, I think that's that's an interesting story, and and you know, I feel that um, um, the you know what's going to happen now, right? To to Star Wars, the, the franchise. Now that George is, um, you know, going away. Um, I mean, it's you know, so many fans for so long. I've wanted George, you know, to, to go away, <laughs> uh, and and not always, not always, you know, for personal reasons. Because you know, but it's also you know, they, I think a lot of fans. Because they loved George, wanted him to go and make his personal films that he's been saying for years and years and years he wanted to make. But now that it's happening, now that he's finally leaving, you know, there's a big question mark. You know, because at the end of the day, he is still the god of that universe. Um, and so, what's going to happen? I, I personally think it's it's going to be very positive. You know, um, I mean, what what obviously everybody's saying is, you know, it can't possibly be worse, you know, than the prequel trilogy. <laughs> So no, but I, I think it's going to be a lot better than that. I think it's exciting that they're they're interesting different directors, you know, uh, to do different kinds of movies and and uh, and the fact that it's now an open an open universe, you know, it's there's no longer that weight of the continuity of, in the Star Wars universe. I think that's very interesting, you know. Which of course now the big question is, well, okay, so. Can we remove the holiday special from the canon? Well, do you think we can get the holiday special out on DVD? It'd be awesome, you know. I mean, for what it is, you know, for whatever people think, it's it is it is a, a really cool part of pop culture. You know, it it, it deserves to be immortalized as uh, as uh, as what it is—a great, fun, crazy, bizarre piece of. Pop culture, so yeah, it'd be great to to see it restored, not just on DVD but on Blu-ray. 
you covered so much in the People versus George Lucas. Were there things that you wanted to kind of get out there that weren't necessarily you were able to to find the time or the footage to cover, or do you think that it pretty much told the story that you wanted to tell? No, I felt pretty good about about um, you know really telling the story that I wanted to tell. I mean, there's there's a lot of you know, I mean, look, there's just so much <clears throat> to explore when you start talking about George and Star Wars and, you know, Lucasfilm and all that. But but I, I kept my eye on the ball, which is telling that story of this love-hate dynamic between George and his fans, you know. And, and to me, the arc was always going to be that. It's like this phenomenal love story, absolute passion that turned sour and just became downright dysfunctional, you know, and, and sort of take that into mediation towards the end, you know, like that, that to me was going to always going to be the arc of the people versus George Lucas. So, so anything that didn't fit that particular structure, I, I, you know, I could let go of, I mean, you know, we went, we went to the UK to interview Ray, Ray uh, Barryhausen and we have a, we have an interview with, with Ray Harryhausen that, you know, we, we didn't use, um, you know, you think it's crazy, right? I mean, my gosh, you know, we, we have Ray Harryhausen. Why couldn't we possibly, you know, find 10 seconds or 15 seconds in the film? Well, you know, it just didn't fit the narrative. Unfortunately, I didn't quite get out of him what I was hoping to get. So, I mean, that's how strongly I believe about, you know, I really believe in, in sticking to the story you're trying to tell, you know, I mean, there's a lot of uh, Star Wars fans that get a lot more screen time than Gary Kurtz in The People vs. George Lucas. So it's not about who you are, how important you are. <laughs> it's, it's about, you know, uh, do, you, do you belong in this, in this story? And that's, that's always been my, you know, my philosophy, I think, in, in making films. So after you made The People versus George Lucas, you went to The Life and Times of Paul the Psychic Octopus, the mm-hmm. octopus who is so famous for making uh, World Cup predictions. Who do right. you think is crazier, World Cup fans or Star Wars fans? Well, you know, I, 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 will, I will always hesitate to use the word crazy when I talk about fans, because I, um, I think fans are really just passionate. You know, and when you're passionate about something you, uh, well, I mean, you express yourself. And yeah, sometimes, sure, that passion can, can go a little bit overboard. But but it really fascinates me, you know, and, and I I feel like, you know, we, we'd live in a better world if, if we could just get passionate about that kind of stuff and and not so, not so much about some other issues where we start killing each other, unfortunately, you know. That's, but that's the kind of world we live in. But so, yeah, so, so, you know, I'm, I'm really drawn to, you know, worlds and cultures that people feel so passionate about that they feel compelled to, you know, take a stance and be vocal about it. Um, and, you know, it becomes so important to them that in a way it's a form of religion, you know, it really is. Uh, when you believe in something and you love something so much and it's an important part of your childhood, uh, of your belief system in a way, um, then it's, uh, it's very important. And I think, you know, people shouldn't trivialize that. 
you know, uh, people who look down at, you know, fans of, of whatever, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who, whatever the case may be, soccer fans. Um, well, you know, I think, I think you have to respect this idea that, that, you know, people are and can be passionate about just about anything. You kind of went on to yet another subculture with your most recent work, Doc of the Dead. How has that one been received? You know, it's been really great. I I, uh, I really couldn't ask for more. I mean, I've been I've been uh, touring with the film since March. Obviously, we premiered also at South by Southwest with that film, and I've I've been around the world uh, a few times uh, already since March. And you know, I'm I'm about to leave again. So <laughs> usually, these uh, you know these films that make me spin around the globe a, a few times, which is uh, yeah, it's very cool. You know, it's very cool to be able to to share it with uh, different audiences, different cultures, uh, get their reactions. You know, the, the, the media um, reactions or reviews have been really, really good. You know, pretty much on par, actually, with people versus George. I mean, we're getting the, you know, 70, 72% range, um, you know, across the board, um, which, quite frankly, I would, I would take right now. If you give that to me for the rest of my career, I would take that <laughs> any day, you know. Uh, it makes me makes me very happy, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, fans have, have really also embraced it. And I think there was a very sort of similar uh, challenge in the way that I wanted to to, to to make this film really really enjoyable to hardcore zombie fans, um, but also accessible to people who don't know the first thing about zombies. Um, and and I really wanted both groups, you know, to to really take something out of it. So. You know, same same with people versus George Lucas. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people actually who came up to me after the screen, you know, screening and said, you know, I've, I've never seen Star Wars, but I really enjoyed your film. Uh, so that's you know, that's that's pretty cool. That statement always just blows me away. I've never seen Star. I know, I know, I know. There are, you know, I, and I agree because I was, you know, I was I was also raised with that. But at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of other things in life. <laughs> <laughs> so did you get any death threats from Doc of the Dead? No, no, I didn't get any death threats. I think, uh, you know, th- there is one comment that I get a lot, and I, and I understand it, you know, is where is Lucio Fulci? Uh, that's, that's funny because that's the one comment. That's the one criticism that comes. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons. You know, I, I, again, it's like, what's the story? Well, my story was... You know, I really wanted to explore this idea of, of why zombies are so popular today. So in order to get there, to get to this idea of culture, I wanted to, to really map out the milestones in the history of zombie culture, leading to, you know, that would potentially uh, enlighten us about why we are where we are today. Uh, so in doing so, I had to leave a lot of great movies and movements that, that I wanted to, to include, that I would have liked to include, had I made a film about truly the history of zombie movies. Well, yeah, then, then you can't leave Lucio Fulci out, you know. Uh, but that's not what Dark of the Dead is about. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a ton of, you know, I could, I could name a ton of other films that I wanted to include and that just couldn't. So, but I couldn't, first of all, because it wasn't really part of the story. And then also there's, you know, there's this whole other challenge of licensing, which actually in the case of Dark of the Dead, we couldn't go with fair use because... The film was financed by Epics, and they they didn't even want <laughs> to entertain the idea of doing fair use. So we had to license everything, and and you know we had 
we had a fairly limited budget in terms of licensing, so we had to be very, very judicious in our in our choices um, for licensing. So, therefore, Fulci had to had to go. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Don't be scared. It's only the Death Star destroying another world. Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. All right. Thanks to Alexander for coming on the show and talking to us about the people versus George Lucas and so much more. And, um, yeah, I, <laughs> it was a weird situation for me to have been in the film and then be asking him questions about the making of the film and stuff. So hopefully I didn't sound too hammy when it comes to that. And that's why I let you guys talk about the people versus George Lucas. Cause I just feel weird, like going on too much about it. I personally, I thought that it was a terrific film and I was really glad to see some of the interviews in that movie, especially the ones with Kurtz. I thought they did a terrific job and there were times where it was just like the whole idea of, George Lucas raped our childhood, that thing. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those like, ah, ha, ha kind of things, but I don't necessarily agree with it though. I feel, I guess maybe it's just a, a different semantic thing. You know, like I don't want to make a rape joke right here, but I will make a golden showers joke and just feel like George Lucas pissed on my childhood instead of raped me. So he's not the late night sneaky uncle that like a uh, Brian Posehn would kind of, you know, have in his skit about George Lucas. Yeah, yeah. See, see, I think this is where I branch off where guys like you take it personal and I get pissed off because he's fucking with art. That's where the divider is, where instead of me getting pissed off at the fact that he's fucked up something that is important to me in my childhood, I'm more like, come on, like, this is art. Like, don't fucking change it. Don't hide things from it. It's like, put it out there in the version that originally was because it's an important cultural artifact. And that's one of the things that they go into in the documentary because they say the Library of Congress says it's an important film. It's an important cultural touchstone and work and has historic and cultural and artistic value. What version of the film are we talking about? Are we talking about the 1977 version or are we talking about when he put in all the extra stuff? No, they're talking about the 1977 version, but that doesn't exist anymore, as we've discussed. So here I am in fifth grade now, and I'm about ready to see Return of the Jedi. I'm in fifth grade, I'm in Mr. Menifee's class, and this guy, Pat Snyder, this kind of weird guy, he had these big burns on his face because he had, like, I don't know, allegedly, he was a liar. I should put that out there right now. Pat Snyder was a liar. He might still be a liar, if he's even still alive. The burns were from his pants. He said they were from some fireworks that got out of control. I don't know if that's true. I think maybe he was on the forefront of the whole Breaking Bad thing, and he was cooking meth in the fifth grade. That I wouldn't put past him. I didn't necessarily think Pat Schneider was an outright liar until he's telling me one day that he went to see. He saw a special sneak preview of Return of the Jedi. I don't know any better, so I'm just eating this stuff up. Oh my god, you gotta tell me about this movie. And he's talking about this, and he is describing to me what is going to be the ultimate lightsaber battle. It is Yoda battling 
Darth Vader. And I can't believe, I'm like, how is this going to happen? I mean, Yoda's so small and Darth Vader's so tall. This is crazy. He's like, oh yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's, you know, and he's hopping all around. And at one point he like runs through and like, you know, basically cuts Darth Vader in half, like with his lightsaber, he runs through his legs and cuts him in half. I'm just like, oh my God, you know, my mind is blown. Well, obviously a few months later I go and I see the movie and that isn't there at all. And I'm just like, Pat Snyder, what the fuck were you trying to tell me? Cut to 20 some years later and I'm watching what attack of the clones. I, I forget the order of some of this stuff. I mean, the whole prequels are kind of a mush in my mind. I get to see Yoda fighting count Dooku. Mm-hmm. It's basically the, the battle that <laughs> Pat Snyder described to me in the fifth uh-huh. grade. <laughs> I see what happened. Pat Snyder was brought in for an uncredited rewrite on that sequel. And uh, that's what happened. Pat Snyder is a time Lord. Yeah, that's what I think. I think time went all wibbly wobbly, <laughs> and Pat Snyder got in there and yeah, did that rewrite on the script. Said George, this is going to be fantastic. You got to have Yoda hip hopping around, going around this guy who's like four times his size, and you got to have this this battle here. You got the technology, do it all in CGI. Forget fuck this puppetry stuff. Mm. And he's like, that that sounds great, Pat. I'll do that. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. There you go. <laughs> The prequels crack me up in a lot of ways, but especially the ways that this whole idea of, I had all six stories thought out originally, this is how it is always was supposed to be, that versus midichlorians, they're all over that first movie. After that backlash, they're not in the second and third movie. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks, all over that first movie. Not quite there in the second and third movie. Just just there enough to give the Empire the push. Exactly. To basically fuck over the entire galaxy. Yes. Which is great. I do like that about about what they did with his character. That was yes. pretty funny. Oh, you hate this guy? Well, he's the reason you have cool stuff to look at. Going all the way back to talking about uh, Michael Kaminsky's book, this whole thing of George Lucas, the creator, him talking about what he wants to do for the original star Wars movie, like back in 1975 kind of thing. And he's talking about like, Oh yeah, there's going to be a lava planet. There's going to be a a city planet. There's going to be a forest planet. There's going to be this kind of stuff. Listen off all this stuff. And it's funny because once George Lucas has an idea, it's like, he doesn't ever want to get rid of it. It's just like, he's got to find a way. So it's so funny that like the prequels were where he was finally able to get Coruscant, the city planet. And he was able to have the big lava planet and all this stuff. Cause for the first three films, he was trying to get that lava planet in there somehow. And it's just yeah. like, I'm going to work it in, man. I'm going to do it. And he's really like that when it comes to like so many things, you know, Rob, you talked about Indiana Jones and stuff and reading those story sessions that Lucas Spielberg and Kasdan had about Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's just amazing. I don't know if you guys have ever read those transcripts, but it's just like Lucas and Spielberg were on fucking fire. And especially of all people, Lucas, Lucas was fucking amazing in those story sessions. And he's just like, well, I want to see this and I want to see that. And I think that this should happen and this should happen. And just throwing out all this stuff, man. And it's just like, you know, if I don't know what the time period was, but when you're reading this like 40 page document, you're just seeing this movie evolving, evolving, evolving so quickly. 
And then there's a bunch of dumb ideas, and those get tossed out, right? But then all of those things end up being in Temple of Doom. They're on an airplane, and they have to jump out, and there's a life raft, and they use the life raft to go down the mountain. Don't judge me too harshly. I was six when I saw it, I so won't, there you go. I won't, but it's just so funny. The other thing that always cracks me up, though, and Lucas gets so bent out of shape at one point because he's talking about the well of the souls, right? And you got the staff that's a certain height, and at a certain time of day, the sun shines through it and points to the location of you know the, of the Ark of the Covenant, right? And, uh, sorry, it was the map room, not the well of the souls. And he starts talking about, like, well, you know, over 2,000 years, the Earth has shifted in the way that the sun is and all this, and I don't think that that would actually work. And it's like, what? <laughs> what? Are you serious? This is a movie. <laughs> it's some of the most enlightening stuff I've I've read. It is just so great. And to read Lucas though, talking about the age difference between Marion and Indy, Ooh. that gets creepy as fuck, man. Yeah. He wants her to have been like fourteen yep. when Indy was twenty and stuff. And it's like, oh, that's a little incestuous. But going back to like the prequels and everything that came forward, I, I've got a, an idea on this, and I just want to run this by you guys, and I know this is another one of those parlor games, but you know, I'm a big fan of The Residents, and one of the things that The Residents had in terms of their music was the idea that if you're an obscure artist, you can do whatever you want because you're unburdened by the audience. The you know, Once you become an established name and people have a face for you and they, they know who you are, then they expect certain things. And therefore, you can't really create as well as you would like to because there's this persona that you have to maintain. And I often wonder if George Lucas, when it comes to Star Wars has become trapped by his own creation, meaning that he would like to do certain things or could do certain things, but there's an expectation of the audience in a particular way. And even if he fails miserably, which you know the prequels uh, have shown that not a lot of people like those, it just seems like he can't do a pure vision of what he would want to do because he's trapped by, well, I guess I got to put this in there and I got to put this in there and I've got to explain this thing. And, you know, like you were saying about how in the first film and the prequels, this idea is brought up and then it gets dropped really quick <laughs> moving forward. So, you know, um, I, I mean, do you feel that that might be the case that, you know, basically he's a victim of his own success in a particular way? I'm going to use the most infuriating answer that there can be and say yes and no. <laughs> because I think that he could have done so much of a better job when it came to those prequels. And the thing that kind of kills me when it comes to the prequels is that here it is, 1983, Jedi's coming out, and he's just like, I'm done. Getting divorced from Marsha, just stuff's not going his way. He's done. I want to spend time with my kid. I want to do all this kind of stuff. Forget about it. He's got from 1983 to 1999 to come up with this stuff. And then when you watch the prequels, it feels so rushed. And it was rushed. I mean, it was like he's not given the script for Attack of the Clones to the ILM guys until like two days before shooting kind of thing. And it's just like, what? And it just feels so thrown together. And he's not doing the same stuff that he was doing at the beginning as far as like he doesn't have – the council, you know, he doesn't have his Coppola, he doesn't have his Marcia, he doesn't have his Cats and Hike, he doesn't have his De Palma, he doesn't have these people around there to say, 
George, this is a bad idea. He's you know talking about the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing. You got Kasdan and Spielberg, and Kasdan he's probably not going to say a whole lot, but Spielberg would say no. You know, I think that's a bad idea, or let's move on and, and come back to that kind of thing. He didn't have anybody there. He didn't have a a, um, a Kurtz to Gary Kurtz to tell him no. He had Rick McCallan, who was just there. Yes, anything you want, George. And it just felt like everything was so slapdash. And it's like this is the best you could do with so many years to come up with this stuff. And it just like there's so many holes and so many plots that just don't make sense. And then you write yourself into a corner. I mean, you know, the end of the story, the end of the story is episode four. Now you got to get there. And it feels like there's just this miss, you know, and now it feels like he's doing all this shit to the original films, not just to make them special editions, quote unquote, but now to fix his mistakes. You know, the things that he thinks are mistakes, the things that don't make sense to me, like replacing the actor who played old Anakin with Hayden Christensen at the end of Return of the Jedi. And it's just like, wait, so Obi-Wan, when he died, he's old. Yoda, when he died, he's old. But Anakin, when he dies, he's young. It's like, why don't you stick Ewan McGregor in there then? If you're going to do that, that this doesn't make any sense. And there's just so many things like that. And like, okay, well, now I've got to redub all of Boba Fett's lines with you know the guy who played Boba Fett or Jango Fett, I should say, in the prequels, because they're all clones of him, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> are you going to redub all the stormtroopers too? Because are they all clones now? And just all this high, kind of like weird retrofitting of stuff that he does. So that's the the no part. He can't fix the one glaring issue that I have with the whole thing that. Ewan McGregor aged into Alec Guinness in 18 years. The time frame is just, no, it just doesn't work. Do you know how hard it is to be a Jedi? I mean, like, look <laughs> at the president. Like, Obama came in, he had dark hair, now he's all gray. This is what happens. It's like being the president. It just fucking takes a toll on your life. It's hard out here for a Jedi. I guess so. Maybe Obi-Wan Kenobi is old, but I think Ben Kenobi pretty young guy the prequels definitely could have benefited from some people that weren't afraid of getting fired for saying no there are things that even when you watch and god help you if you do and i know a lot of people defend this movie and i don't know why you watch revenge of the sith Mm. and it's just like the stuff that leads up to palpatine talking about being able to save amidala the scenes around that scene don't support that particular scene i mean that was a reshoot and you can totally tell it was a reshoot you know more than ewan mcgregor's fake beard that he wears in certain scenes when he came back for reshoots so it's just like it it doesn't fit together even within the movie it doesn't fit together you want to know the one other big thing that bothered me about sith and this is how this is how stupid nitpicky i am after anakin becomes darth because we'll call him Darth. Um, he should have got his red lightsaber. Because watching yeah. a lightsaber fight with two shadowed people with blue blades, I don't, I don't care anymore. Because I don't know who's who. All of the tension is gone because, like, you're wearing the same outfits in in silhouette. So, uh, imagine the the impact it would have been if Anakin had have ignited a red lightsaber in front of Ben. That would have been a signal, man. That would have just been like, oh. 
it's on now. Yeah. And I also think that when um, Order 66 was given, the droid army should have teamed up with the clones because the droid army just got forgotten. They should have all just turned at once and just blown craters in the ground together. But that's just me. You know, the the one thing that was nice, though, about the prequels was that, you know, George Lucas had borrowed from all of these different places in the earlier films. And then he decided that, you know, who needs to return to cinema because he's been lost and forgotten and maligned is Step and Fetch It. And I really think that him going back to blackface, but not doing it in blackface with Jar Jar Binks was really a very brave choice. People, they talk about Watto being an Italian merchant. And I'm just like... I don't know. He kind of looks like the 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 Judsus, you know, like uh, hook nose Jewish merchant yeah. to me. Yeah, I don't get when people talk about him being Italian. It's like, are you you're not familiar with anti-Semitic propaganda at all? Yeah, he totally struck me as like a a, a Brooklyn Jew. This technological wonder that George Lucas has created has led to a lot of horrible things. Has led to these changes that he's done you know the making the special edition the first time around 1997 those changes cost as much as the original movie so doesn't make sense doesn't make sense at all especially since computers are cheap right but (laughs) yeah but the people sitting in front of them yeah that's why you gotta hire koreans for that stuff (laughs) hey now there are things though that George Lucas actually doesn't get credit for, which I find hilarious. Like we've talked about ILM. We've talked about THX. Uh, I'm trying to think of other three letter acronyms I can throw out there. Kind of reminds me of um, George Lucas and love. You're George Lucas, right? Yeah. I'm Marion. I loved your student films. 142086-1867. Great titles. He, uh, he's also responsible for NSA, correct? Or am I off? Okay, okay, good. The technology behind nonlinear editing came out of Return of the Jedi. This whole idea of the edit droid, and obviously droid being part of the name. Edit droid was kind of rolled into what became the Avid, which became basically the the model for all nonlinear editing today, which is something that he doesn't necessarily get credit for. And I think that's some of the some of the bad that he's done over the years has led to some of the good stuff. And then the other thing that people don't give him credit for is some of the computer animation that he was doing in some of the, the films, especially again, Return of the Jedi. That's what eventually led to Pixar. So it's like you know, there's. It's not a dotted line. It's like a direct line between what he was doing in these, you know, eighty three, eighty two kind of stuff, to what we're seeing today, which I find to be absolutely fantastic. At the same time, you know, for better or for worse, I think that the advent of the prequels is really what pushed digital cinema into being what it is today. Because that was the thing, you know, Rob, you're talking about the re- retrofitting of the theaters to handle the sound and there's that whole thing about THX sound and if it doesn't sound good you got to call this number all this kind of stuff he really pushed for digital projection of these prequels and really helped in quotes and I know Chris you're a projectionist so you can you probably have a lot of opinions about this stuff but he was the one who really helped get the projectors installed in places so that they could handle these things and that was like the whole thing like god I'm going to date myself quite a bit but in the newspaper i would say 
projected and digital, you know, yeah. digital, digitally projected. And that was like the selling point. Like, oh, did you see it in digital? It was kind of what they were trying to do with The Hobbit, where it was like, did you see it in the 48 frames, you know, which was a disaster. But, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. one of those things, too. You making this sort of pro and con list of George Lucas here kind of reminds me of a film documentary Errol Morris did on Robert McNamara. If you haven't seen The Fog of War, see The Fog the of War. The Fog of Star Wars. <laughs> because what what this reminds me of is that the pro and con column of McNamara is the guy helped engineer the firebombing of Japan. The guy helped create Vietnam and make it even bloodier than it was. But in this column, he created safety features in Ford automobiles and had brought about seatbelts, which saved millions of lives and keep people from being injured. So you have, you know, safety features in cars versus the Vietnam War, which is like George Lucas created all these great technical advances, but then did the prequels. So it's kind of this balance off of uh, a guy's, you know, life between the good column and the bad column. I totally agree. And I just, yes, I just called George Lucas, Robert McNamara. So I guess I, <laughs> I, 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 I've gone off the rails. I've heard him compared to Charles Foster Kane before, and I thought that was a very fitting thing. But we'll definitely talk about those Plinkett reviews in a little bit here. So, But before we do that, let's take another break and play an interview with Harmy, the creator of the Star Wars Despecialized version, which might be the closest we are ever going to get to seeing the original Star Wars again. What was your inspiration for the Despecialized Edition? I would have to say, uh, you know, being able to show Star Wars uh, to people who haven't seen it before in its purest form. That's basically how I uh, started doing the first Despecialized Edition, which I never actually uh, made public. I just made it for myself. Uh, just to be able to show it to uh, my little brother when he uh, when he's old enough, and uh, my then girlfriend. What was your approach to trying to kind of undo the mess that George Lucas had created? I don't know how familiar uh, your listeners are with uh, what the Despecialized Edition is, or how how much into detail I should go. Uh, basically, I, I took all the different sources I had at my disposal, which at the time was the HGTV broadcasts of the special editions that were uh, on the DVD, uh, and also the 2006 bonus DVDs, uh, which were the original versions, but were of very low quality. I also used some Laserdisc transfers, uh, and I sort of put it all together uh, tried to improve the quality of the lower quality sources and tried to make it match altogether so it's not it's not a jarring experience. I think the version that I saw is the version that's marked 2.5. Right. When did the first one come out? Hmm, I would have to say 2010 maybe or earlier even 2009. I'm not sure. Well, I actually, the first thing I did was uh, what I called a partly despecialized edition, where uh, where I took just the most offensive changes uh, and uh, removed those, and then uh, then I wanted to do a version two of these partly despecialized editions, and uh, 
I found myself removing more and more of the changes uh, to a point where I basically decided to, <laughs> I could just as well call it the despecialized edition and try to actually recreate the uh, actual original cuts. You use the word offensive when it comes to the changes that you're trying to remove. Yeah. Why offensive? Why were you offended by these changes? Uh, well, because uh, Star Wars is a is a work of art, and it's part of uh, not only American but uh, global culture and cultural history. It's won several Academy Awards in its original form, and uh, many many of the parts that actually won the Academy Academy Awards uh, were changed in the special editions. It, it won uh, an Oscar for, of course, for the special effects, and they changed most of the special effects in the special edition. It won for editing. They changed the editing, uh, put, in, put uh, cut scenes back in, recut some of the scenes, changed the pacing of some, some of the scenes. Uh, so they definitely changed the, the editing and... Even the the Oscar winning score suffered in places uh, from either cuts or the new sound mixes. So that's that's why offensive because it uh, some of these changes actually remove some of the Oscar winning aspects of the movie. So it's one thing to kind of do this for yourself and do it for you know your little brother, or your girlfriend at the time, all this kind of stuff. What was the impetus to release this more to the global audience via the interwebs? Part uh, part of how it all started was uh, I was a member uh, at the OriginalTrilogy.com forum, and uh, there were a lot of people there who were uh, very enthusiastic about. Uh, what I was doing, so I, I wanted to share it with them, and then it sort of went on to... I never expect, expected it to become as big as it did. It sort of went out of my control, really. Uh, not that I'm complaining. I'm, I'm very happy that uh, a lot of people, or that so many people are uh, enjoying the fruits of my labor, but that was never really the plan. When it comes to what kind of occurred next, you know, with version 1. whatever, all the way up to 2 and 2.5. How did the despecialized edition change? Oh, it, it changed quite a bit, actually. Like, when, if you compare it, I'm not even talking about the first partly despecialized editions, because uh, I, I'm completely self-taught in these things. I never studied it at school or anything. You know, as I progressed through these versions, I got better and better at it. And not only uh, the sort of artistic aspect of it, like doing the actual editing, but also the technical, uh, like doing the encoding and uh, preparing the sources before I even started working with them, making sure all the frame rates were the same and stuff like that, that I had no idea about when I first started. So uh, the first version uh, is not only... Uh, less despecialized there are still some uh, th there are still some uh, of these less obvious special edition changes left uh, but also it's lower video quality uh, generally because i i didn't know all the tricks of uh, the proper encoding and even though they're the same size 
uh, they're much more compressed because uh, I didn't I didn't know how to do it properly back then. Also, I wasn't uh, I wasn't using all the same software. I was using sort of lower grade software on the first versions, sort of amateur, you could say. I was using PowerDirector, and then later I got uh, got into uh, Adobe Premiere and After Effects, and uh, I was able to do a lot better job on the later versions. I have to ask, as you're making these tweaks, as you're despecializing stuff, taking things out, were you ever tempted to do any fixes yourself to what was originally there? Never, <laughs> no. Actually, I, I uh, in some places, I recreated mistakes that were uh, fixed for the special editions. Can you give me any examples? Um, it's sort of hard to uh, explain without any visual aids, but... Uh, for example, there's uh, there's this one shot uh, where uh, it's a comp- it's a composite shot of uh, Luke inside inside of the X-wing cockpit, and for the last I don't know five or three frames of the shot, the background behind him sort of freezes mid frame, and this was fixed for the special edition, and I sort of returned it to its original state. Uh, another example is uh, in one of the shots. Uh, there, are, it's a shot of three Tie Fighters, Darth Vader's Tie Fighter, and the two normal Tie Fighters in in the shots. And uh, for the first, I think two or three frames, uh, one of the Tie Fighters was missing from the shot completely, and then it just sort of pops in after <laughs> three frames. And they fixed this in the special editions, and I, I erased it again and for the despecialized and stuff like that. So I was never tempted to do any fixes myself. As the fixing despecialization kind of progressed, you mentioned a couple of your sources, but it seems like the source list has kind of increased over the years. How did that occur? I I already mentioned originaltrilogy.com, and uh, obviously I'm not the, the only person working on preserving these films. And there are many approaches to doing so. One is trying to pull together all the best sources for all the shots, and uh, which is what I did. But uh, another, of course, is to take some of the older sources and try to uh, preserve or even enhance them to be the same cut of the movie, but better quality, uh, upscale them to high definition and... So many people were doing projects like this. Uh, I could, uh, I could mention Dark Jedi, who was uh, upscaling uh, the Gout DVD, the 2006 bonus DVD, to uh, to HD, and I used a lot of his work because because it already it was already the 2006 DVD made to look better. Uh, so I was able to to use a lot of his work. And then, of course, uh, later, there were uh, first attempts started by fans to actually scan 35 millimeter film. So some some people somewhere got a hold of uh, an actual 35 millimeter print of Star Wars. And because this sort of technology is becoming way, uh, way more available to the general public, both in in price, but also you could uh, because we have all this sort of technology, 
uh, you, they actually were able to build a scan them, uh, a scanner themselves. So so they built they built a scanner from an old projector and uh, a digital camera. They were able to scan this print. But now, of course, this is a a projection print that was shown in theaters, uh, which is about four generations removed from the original negative. So uh, the detail isn't quite the same, but it's still far better than anything else uh, out there on home video, other than uh, the Blu-rays, which of course are the butchered version. So these are the original versions and they're able to uh, scan them in at high definition. Uh, there's a lot of dirt and noise uh, which needs to be cleaned, but it has it has the detail. That was one of the last sources I was able to acquire. And uh, at the time, they only had a couple of scenes scanned in, uh, so I, I only got I only got a few few shots from them. But those were great, and they improved the overall quality quite a bit. What were some of the things that you were missing that they were able to provide this way? Well, I wasn't uh, so much missing them as uh, I didn't have them in such good quality. I mean, if I could get this source for the entire movie, that would be the best way to do it. Just take the take the scenes that were unchanged from the Blu-ray and then replace everything else with 35 millimeter scans. So I, I already had those scenes from the Gout DVD and from the Laserdisc, uh, but thanks to these 35 millimeter scans, I was able to uh, make them look much, much better. One example is the whole uh, entrance to Mos Eisley when uh, Luke and Obi-Wan and the droids first come into Mos Eisley. There were a lot of digital changes made uh, digital dinosaurs were added and whole new shots were put in disrupting the original editing and I was I was able to uh, remove all those changes uh, and keep the quality pretty much the same as the blu-ray thanks to those 35 millimeter shots one of the things on your source list is Pujo Grande the um, 1977 16 millimeter version of it can you tell me a little bit more about that Pago is actually a, a, a good friend of mine. We've met personally, and he's doing these. Uh, he, he was one of the first people to actually do film preservations for Star Wars. 16 millimeter uh, film is has far less detail than 35 millimeter. Uh, plus, he didn't have an actual scanner. Uh, he had this machine which was built from again a digital camera and uh, some optics and stuff but it didn't actually scan it uh it went through the actual lens of the camera so the the quality isn't that great especially compared to like the proper 35 millimeter scans uh but even uh in some aspects even the the dvd the dvds are better uh, but there were some aspects to it uh, that were still worth uh, using. Like it had less aliasing, uh, which is those like jagged lines. So, so I was able to just use small elements of it to replace some of the jagged edges uh, in some of the shots and stuff like that. 
And uh, actually, I think still to to this day, uh, Pago's version is some some people's preferred version because they feel it's more authentic. It has all the dirt in it, and there was no cleanup done to it or anything. It's just the thirty uh, the sixteen millimeter film as it is, as if you just showed it with uh, with a projector and filmed that with a camera. Although his process is a little bit complicated, more complicated than that, and yields a little better result, of course, but it it just feels very authentic to uh, sort of watching a 16 millimeter print at home. I was curious about one particular shot, one shot that has bothered me for a long time. Where did you manage to find the opening without episode four? Oh, I uh, didn't actually. I recreated it. I I took the actually on uh, on the uh, 2006 DVD. They dug it up from somewhere and uh, added it to the the rest of the DVD was just uh, the old Laserdisc transfer. Uh, but the old Laserdisc transfer had the episode four because this was a change made in uh, I think 1981. But they they managed to find it somewhere and add it to uh, the laser transfer. Uh, but of course, still it was just non-anamorphic DVD resolution. So what I did, I uh, extracted the text from this uh, DVD resolution uh, opening crawl, straightened it up to make a proper normal straight text out of it. Uh, and then use 3D animation to uh, recreate the original movement of the text. So I used the original elements, but I recreated the the crawl in HD. When it came to the audio, I remember even way back when there were certain things that were in some versions that weren't in others. C-3PO's line about... The tractor beam is coupled to the main reactor in seven locations. A power loss at one of the terminals will allow the ship to leave. How did you decide to go about which audio version you were going to use for this? Uh, very simply. Uh, the Despecialized Edition contains all three original audio mixes, and you can choose between them. Those are not my work. Uh, those, were, uh, those were made by uh, two guys, uh, Belbacus and <laughs> Harry Hen is his uh, internet nickname. And they, they are both like sound engineers who took basically did something similar to what I did uh, with the video uh, and took the best sources available and sort of uh, uh, recreated those, uh, those mixes uh, in the highest possible quality from, uh, from Laserdisc audio and uh, even some VHS elements. For example, the mono mix. Uh, was only available as a VHS recording of some obscure British broadcast. It was never never officially made available anywhere else. So this guy, Belbacus, actually took that and cleaned it up. And, and actually, considering the source, it sounds very, very good. And then uh, 
the uh, original seven, uh, 77 stereo mix was, I think, available in PCM on some of the Laserdisc releases, but the uh, original 70mm mix was was also never available uh, and this was this was already a six channel mix back in 77 but it was it was used as a basis for the 1993 mix that was on the 1993 laser disc uh, but there it was downmixed to stereo and some new sound effects were added here and there uh, and this uh, this guy who calls himself uh, Harry Han was able to was able to recreate the original sound mix from from that patching up the or re- replacing the added sound effects with the original uh, from the stereo mix uh, and upsampling it using uh, I I'm really not very good with sound personally so I don't know how exactly it works but when they downmix uh, these uh, multi-channel mixes into stereo, you can still sort of matrix out the original channels uh, using some methods. So he actually got a 5.1 mix out of this. He got uh, all the five channels out of it, and then he recreated the uh, LFE channel, the base channel he recreated separately. Do any of these audio tracks include Sheila Fraser's original voice, uh, Aunt Baru? Uh, yes, yes. Well, actually, uh, it's unknown whether it's whether it is her, her actual voice. Uh, it's a different. It's definitely a different take from what's uh, in the other mixes. But yes, the uh, the original mono mix has the different uh, Aunt Baru lines. Yeah, at last tr- count, I saw that there were at least 21 tracks of audio on this thing, and that <laughs> is just insane. I think this is uh, one of the aspects uh, of the Specialized that is not talked about enough. I didn't have that much to do with it. There are uh, other people on the forum who are actually responsible for this. For one, the people who actually preserve the sound mixes, uh, but then also uh, this guy called Catbus, who collects all the sound mixes and subtitles and uh, stuff like that. Uh, so we, uh, you have about five or six English different English mixes because you have the original three from '77, but then you also have the uh, the different Laserdisc mixes where they changed the mix a little bit, added new sound effects and stuff like that. Uh, And then you have the various different uh, foreign dubbings. That's what I wanted to say originally is that it's uh, very uh, approachable by people from all over the world, which was one of the goals to make uh, the original version available to everyone to be able to see the original versions so there are uh, i think i think there are about 12 or more languages to choose from and there are possibly around 50 subtitle languages available for it then also i included all the uh, commentaries which I had to uh, recut to fit the original version, but you have the Laserdisc commentary, you have the 2004 DVD commentary, and the new Blu-ray commentary. 
So those are all available with it as well. It seems like you've gotten a lot of support from the community when it comes to OriginalTrilogy.com. These people helping you out with sources, with audio, all this kind of stuff. When the film has reached outside of the community, what's kind of been the reaction to it? Well, it was uh, generally very positive. I mean, of course, I, I got a few people saying, like, you know, this is... George Lucas's film and whatever, but no one's taking it from him. I mean, he's completely free to keep releasing his special editions and selling them to the people who want them. I actually, I actually bought every single edition that he ever put out. I, you know, I have the Blu-rays, I have the DVDs, I have the VHS. Whatever, whatever next release comes out, I will probably buy too. Do you? ever foresee a day when the despecialized version won't be needed that there comes the release of the original version from Lucasfilm I hope so but uh, it so far it doesn't look very good I mean uh, I was hoping when Disney got uh, got the rights from Lucas they would release it but they've, they've had them for quite a while now, and there wasn't a single word about any sort of uh, original version release. But I would certainly hope so. Like, I mean, uh, the goal here is to get the original versions. And if we could get them from an official source, I couldn't be happier. How many hours do you think that you've spent on this project? Oh, God. <laughs> Thousands. I mean, I, I, have no, I have no earthly idea. <laughs> it's like, when it comes to the despecialized versions of Empire and of Jedi, what were some of the things that you changed with those that weren't necessarily available on the uh, some of the DVD releases before? Jedi is still on version 1.0 currently, so that's a very that's a very basic despecialized version where I mostly just use the uh, the DVD version for the original shots uh, but empires on version 2.0 but it uh, I did it after I did 2.5 of Star Wars so on technical level it's pretty much on par with version 2.5 of Star Wars I've also had some 35 millimeter sources for that uh, which was great because there were certain scenes in Empire specifically which were very difficult to uh, remove without a high-quality source because there were entire shots missing and stuff like that. I've always been under the impression that Empire wasn't as messed around with, at least in you know some of the early VHS releases and you know one of, there's at least one DVD release out there where I thought we were pretty close with that. Is that not the case? The sheer number of shots is about the same as Return of the Jedi. Both are about half that of Star Wars. I mean, the, the shots that were changed. There, there are, I think, about 400 changed shots in Star Wars. It adds up to about half an hour. So one quarter of the film has been changed in one way or another for the special edition. It's a little less with Empire and Jedi, but some of the and Empire definitely uh, got the best treatment in terms of special edition. The changes made to Empire were probably the least offensive ones. 
but like I said, there were there were a few things uh, places where things were recut a little bit. So there were parts of shots missing, or or the shots where uh, the windows were added in uh, the Cloud City, which weren't particularly offensive. But doing a despecialized edition, you want to get rid of those as well. Uh, and it was pretty difficult to get rid of uh, get rid of those using the low quality sources. Uh, so for version 2.0, I finally got a really high quality source, and I think they're pretty much seamlessly uh, replaced now. Perfect HD. And then you have Return of the Jedi, which has probably the least number of changes, but on, on the other hand, is it has some of the most offensive and most uh, visible changes like for example uh, the musical number which was originally done with puppets and was complete it was a completely different scene with a completely different song uh, and they replaced it with really bad cgi uh, for the special edition uh, then of course you have uh, the ghost of uh, old anakin replaced with uh, hayden christensen who played anakin in uh, the prequels. The more you talk, the more I remember some of those changes. And now I'm remembering more when it comes to Empire. Empire is my favorite out of the, the three as far as holding. Well, I can't even say holding up over time. It's the one I would go back to the most when I was younger, though Star Wars was obviously the gateway to everything. But the new voice of Boba Fett, I forgot about that. I, of course, the Wampa stuff. It seemed like there was more stuff when Darth Vader was asking for his ship and to be mm-hmm. taken back to the Star Destroyer. It just seemed that kind of stuff, the Wampa and the Star Destroyer stuff, just seemed to kind of ruin the pacing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the Wampa, I know that they only shot it the way uh, they did originally because the monster just wasn't working but it just worked that way it had a lot of suspense and then you know they shot jaws the way they shot shot it because the shark wasn't working if the shark had worked it would have been a completely different film and probably worse (laughs) like uh sometimes the limitations make for better in invention so i know you keep buying the new editions of these films as they come out has it just gotten to a point of being ridiculous as far as some of these changes go do you have predictions as far as where lucas is going to take this stuff well hopefully nowhere uh because he he now has no hopefully no say in in it anymore after having sold the the rights to disney uh and actually to me it it seems like disney's approach is uh sort of cautiously good like uh what they're doing with the new episodes like trying to uh go back to the aesthetic of the original versions and do a lot of practical stuff and build sets and stuff like that uh it seems like they're going back to the roots which bodes well for them if if not uh uh, releasing the original versions, at least they probably won't do any further damage to <laughs> to the current versions. Uh, actually, uh, you know the the uh, recent uh, digital release was released uh, for as video on demand on uh, online. It's the first release in a long time where there were no changes made to 
to their films. Oh, wow. That is good to hear. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, well, except they they did get rid of the Fox logo for Empire and Jedi, uh, because Fox still holds the rights to Star Wars until, I think, 2020. Uh, but Disney already has the rights for uh, Empire and Jedi, so they, they removed the 20th Century Fox logo, which is kind of sad, because that's always been a part of the movie to me, but... It's not a deal breaker, I guess. Uh, but that was the only change. But when you when you look at it, the last VHS release in '97 was the first special edition. Then the next release uh, that was still VHS and laserdisc. Then the first D, uh, DVD release in 2004 had many more changes over the '97 version. Uh, then came out the Blu-rays, which which had even more changes. And this is actually the first release since 97 that didn't have any more changes in it so hopefully this is a good sign are you working on star wars version 3.0 uh not currently uh i mean uh, i'm not saying i i won't in the future uh i'm actually currently working on uh return of the jedi 2.0 which again should be a huge improvement over the old version in terms of picture quality, but also the uh, the despecialization—is that a word? <laughs> I guess I guess it is now, uh, because again, I I was able to get some 35 millimeter sources, and like I said, there were entire scenes removed, uh, and I was able to get proper real HD scan of uh, that dance number and some other scenes that were altered heavily in the special editions. So this uh, this new release should pretty much be completely true HD, no no standard definition sources with maybe a couple of exceptions here and there, but nothing visible. That should be pretty great. And then on to probably Empire version 2.5 because those guys who did the 35 millimeter scans actually recently released a complete scan of the Empire Strikes Back from thirty from a thirty-five millimeter print. It's uh, completely unrestored, so it has uh, bad colors and uh, it has a lot of dirt in it and stuff and scratches. But as a source, it uh, should prove pretty pretty much perfect. Uh, I now have the ability to clean up all the all this stuff quite nicely, so. I think uh, version 2.5 of Empire should, again, be completely HD, no no more DVD sources or anything like that. But that could still be months and months and months away because uh, I've been quite busy lately. I really appreciate the work that you've done, too. It was absolutely wonderful sitting down and watching this version and just being taken back to 1977. It was terrific. Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and uh, and that's another uh, thing. This is like the one of the biggest rewards I get for this is uh, when people write to me and say, you know, I I showed this to my father and he had tears in his eyes, and I've got many messages like that, and that's always so uplifting for me when I when I hear stuff like that, and of course. Uh, one big reward uh, 
from all this was that it uh, helped me get a job in this field. Yeah, that's amazing to go from not knowing how this stuff works to actually working in it every day now. Yeah, and uh, and it's amazing. It's I'm I'm actually working my dream job right now, so it's it's really great working for for uh, nanotech and ultraflex, and uh, I'm really I'm really enjoying my work there. Uh, I actually finished working on this uh, wonderful documentary just now. And it's it's actually going to be shown in cinemas, and uh, I I will actually even be in the credits. I've never been in the credits for anything. It's a it's a documentary called "Winning the Racing Life of Paul Newman," and it's uh, it's about Paul Newman's racing, which I I actually had no idea he was racing cars, and uh, so it was an interesting thing to watch, and definitely very interesting to work on because there was a lot of archival footage in it which was in pretty bad state so my uh, my work there was to restore these old shots uh, so it was right down my alley really and uh, I really enjoyed doing that how old were you when you first saw Star Wars uh, I think five I saw it on TV was that your first one oh, yeah I saw Star Wars first but actually uh, I saw Star Wars when I was about five. And then I haven't seen Empire uh, or Jedi until uh, 97 when the special editions came out. And I actually saw Jedi before Empire. Yeah, because, because you know, my friends who, who have already seen it told me, you know, we were, we were kids and Jedi is much more <laughs> aimed at kids. And, and they told me, yeah, this one is much better. Watch this one. <laughs> so... Uh, so I, I saw Jedi before Empire, but I already knew the story, so I, I wasn't, I didn't have the surprises spoiled or anything. Thanks so much to Harmy for taking the time to talk to us, talking about the despecialized version, which was one of many versions of Star Wars that we watched for this particular episode of Star Wars, of special features, of documentaries. I mean, I think I probably watched what, 20 hours worth of stuff for this episode, maybe more. And then going back and I've watched this despecialized version a couple times. I had a friend of mine over, we were watching this movie and we're just so thankful for different scenes. Like we're the, the land speeders coming into Moss Eisley and we're just like, Oh, look at this. Oh, look at how glorious this is. There's not all that shit there. There's not that big creature carrying those Jawas and stuff. Oh, man. There's not that those things flying around. And I forget how bad that stuff is until I, you know, go back and I watch the, the, you know, I know now they're not even calling them special editions. I'm watching Star Wars, A New Hope again. And I'm just like, oh, I forgot how bad this stuff is. And each 
iteration that comes out, it just gets worse and worse. It feels like you know. I mean that the bit where I'm talking to, to Harmony there about the the Empire Strikes Back, and I forget how much he fucked around with that. You know, I thought, okay, yeah, that one that one was safe, but no, he, he pissed on that one too. Yeah, in some pretty obvious ways. If you have seen Return of the Jedi at all, you know that's an alternate take of a shuttle landing. But the one thing that aggravated me about all of Empire was was changing Vader's line um, from uh, "Bring my shuttle," real pissed off, to uh, "Alert my star destroyer to prepare for my arrival." Wouldn't they do that anyway? Come on. Bring my shuttle, the way James Earl Jones says it, and the way they're walking with the music and everything just shows I didn't get what I want. And it's so terrifying to to know how mad he can get, but he's holding it together just long enough to go choke Ozzel's corpse. <laughs> I was going to say, you know he's going to force choke somebody. That's one of my favorite Vader lines, because it just conveys so much with so little. And... I did not like that it was removed. I, I am so surprised that Lucas doesn't have like Hamill, Ford, <laughs> Fisher, all these people on retainer. So it's just like you guys have to record like every line, every word <laughs> in the English language for me, so I can redo <laughs> your voices ad infinitum. You know, I'm surprised that he hasn't even gone further with some of this stuff. I'm surprised Jimmy Smith hasn't shown up. And, you know, when they come back to the moon of Yavin and him being like, oh, hey, Leah, hey, it's great uh, to see you. I yeah. know he's blown up on Alderaan and stuff, but that would be something that Lucas would do. You know, I was I was concerned after Sith came out and we saw Alderaan that we would have reaction shots of the Death Star <laughs> overhead because that I mean, it might you know, make the loss of the planet a little more understandable. Cause that's a, that's a very, uh, incomprehensible thing that happens. I don't know. I, I like it more seeing it from the Imperial point of view of just that's a target. We're just, just to get information. I'm going to kill like 10 billion people. That's fine. I think, I think adding a face to it as like screaming and running for, for ships and stuff would kind of, I don't know, be cheesy in a way. I'm glad he didn't do something I just made up. But with Jimmy Smith, it, that's, that was the point. It definitely could have been done. Oh my gosh, look at that in the sky. We didn't even get to the uh, Star Wars Revisited, which is like the special edition on steroids. Is that like the Godfather saga where they cut them all together? No, this guy went in and added stuff and tweaked things. He fixed that eyeball problem on that one mask. He made a special edition that is like... Lucas could never outdo it. It's more special. Some of the stuff like is really good, like throwing Yavin in scenes of the uh, at the, the the Death Star battle. I don't know. I I like I I sometimes I like all the different versions because it's like alternate realities. It's like oh well, this could have happened. Well, where's the Tashira from Mafuni uh, version with him as Ben? Get that. <laughs> But I, I mean, we 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 all have access to the despecialized versions, so those are there. I'll watch, and he's uh, he he's gonna have Empire done soon, and I'm so curious to see what he's doing with that. Yeah, I can't wait to watch that one. The thing that kills me about the despecialized Star Wars is just 
the level that he went to to get all those different subtitles and audio tracks and all that stuff put in there. I mean, just, it is what, you know, the movie deserves. Yeah, I, I read the list of where he pulled things from, and like I'm, I didn't even know half that stuff existed still. There's rumors Disney's going to put them out because they know people will buy them. Oh, fuck yeah. That deleted magic little documentary that was terrific as well especially seeing so many of the behind the scenes stuff yeah. hearing the audio the mono audio of Amperu. i just happened across that too i'd never heard of it before i remember i actually bought the cd rom of behind the magic i think it was called yeah. and it was one of those like oh here's you know pondo bobbitt's uh, blah 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 yeah. but they had the the big scenes, horrible, horrible quality of the big scenes. Yeah. And they had, um, who is it? Jenny or whoever, yeah, like the Hans girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, Ooh, that's kind of cool. You know, just these little things, some more like cantina stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing that we get with, um, well in both that behind the, or deleted magic. And then in the star Wars, um, holiday special, you get a few outtakes of, of Moss Eisley that you right. don't get anyplace else. Yeah. The other thing that kills me about these special editions and the prequels and all this kind of stuff is that we have taken a galaxy and we've made it a block. You know, it's not even a neighborhood. It's a block. Cause you got the kid who's on the planet of Tatooine and Tatooine. If there's a bright center of the universe, you're on the planet that is farthest from. But yet, all the prequels are taking place on Tatooine. Even the third movie is taking place on Tatooine. Third movie being Return of the Jedi. Taking place on Tatooine. A lot of shit happens on Tatooine. Probably shouldn't. Should probably go some other places. So the kid's there. His dad's up in above him in the Star Destroyer. His sister has just been captured by his father in the star destroyer with the, the tent of four and all this stuff. It's just, we're making the universe so, so tiny and it's just driving me crazy. Like every, you know, and now Boba Fett was killed in this instance where this guy was. And then, and then over here, this happens. And the thing that drives me the craziest, you talked about the expanded universe and you've mentioned the expanded universe a couple times. It's not necessarily an expanded universe. It's a contracted universe to me because it seems like everybody ties into our main characters you know i remember reading i don't know if it was wikipedia or what the fuck it was but i remember reading something about dengar and telling me all about who dengar was and all this kind of stuff and of course he had history with like han solo oh yeah yeah han, han made him crash in like some kind of crystal raceway while they were raising swoop bikes Oh, shit, man. So he's all scarred up. That's why he looks like a uh, uh, toilet mummy. <laughs> Is that a robot chicken reference? Probably, I think so. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read a lot about these characters. Again, going back, I'm a, I'm a little kid and I'm watching the Today Show because I used to love watching that before I would go off to elementary school. And they've got this kid on there, this uh, redheaded little kid, Rusty Miller. <laughs> and he was the author of the Jedi Master's Quiz Book. So I picked this thing up at B. Dalton's or Walden Books or any one of these stores that is no longer in business. And I take it home and I'm just cooking through this thing, right? Mm -hmm. Until I get to certain questions. And then I'm just like, what the fuck is this stuff? What is he talking about? Luke is, what, Red 5, right? Yeah. But no, 
in the book, he's read three. And I'm like, the book? And like, yes, I had the Star Wars book when I was a kid, and I read it and everything, but I didn't memorize it, because that to me wasn't Star Wars. That was a right. book. Right. You know, I have even had the, the force behind Star Wars, the, the one that was comparing Star Wars to Christianity, all this kind of stuff. That's how much of a nerd I was. Anyway, so I'm just like, what the fuck, man? So this isn't you know canon to me. This isn't what I really want to know. And then there's this whole weird thing. To me, the be-all, end-all of everything was the, the action figures. You know, I already talked about going over to Kmart and picking up these action figures. So for me... The droid-looking guy with the bug eyes—that's uh, yeah. Zuckus. Yeah, and the little guy with like the kind of cloth cape and stuff, mm-hmm. and also kind of bug eyes—that's four LOM. Yeah, but no, apparently, after all these years, I'm wrong <laughs> because they screwed up when it came to the action figures. So yeah. no, they're actually reversed. If I remember right, it was the the West End Games role-playing guide that corrected it. That thing really kicked off a lot of this shit because then they saw oh wait people are interested in this again oh fire up the toy making line and then yeah fire up all these people who are just like oh well ig88 blah 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 and then like to me the guy who got his arm cut off by obi-wan kenobi Mm. that's walrus man and the other guy He's just like some pig nose guy. He's ugly. <laughs> yeah. You mean it's not Dr. Evazan and Pondo Baba? Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. That's the shit that drives me crazy, man. Yeah. Mario Baba? Yes, yeah. Mario Baba was in the film. <laughs> Amazing. He got his arm chopped off by Obi-Wan Ken- Sorry, Ben Kenobi. Mm, yeah. When he's on Tatooine, he likes to go by Ben. You know, he's trying to keep a low profile here. <laughs> I thought he might have met old Ben. Don't spread my name around. I'm Ben in this place, okay? I have to say, before I forget, I the bounty hunters, even even Dengar, when they showed up in Empire, they were my favorite thing for like 30 years. Fucking and, Bosk with those toes over the, the side there when the guy looks up and Bosk is just a badass man. They were all so interesting. And Forlom and Zuckus got like, they got like a half a second of screen time, but they were the most interesting. That dude has a C-3PO body, but a bug head. What planet is that from? Oh, yeah. Just so interesting. Yeah, they were. I mean, and yeah, that's, you know, fucking Boba Fett, man. The guy had 28 lines, 28 words, sorry, 28 words, he said. And he just, yeah. So I don't really need more Boba Fett. That was perfect. They're saying one of the spinoff movies is going to be about it, but rumors are everywhere. Who knows? Yeah. I don't Max know. Max von Sydow. Going to voice him, huh? Or will he be in the suit? Poor 70-year-old Max von Sydow. <laughs> that's, that's what I heard about in, in Seven is that he's, he's – and this is all rumors, of course. He's just going to be all cyborged up. I don't know. I, well, yeah. after he was in the cursed land, I mean – yeah, I mean, it, you face off against the Angel family. What do you have? What choice do you have after that? Nothing. You got to adopt what they did to the one son. That's on par with the prequels, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in an elevator the other day, and I had a shirt with a silhouette of a probot on it. And the guy looks over at me, and he says, hey, it's a nice shirt. I'm like, thank you. Not many people know what it's from. And because uh, the probot's my favorite robot in the in all of the the films and he's like what do you think of these new movies you think they're gonna be shit like the prequels i'm like oh i already don't want to talk to you you're just gonna start it negative like 
come on. And I just, I, I'm like, you know what? I'm hoping they'll be good. Yeah. And that's it. That's, that's, that's all. I figure they can only get better. The expanded universe drives me crazy. The other thing that drives me crazy, May the 4th. Oh. Fucking drives me nuts, man. Yeah. Who came up with that? Somebody uh, with the speech impediment? What the fuck, man? I don't know. And I appreciate everybody that wished me, including my father, a happy Star Wars Day. That's yeah. great. I, I I loved it that people, you know, would on Facebook and, and whatever reach out. But I know Star Wars Day, it's a different day. 525, baby. Yeah. yeah. That's why we're releasing this as close to 525 as we can get. And recording as close as possible. Too. Oh Jesus, yeah. Fucking skin is this of our the teeth. latest you've recorded before a release? <sighs> well, especially with like five interviews to edit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I went off book there. No worries. <laughs> we, yeah. we show how you make the sausage sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is weird to have a Star Wars film released in December, though. Yes. It just doesn't feel right. No, Star Wars to me is very much a summer experience, even. Having stuff, you know, on Hoth and everything, it's still Empire's still a summer movie for me. Yeah. Wait. I guess they're going they're going back to the May releases after this one. I'm confused. They're not putting out a reconstituted version of the holiday special for Christmas? What what? Huh? <laughs> they they did release the um the Nelvana cartoon on the Blu-rays as a hidden feature. And they allowed Hasbro to make a Boba Fett with that like tuning fork gun in in the holiday uh, holiday special colors so there's a little bit of acknowledgement but just of the animated first appearance of boba fett stuff i'm gonna throw this in here even though it makes no sense to put this right at this particular place in this episode but if people are interested you want to know more about the uh, auditions that we've talked about? I talked to PJ Souls about that, and you'll hear about that on the Rock and Roll High School episode that we have coming out in June. And then I talked to Joe Johnston, the director of Rocketeer, about his career and how he started with Lucasfilm. And that'll be in our Rocketeer episode, which is coming out in August. So even though we, we talk a lot of Star Wars on here, there's there's never enough. So you'll be getting a little bit more of that as we go throughout the year. And also, uh, Roger Christian on the uh, Battlefield Earth episode talks a little bit about Star Wars, and then, of course, on here talks a lot about Star Wars. He's a nice guy, that Roger Christian. Yeah, he's been on three times, and he also talked about a movie that everyone hates, which, uh, you know, it's it's rare to get a director or a producer to come on and talk about a movie that everyone hates. I love it. I, I mean, yeah, that takes a lot of guts, man, to do that. Chris, I want to ask you, and then I'll ask you, Rob, do you have a favorite Star Wars parody film? My initial gut reaction is is no. But if I had to pick one, I think it hit me at the right time. I would probably end up going with the very boring Spaceballs. Mm. Just because of um, you know Rick Moranis and John Candy and knowing them, it, it, it's an easy in for a young kid to be like, oh, I know who they are. And it's something I like. I a lot of the jokes were even when I was little. A lot of the a lot of the stuff was just like, oh, really? But overall, sure, why not? We'll go with that. See, Chris is not a fan of it, but I think Spaceballs is fucking hilarious, <laughs> and I love it. I, I especially love uh, Mel Brooks and the whole merchandising scene. 
that's yeah. hilarious in there. And um, of course the, the, the callbacks to, uh, to alien in the end. And the, the other thing that I loved was um, when the prequels were announced, uh, the onion had a article that said uh, Jonathan Lipnicki, who was the little kid in um, Jerry Maguire. It says y- Jonathan Lipnicki to play a young dark helmet in Spaceballs prequel. <laughs> and that just had me on the floor laughing because he kind of does look like a young Rick Moranis in some of those shots in Jerry Maguire. Oh, that's good. I waited a long time to see Spaceballs. I don't know why, but I never watched it until Andrea bought me a copy on DVD like maybe 10 years ago. So I totally missed that boat when it was out originally. I guess I was much more of a Blazing Saddles Young Frankenstein fan. And I think when, I think maybe when Spaceballs came out, it was a little too close to home as far as like, I was still dealing with all of my issues of recovery of being a Star Wars addict. So (laughs) I wasn't ready for that yet. Well, I just remember that the box art, because I had the VHS of that, and that was one of the ones that were in the rotation for me that I would constantly watch, is the box art looked like the box art for Star Wars. Like, it had the whole thing with the, um, like, you know, how how the characters were all built with... with, um, uh, Luke holding the the lightsaber and all of that. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Like oh, yeah. The classic kind of like, pose. Yeah. yeah, that whole kind of pillar of thing. I, I just remember that the box art kind of looked like that. And then the script for the title was also the same font as mm-hmm. well. So it was like, if it wasn't obvious enough, then they <laughs> went that far to make it that obvious for you. So once you finally got the DVD copy from from your lovely wife, what was your take on it? Did you like it? Did you not like it? Uh, how'd you find it? Seeing it all those years after it was out, it didn't really hold up for me that much. There were a couple like chuckle lines in there for me, but I don't know when I started to think that Mel Brooks wasn't as funny as he was. I mean, obviously, Life Stinks, uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It, Robin Hood Men in Tights. I think all of those are just garbage, but I'm not sure if it was like high anxiety or where it was that maybe to be or not to be somewhere along the way, Mel Brooks lost the script for me. And I think that Spaceballs kind of fits into that one. It felt like the jokes were a little too easy sometimes, um, like the Druish princess and these kind of things, but they're worth a chuckle. I mean, there's definitely some sort of, I would call, you know, Jewish humor and like Borscht Belty, um, Marx Brothers kind of bits. Like the the one in there that I like, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Star Wars, is the whole um, instant cassette scene where he's like, you know, what do we do now? And it's like, sir, we can look at the cassette. What? It's like, yeah, the cassette's in the store before the movie's finished. And they have this whole thing where they're looking at themselves. And he's like, what the hell am I looking at? It's like, you're looking at now, sir. And there's this whole back and forth about now, now and everything, which reminds me of like, who's on first, which when I was a kid, it was fucking hilarious. I mean, that's like why I love the Marx Brothers so much was just all this, you know, like word humor and ridiculousness. This is bringing back more memories of the movie. I'm going to have to watch it again because there's clearly stuff I forgot that I enjoyed in it. I was a huge fan of Hardware Wars, which was out very shortly after Star Wars was out. And um, that one, I still use jokes from that one, even today. I mean, when Darth Nader 
is threatening Princess Android in Hardware Wars. You'll hiss Darth Nader, naughty person. I don't understand what you're saying. I can't understand you. Are you talking to me? I mean, there's so many good laugh lines in that one and just I mean Chinchilla instead of Chewbacca and being played by basically the cookie monster for me I mean it's one it, it's pitch perfect and it it runs 13 minutes long it's shot all like a preview and it just retells the entire story of Star Wars but just ridiculous kind of stuff I mean especially when they go into the cantina and it's basically like a biker bar and they have this great song about like you know I was born to be an Augie Ben Doggy kind of thing and they're in there and just like this is too weird man oh man <laughs> such a great time capsule for when it was and I, looking it up it was released October 16 1978 so a year and a half after uh, Star Wars and, you know, all shot on, I believe, 16 and, you know, obviously practical effects to the point where they're scratching on the film and stuff to do some of the laser blasts. It was terrific. Uh, unfortunately, Ernie Ford Facilius, who uh, did the, the movie, was tempted and uh, fell into the temptation of doing a special edition of Hardware Wars and I got to say, avoid it at all costs, because it really just kind of ruins the quaint charm of these shitty effects of flying toasters and vacuum cleaners and stuff. I mean, it's perfect the way that it was. Mm-hmm. So, have so what you're it. saying is he was very influenced by George. Very. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> have you guys seen Troops? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, love yeah, I saw that. I think that was I, like one of the first like viral YouTube videos, wasn't it? That like got passed around in the early days of YouTube. Yeah, there used to be this whole thing. It was called the Moss Eisley Metroplex or something like that. It was a website where they housed all of these parodies. And I have to say, the one called Trooper Clerks, which was shot like Clerks, that was eh, amusing. But mm. Troops to me was just fucking uh, so good for folks who don't know it was uh, basically a parody of cops the tv show but with stormtroopers instead and it's basically the stormtroopers who are looking for r2d2 and c3po and it's the side story of their search for the droids to the point where (laughs) the scenes with uncle owen and aunt peru (laughs) just amazing (laughs) They they got some really good actors for those parts Oh, yeah. And the special effects. I mean, this is like crazy what they were doing on their computers at this time. Yeah. It's like the shuttlecraft and stuff. I mean, their stuff looked better than what was going on in the special edition. Like if they had put <laughs> dobacks in there, the dobacks yeah. would look real, you know, rather than this like weird shaky shit that they're doing in the, the special edition. Yeah. Troops was a lot of I, I would wait. I, I would download it and it would take forever on you know a dial-up modem (laughs) yeah but it was worth leaving it going overnight (laughs) so you could watch it oh my god yeah yeah i was just thinking today about the first time the phantom menace trailer came out and the wait for that the wait of the download i'm working at an internet place so we had like a I don't know, like a T3 or whatever line at this place or a partial T3, I think it was. Mm. 
so it took a couple hours for this thing to come down. You know, I mean, these MOV files and everything were just huge. You know, just didn't have the codecs that we do today. Oh man, but just I watched the shit out of that thing and just yeah, it was for me it was so worth it. And that preview held such promise. But yeah, seeing those taking the time to download those things back in the day, it's just like, oh wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And uh pretty soon though there was a glut of Star Wars parodies and stuff, and a lot of people were doing the serious stuff, which I really couldn't get behind a lot you know a lot of fake lightsaber battles and a lot of you know new jedis and all this kind of stuff i'm like yeah i don't get that and then people were doing like you know oh well star wars is actually macbeth and we're going to shoot a play of macbeth at our high school and then put it up online i'm like yeah no that doesn't work (laughs) the one that worked the best for me though is this one called star wars sometimes called star wars episode three a lost hope and I don't know if you guys have ever seen this thing, but it was, I want to say it came out between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, or it might have come out between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. Because they kind of pre, they were making fun of stuff that they knew was going to be in the next movie. So they've got like a a very very pregnant Princess Amidala, <laughs> and they've got this whole thing. The guy who plays Anakin Skywalker is just amazing. He is just such a dork, and the way that he pitches his voice, it is oh, it is fantastic. There's one part where he is like shaving, brushing his hair, brushing his teeth and all this stuff. It's all like, you know, on wires, of course, like, and he's just like, I'm the most powerful Jedi ever. I'm going to have to find that. That They have this, they have this thing where the emperor is like, I've been working on this for a long time. And he's got this, like from the desk of the empire, uh, emperor, uh, (laughs) piece of paper and it's a a very simplistic drawing of the death star so it's a (laughs) circle with another circle and a dot on it (laughs) and darth at this point anakin is darth vader and he just looks down and he goes a booby i will call it the sphere of fear the deathicle you are softer than sand my lady the other thing that has come out of star wars and especially out of these prequels that I have to say that I absolutely love. And I don't know, Chris, where you stand on this. And I think I know where you stand on this, Rob, the whole Mr. Plinkett phenomenon. And, you know, (laughs) the reviews of the prequels that quote unquote, Mr. Plinkett did, I think run about, if you were to add all three of them together, I want to say they run about at least three hours, something like that. I know the one, one for Phantom Menace and maybe the one for, uh, Revenge of the Sith run at least like 70 minutes. And I, I could watch those more than I can watch the prequels. I think that he did such a wonderful job. I don't really care about the whole serial killer aspect of Mr. Plinkett. And I kind of wish there was a special edition of the Plinkett stuff where that stuff was out, but his film criticism of the prequels, I thought was just absolutely wonderful, especially revenge of the Sith. When he starts talking about all of the shots that have been in the prequels of people sitting on couches and talking, <laughs> which i it was a great honor on the transfers episode to have one of the f- guys from red letter media on the show 
because I enjoy the Mr. Plinkett stuff so much. And I just think that what's great about the Mr. Plinkett stuff to me is why, for me, as a young film fan, Mystery Science Theater works Oh yeah, as a great teaching tool is that they're showing you all the errors. They're showing you all the faults. They're showing you the plot holes and the technical problems and, and everything that doesn't work if you're trying to tell a good story and make a good film. And ultimately, I think at the bottom of it is a love for it, much like you guys have, and going, you know, this could be so much better. And we're fans, and that's why we're pointing to it and going, what are you doing? Another thing that really got me when it came to his review of Revenge of the Sith was his comparisons of George Lucas, as I said before, to Charles Foster Kane. This whole idea of him building up this empire, building his Xanadu, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, and being, I don't know, for lack of a better term, mad with power, basically, and not having those people to tell him no and everything. It just the way that Kane became who he was and then comparing him to Lucas, I mean, just fucking brilliant stuff. And that's the thing that I love about these reviews and the things that, like you said, Rob, with mystery science theater, these guys know film. They understand what it is. They, you know, he under the, the, the guy who plays Mr. Plinkett knows film theory, knows this kind of stuff. It can point out the whole idea of like, when it comes to the prequels, who's the protagonist, who's the antagonist, you know, who are these people? Like, should the first movie have been the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi? I thought he might've met old Ben coming through or, you know, why start with Anakin as a kid versus a teenager versus whatever age, you know, why make those decisions? What what effects do they have on the audience? That kind of stuff is just amazing that he is so insightful when it comes to that. And yeah, has this great sense of humor with it. I'll admit the first time someone pointed him out to me, it was more of a, hey, this guy's shitting all over the stuff you like. I didn't take it the right way the first time, but a lot of the stuff he said stuck with me. And it definitely... Those reviews actually made me look at stuff I like a little more critically and made me just not accept, you know, oh, that's awesome. So that's that, that's what I like, but made me kind of understand why I like stuff like like the difference between enjoyable and good as, as a film. Like I can enjoy watching Revenge of the Sith if I have enough popcorn, but there are good movies out there. And I think you sh- people should be critical, especially of the stuff that they hold dear, because it, it'll tell you a lot about yourself. I mean, I like the prequels because it continues a story that I enjoy, um, not the way I wanted, perhaps. But Star Wars made me start to draw because I wanted to have something to do with that universe. So I drew R2 and 3PO and Vader and I did that and, and I went to art school and I didn't do a damn thing with it, but I can still draw and sculpt and stuff. So I really love all of the pre-production stuff, all the, the design stuff, seeing it on screen, seeing it in person when these people build the costumes and then come to your movie theater and scare the crap out of you. Um, (laughs) So the prequels as, as conceptual design, I think are amazing 
story-wise, if if I was a writer, I would probably throw up in my mouth a little bit every day that I thought about them because I just blindly accepted them at first. And then I thought about it and then I watched them like two months ago and I'm like, these are not good. These are, there are great actors in these movies. And yes, slave one is flying around looking awesome with, with a little Boba Fett in there. You don't need that. You don't need this. You don't need these parts, but everything looked, everything was designed. Fantastic. I love the art of books and everything. And that's, that's so Plinkett helped me (laughs) figure out why I like what I like, I guess. I would just love to see a uh, critics battle between Plinkett and Camille Paglia because a couple of years ago, the feminist writer came out talking about the prequels and how they were like the greatest thing since, you know, the Renaissance for Western art and was defending them. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I think the cheese fell off her cracker years ago, and I'm, I feel sorry to say that. Yeah, there are some people that will just really try to convince you that these are terrific movies and it's just like no it just it doesn't work for me i mean it, you know the the they do look great in some respects but then in other respects i'm just like i love the used universe of the original star wars films and to me things are just way too bright and shiny when it comes to the prequels and it's like give me the dirt you know don't don't clean it up for me yeah. and to me the the technology doesn't work as far as like, and I'm not talking about the actual technology used to make the films, even though that presents problems as far as connection of the actors and all this kind of stuff. But the technology, as far as why do things look like they're more modern in the past, you know, 18, 20, 30, however many years before star Wars than they would in star Wars. You know, like it feels like suddenly, maybe because of the, um, you know, the way that the Empire took over and, you know, like things weren't new, there was this stagnation, but you never really get that idea of when the Empire takes over, things are stagnant, and that's why things look shittier in Star Wars than they do in the prequels. It seems to me like, you know, there was a, a regression of technology. Well, what happened was, is in the original Star Wars film in 1977, that was all set during basically a Great Depression in the Star Wars universe. And everything, yeah, everybody lost their jobs and they were in soup lines and all that stuff. So that's why everything looks shitty. And then 50 years before it was all great. So there you go. It is a time of Great Depression. We explained it. It's just Han Han doesn't clean his ship. (laughs) That's what it comes down to. Oh, and. In the new trailer where Han says to Chewie, he says, Chewie, we're home. They're in the Falcon. The dude lives in his car. Yeah. But anyway, no, seriously, though, look at the places that they visited in in the prequels. It's it's the, the Queen's Palace on Naboo. It's um, the, the Galactic Senate um, cloning chambers, which is basically a medical facility. Those all should be clean. Definitely for health reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with the cloning place. I don't know. I saw it. It's the height of the Republic. It's opulence. And we're following the most powerful people instead of, you know, the dusty farm boy and the drug smuggler. Um, 
<laughs> so it would be different. I just do that to rile up Han fans. Um, so I, I think it, it does. It, 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 I always figured it would, it would show a different class of person between the movies. And maybe that's part of the problem that I have with those prequels is that we are dealing with that upper echelon and yeah. we're not dealing with those working class people. We don't have the, the Luke's of the world. We have the senators. Yep. Yep. And the, and the one slave child that rises to Jedi Knight on the council. And isn't like the whole first film. And I remember this from the Plinkett review it's all about trade. They're just talking about trade through the whole film. It's like, let's trade this and trade that and business this and business that. So it's actually more like a, you know, a business film more than it is anything else. Yeah. It gets a little, a little much. It's funny. I'll, I'll, I'll tell this story now rather than on our episode on the limey in a couple uh, months here. Um, years ago, I saw, uh, the Limey in Toronto and uh, went to a public screening rather than um, a press screening for this one for some reason. And Terrence Stamp and S- Steven Soderbergh were there. And afterwards, they did a Q&A. And of course, people are asking Terrence Stamp about um, his work in The Phantom Menace because it was right around that same time. Mm. And, you know, he doesn't show up in any of the other movies. Which is a little strange, I guess, because he's the de- deposed leader of the Senate or whatever. It kind of makes sense that he doesn't show up. But the other thing, the other reason why he doesn't show up is he hated working with George Lucas. <laughs> and he made no bones about it when he was there. But he handled it like a gentleman, like Terrence Stamp would. When somebody asked him about working with George Lucas, he just said, Well, let me tell you this George w- Lucas works really well with computers with people not so much well that's evident in his dialogue (laughs) oh yeah yeah very very stiff the only thing that stuck out for me and the one that i actually like out of the the prequels is the last one and the one aspect that i liked and i know that it's a total borrow from two sources and that's metropolis and frankenstein but i did like the whole building of vader Mm. at the end that scene kind of gave me a chill you know when i saw it i was like that's good like i like that but i didn't i didn't like the other two so much all right we're going to take yet another break but this time we're going to play a preview for next week's show Do it yourself today with stimulator. My Yes. Oh, would you bring the camera in for a close-up? This is just too delicious, girl.
is too clean it may cause dangerous virus to grow use dirt That's right. We're back next week with our last week of Modi May, or as I like to call it, Cool Modi May, talking about Wind Chamberlain's Brand X. And we want to thank this week's special guests for all being on the show. we got the big rundown. You can go to projection-booth.com and you can find out all about it. And, of course, our special guest co-host who's been on with us the whole time and uh, has definitely has a, a very uh, large bladder, uh, Mr. Chris from Outside the Cinema. Uh, sir... How are things over at OTC Nation, sir? It's uh, sleazy, I think. Is uh, we we did some Russ Meyer films, so Ooh. there you go. Um, that's par for the course. We're just we're just maintaining with um, bottom of the barrel cult films. I've actually been recognizing a lot of the titles that you guys have been doing lately. Yeah, we had a we had a, a kind of a we'll call it the dark times of just trash, like just throw away i don't know why this was made kind of stuff and now we seem to be hitting a good stride of um of either really 
well-regarded but bad films <laughs> or stuff that's like surprisingly enjoyable that I'd never heard of. So I like that. I like when Bill pulls stuff out of nowhere and um, and it's stuff that I enjoy. That sound bite will be there for uh, Reverend Scott, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... I don't want to feel that I was uh, leading you guys down the uh, terrible path there, but I think that my bringing up evil clutch uh, may have been the, uh, <laughs> the, the low watermark that led to even lower watermarks over there, I guess. I think that was p- the beginning of the decline, but I wouldn't say the decline was your fault at all. I think it, it was about the time Bill said, hey, let's watch Oasis of the Zombies. Oh, God. Like, oh. Right, fine. Whatever. <laughs> I, at least you had White Zombie that same episode, right? That's true. That's true. But you have had a, a couple weeks there where it was just like, wow, neither one of these sounds yeah. any good. And I and I definitely grade the stuff based on, I mean, what they are. It, you know, it, they're all bad for the most part. Ninety percent of them are bad. I'll say eighty percent. But but you know, ninety percent of them could be enjoyable. So I try to look for the good in them now instead of just trashing them. So it doesn't always work. (laughs) (laughs) How about Are You Serious? Have you done any uh, good episodes over there lately? Have you done an episode taking apart the prequel or the episode seven trailer? We talked about it probably for about a half hour. Um, So that's 10 times longer than the trailer. (laughs) Um, but we're actually, um, trying, I'm trying to stay away from, like I saw today, it's like, Oh, third scene breakdown for episode seven. I'm like, no, cause I'll <laughs> see the whole movie online before. So like, I'm trying to stay away from stuff, but like, I'll see a thing that says, oh, look at the new snow trooper. Yes, of course. I will look at the new snow trooper. Yeah. But that's it. I mean, I know there's snowtroopers in it. It doesn't change anything. It's not going to give anything away. And really, for the rest of the show, we're just waiting for um, the primaries to start so we can start trashing on people. Isn't it cool that he says, my father has it, not my father had it? Like, he's still alive, man. (laughs) We actually, Frank, had to hear the original dialogue from Jedi. So we played them on the show, and it's the dialogue from Jedi. And he just had Mark Hamill re-record it so they could, like, layer it. Like, oh, nope, see, you're reading too much into it. Plus, that dialogue doesn't appear in the movie, so never mind. And and everybody getting on this uh, this cross-guard lightsaber, I just, whether this makes the show or not, I just want to say, Star Wars is not about functionality. It's about what looks cool. Because Boba Fett's jetpack would burn his ass off. Yeah, because he had a big ghetto booty, of course. <laughs> At the very least, it would burn his legs, but it looked cool. And the the cross guard saber looks cool. That's all. It's about looking cool and being entertaining, which is nothing <laughs> the prequels did. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Billy D. Williams was in the first series. Yeah. I mean, how much cooler can you get? I mean, come on. Yeah. Cold Not 45 work, yeah. works every time. Well, thank you again, Chris. Thanks for everyone for listening to this marathon session. Um, obviously, Star Wars is a topic very close to my heart, and I hope I haven't bored everyone uh, out of their skulls with this one, especially talking about my you know fifth, fourth, third, second, first grade <laughs> kindergarten memories of the film. So feel free to go over and leave your geek nitpicking on our website. I'm sure that we misstated a number of facts. 
you can go over to projection-booth.com. I'm sure that we have uh, made some mistakes, had some bad breaks, um, but that's okay. You know, if you happen to find the show enjoyable, go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us some stars, and uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that'll definitely help us conquer the universe. So, fellas, I don't say this very often, but I find it very appropriate at this particular time. And notice the way that I end the um, third word here. May the force be with you. Nanu, nanu.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I thought he might have met old Dan.